All right. The show still hasn't started because we don't have uh, a guest for six o'clock. The three people canceled. And so anyway, I ordered in from Chipotle this afternoon. So wish me luck. And I haven't eaten Chipotle in three years. So it's a shock to my system. It's shocking. Ah, shit. Why did I do that? Wish me luck, Chipotle. People should be allowed to place what are they called? Proposition bets? Is that what they do before the Super Bowl? Proposition bets? You should be allowed to place bets on, on, on your Chipotle order. I mean, that's where the economy is pretty much heading. We don't really do anything. So we might as well just bet on our food orders. You got Patton Oswalt doing commercials for online betting. So if online betting gets Patton Oswalt's good trap Chapo Trap House seal of approval. If it's politically correct to do online betting because Patton is doing telling us it's OK, uh, there's nothing wrong with online betting. So DraftKings should take proposition bets on Chipotle. Like I order and then I place my wager and I maybe go for the parlay. I would have gone for the parlay, 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 parlay today. I would have bet. I would have bet on uh, Listeria, Salmonella, and Ratjaw. That's those are the three. If those three came in, I, by the way, Ratjaw is like Lockjaw, uh, but instead of your mouth frozen, you you find frozen Ratjaw in your Chipotle. Read about Chipotle, by the way. Uh, you think I'm kidding? I'm not. And they're guilty of wage theft. But wouldn't it be great you order from Chipotle and you can get a little action on what you eat? <laughs> no, I'm okay. I just made $5,000. I landed the parley. Chipotle. Read about Chipotle and their wage theft and the way they treat their employees. It's all true. And that includes Listeria and all other kinds of animals that are crawling around your your food read about it google chipotle and see when you treat your employees bad bad things end up in your food you know Chip i ordered chipotle today i don't know why people make bad decisions when they're starving you make bad decisions when you're horny you make bad decisions when you're broke you know that, that's why bordellos and casinos are not supposed to be right around the corner it shouldn't be easy to act on an impulse. A bordello or a casino or, or Chipotle, these must be conscious decisions. The idea should come to you, not the other way around. I have, uh, you know, I have no quarrel with vices, but vices are something that you act on, not something that acts on you. Like, oh, there's a massage parlor. Huh, maybe I'll go get a massage before I go home and see the wife. That's what got Mr. Kraft in trouble. That marriage is gonna last. Anyway, uh, I have no problem. If The Vice is right, one of my favorite television shows, if The Vice is right around the corner, it's gonna take up much of your time. And we don't want that. A vice, I'm not saying vices are bad, but not every day should be Mardi Gras. Advice is like an Entenmann's coffee cake. You should only enjoy it occasionally. And when you do do it, 
you're reminded of why you only do it every so often because it makes you feel like crap. Again, nothing wrong with vices, nothing wrong with an Entenmann's coffee cake, but you shouldn't shouldn't be part of your, you shouldn't eat it. It shouldn't be there all the time for to tempt you. By the way, Charles Entenmann, the founder of Entenmann's died this week, 92. Entenmann was one tough cookie. Not as tough as an Entenmann's cookie, but close. Entenmann attributed his long life to exercise, getting plenty of sleep, and a diet of anything but Entenmann's coffee cake. His family asks, in lieu of flowers, you send flour. Wow. I have to soldier on because I don't have a six o'clock guest. We don't have a six o'clock guest. Whew. Uh, Entenmann was cremated and then served with a cup of decaf. Always save the worst for last. The point I guess I'm making is don't look for a place to eat like I did today when you're hungry. You shouldn't, you know, Chipotle should not be something that's there for you to choose. You, nobody chooses Chipotle. You're hungry, you say, I'm starving. I'm, I'm going to replace these pangs of hunger with pangs of regret. That's the decision you make when, what's an, when it's an impulse order on Seamless. You, you say, I'm starving. I'm going to replace these pangs of hunger with pangs of regret. Pangs of regret, by the way, is a terrific Chinese restaurant right around the corner from me. If you ever are coming to Manhattan, and you want to visit me, first stop off at Pangs of Regret for the best stir fry this side of the East River and save a little for me, Pangs of Regret. People make bad decisions when they're hungry, which is why when you're zoning a city, you should make sure that when people are hungry, they don't have to eat at Chipotle or Burger King or McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or any other fast food franchise that causes obesity, diabetes, cancer and heart disease, not to mention gout, bad breath and body odor and bad breath. I always look at couples eating at McDonald's and I think, like, how many weeks are you going to have to wait until you kiss each other? Uh, here's a general rule of thumb about fast food. When you order delivery, it's never a good sign when the smell of that food arrives 15 minutes before the actual food does. I know when someone in my apartment building ordered McDonald's delivery because the stench lingers in the elevator for weeks. And what can be more slothful than ordering McDonald's delivery? Doesn't that just defeat, defeat the whole purpose of McDonald's? Aren't you supposed to drive? Isn't the whole purpose you, you, you go to the drive-through? You don't order McDonald's to deliver. There, there are a million places that do delivery. Why would you go to McDonald's? McDonald's being delivered... It, what, what do you want? You want to sit there like Jabba the Hutt in your apartment wearing a moo-moo and ask the delivery guy to chew the Big Mac and then mama bird it into your mouth because eating has become an inconvenience? The convenience food is now where it's chewed and digested for you. This is dangerous. You know, half this country is obese and the other half has an eating disorder. 
McDonald's should not be readily available. And if you want to count the dead bodies piling up, just in terms of body bags, McDonald's in a single day kills more Americans than all the terrorist attacks on U.S. soil during the past 30 years. I'm just talking body bags, right? More dead people because of McDonald's than Al-Qaeda and ISIS combined. I'll even throw in all the mass shootings from domestic white separatists. Put them all on a, all together, McDonald's responsible for more, more body bags than all of them combined, which is why McDonald's was the last American company to pull out of Russia. They just pulled out. They stayed behind as part of the war effort. McDonald's is like the Marines, first one in, last one out. In fact, uh, when Vladimir Putin runs out of radioactive polonium-210, he has his special agents dip their umbrella tips into a quarter pounder. That seems to do the job because McDonald's is lethal. And that's a fact. McDonald's will kill you. It does kill you. McDonald's kills you. If you're talking body bags, only body bags, then McDonald's has killed more Americans than Hitler. McDonald's has killed more Americans than Hitler. 70 years of McDonald's means 70 years of hundreds of thousands of body bags each year in America from McDonald's because they cause, contribute to diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, strokes, and of course, crippling long-term illnesses that cost our economy billions of dollars each year, all because of a Big Mac. And then there's the planet, all the cow burps spewing greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases like methane into the atmosphere that just gets trapped and then traps the sunlight along with it. All that just so you can eat that Big Mac. And don't forget the rainforests, our planet's lungs, the rainforests being raised to make room for cattle, and of course, the fresh water that gets wasted. The fresh water takes anywhere between 4,000 to 18,000 gallons of water to produce one single Big Mac. I didn't believe that. And then it was explained to me. You have to think of all the water used to grow the soybeans, to feed the cow, and all the water you need to clean the cow and make sure that the cow has something to drink and you want to make the cat fat, cow fat. And uh, I don't think there's cat in a Big Mac, but you never know. Uh, you, you, you want to make the cow fat. It's, that's water. And then there's all the water to clean up after the cow has been slaughtered. I, I hear some slaughterhouses actually clean up after they, they kill a cow. That's 4,000 to 18,000 gallons of water to make a single Big Mac, which is why after you eat a Big Mac, all that comes out of you is water. 4,000 to 18,000 gallons of water for every Big Mac you eat comes pouring out of you, right? You've, you've, you remember what it's like to 
eat a Big Mac. About an hour later, you're on the phone with your gastroenterologist telling him, you might as well give me a colonoscopy, colonoscopy tomorrow. I'm prepped. Whew. No six o'clock guest. Show hasn't started yet. Um, uh, has not started. Just killing time to make sure uh, I can actually do the show because I had uh, Chipotle today. We we may have to cancel today's show on account of Chipotle, or maybe it's going to be a rain delay. Let me just check the equipment. Want to make sure all systems are not go. Okay. I think I can continue. <sighs> I need to get out of the city. I, I really do. I, I, I got a taste of it for 48 hours, and it reminded me of the Fresh Air Fund. Uh, I need nature, any kind of nature. In New York City, I think, I don't know, I just know about New York City, they have something called the Fresh Air Fund for impo impoverished youth. It's it's like they started in the 19th century. My dad grew up dirt poor in the Bronx, and he was the beneficiary of the Fresh Air Fund. They would put kids, they still do, they put kids on buses and bring them up to the Catskills for 48 hours so these kids can get some fresh air. And then they quickly bring these kids back to the city where they spend the next 363 days comparing the sylvan woods, the breathable oxygen, visible skies, to the toxic melange of sulfites and gases, the working poor and their bedraggled children of New York pathetically refer to as air. You get 48 hours a year of fresh air in the Catskills. That's it, the Fresh Air Fund. And it is typically American. Look, we know the air in the city stinks. We know you're breathing in cockroach skin, mouse hair. And look, we know two thirds of you will be dead by the age of 20 from tuberculosis and polio. We get that, but we're not going to fix that. What we're going to, what we have to offer you is we, we take you out of New York City for 48 hours, once a year, so you really get to see just how staggeringly putrid your life truly is. That's the ethos behind the Fresh Air Fund, because every child deserves breathable oxygen 48 hours a year. Give to the Fresh Air Fund. Don't clean the air in New York City. Give to the Fresh Air Fund so kids can get 48 hours of breathable air a year. That's what my father, that's how my father grew up. 48 hours a year. He wasn't breathing in lead gasoline or freshly smelted aluminum from the mill that was downwind. Simpson Street in the Bronx. He grew up right next door to Fort Apache. Poor guy. Waited until he was 17. He had to wait till World War II broke out for him to get out of the Bronx. That's what happened. He was 17 and he enlisted in the Navy, uh, probably because he wanted to breathe fresh air. The guy, had to go to the, go fight in the Pacific to sample clean, breathable air. And then just when he got comfortable on the deck of the USS Norton, 
a kamikaze would kick up a spicy cloud of benzene and rotting flesh, and he'd say, wow, it feels like I'm back in the Bronx. My father would tell me about the Great Depression, 48 hours a year of breathable air. That was his childhood. 48 hours a year of breathable air. That's all he got. The Fresh Air Fund would take him up to the Catskills. They would say, okay, hurry up, breathe in. And then they all had to hold in their lungs for 363 days before they could get back up to the Catskills to let it all out, breathe it in again, hold it for 363 days, and wait till they could get up to the Catskills or enlist to fight in World War II. So he enlisted right, a right after Pearl Harbor be because of the Bronx. He lived in the Bronx. He saw newsreels of Pearl Harbor burning and thought, looks just like the Bronx. I I'm going to go join the Navy. And then he comes home and they immediately want him to go fight in Korea. And because of his leftist political leanings, he and his wife, my mother, they lived in the shadows, terrified of Joe McCarthy. And growing up, growing up, I would hear these these horror stories of their life. Great Depression, World War II, poverty, the blacklist. And they would tell me these stories over and over again. I was barely two years old. And they, oh, it just nonstop about the war and writing letters for the Red Cross. And I remember saying, wow, mom, dad, I am so grateful that I am not the pathetic losers you are. Your life obviously sucks. War, depression, pollution, the Red Scare. You are losers. And thanks for telling me all about this stuff, because now I totally get the power dynamic at play here. I am clearly the alpha among the three of us. I am clearly the alpha because you two are losers. Now, Dad, you change my diaper and Mom, go see if there's any more breast milk in the fridge. I feel a thirst coming on. A little the way I was raised. The show still has not started. My six o'clock canceled and then we couldn't fill it. By the way, I threw the burrito bowl out. Uh, I didn't, I ordered or odored a burrito bowl from Chipotle. I ate like a quarter of it and just threw it out. Now for the uninitiated, a burrito bowl it's kind of interesting. It's a new thing, a burrito bowl. And this is not a football game that's played in Mexico. That's a whole other. Uh, a burrito bowl is a burrito without the tortilla wrapping. This is fascinating. Instead of the tortillo, instead of the tor tortilla, the burrito is served in a cardboard bowl and here's the thing. It's really interesting. You're not supposed to eat the cardboard bowl. It's, it turns out they didn't replace one edible tortilla wrapping with an edible cardboard wrapping. The bowl, the bowl is not edible, but they don't tell you that. 
They just call it a burrito bowl. And when I think burrito, I think everything around the burrito, the entire package, the entire presentation can be eaten. That's the whole point of a burrito. You hold it in your hands and eat the whole thing. But no, when you get the burrito without the tortilla wrap, you are pretty much negating the entire definition of a burrito. And I didn't know this at first, right? I thought, okay, you eat the bowl. No, you don't eat the bowl. A burrito bowl, very misleading, and they should, they should warn you when you order a burrito bowl that you don't eat the bowl. A burrito without the warm blanket of tortilla swaddling the ingredients is not a burrito. It's an accident waiting to happen, and hopefully you can make it to the restroom on time, and they should tell you the bowl is not edible. Turns out the reason they call it a burrito bowl is because that's where you end up spending the next six days on the bowl. Well, that's almost a half hour. By the way, the show <laughs> has not started. We don't have a six o'clock guest. I killed about 25 minutes there. I was talking to my son last night, and he's a bit of a world traveler. He's still young, and he wants to see the world. He told me that because I want to get out of the city, instead of the Fresh Air Fund, turns out I'm too old for the Fresh Air Fund, he suggested Cuba. He says it's a great place to visit. He says it's an, it's an Eden uh, and you should go there before it's destroyed by capitalism. He told me the Cuba, he's been there a couple of times, and he, he told me it's a great place to visit, but they don't allow you to flush toilet paper down the drain. It is against the law in Cuba, I didn't know this, to flush toilet paper down the drain. So I said to him, oh, because it's a police state and they want to see your papers. They, they inspect everything. They, he said, no, 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 it's a plumbing issue. It has nothing to do with it being a police state. You are not allowed to flush toilet paper because in Cuba, it clogs up the system. So you must put dirty toilet paper into a garbage can. And I'm thinking, what's to stop dirty toilet paper from clogging up the garbage can? doesn't make any sense. Why don't you just flush it? You either make, it? It seems like a ridiculous law. You, you replace one choke point with another. And what's to stop us, the tourists coming to Cuba and mixing toilet paper into our meal so we have a self-wiping papitas fritas? If you mix in a little toilet paper, it's what we call a self-cleaning Ropa vieja. Just something to think about. Eating toilet paper if they won't let you flush it when you visit Cuba. But apparently it's not just Cuba. He told me that he goes to Greece and there too. He loves Greece. But the one downside is you can't flush the toilet paper. To which I thought, you know what? I'll look at a picture of the Parthenon instead. 
I really don't need to see the Parthenon that badly. I'd like to see it, but not if I have to suffer that. And why didn't I know this? Did you know this, that you're not allowed to flush toilet paper in Greece? That you have to put it off? Like when you walk into a restroom in Greece, all the dirty toilet paper is in a garbage can? Did you know this? I watch Rick Steves. I love Rick Steves. I've been watching Rick Steves for decades. He didn't tell me about this. He's warned me about foreign pickpockets, hidden fees at youth hostels, how to avoid bed bugs, what to do about hotels that lose your reservation. Decades of travel advice. Not once did Rick Steves mention that you're not allowed to wipe your butt in Greece. The birthplace of democracy, and nobody's allowed to wipe their butt. I'm going to stay home. I'm not a world traveler. I get it. I get it. I don't like to travel. I'm pretty much a shut-in. But I'm pretty sure if you told Ferdinand Magellan, hey, you're going to have a great trip, Ferd. You're going to see people and places that are beyond your imagination. You're going to taste spices and smell perfumes that will make your head spin. But I got to warn you, just one downside. For the entire trip, you can't wipe your ass. I'm almost certain Ferdinand Magellan is going to say, on second thought, I'll just watch Rick Steve. I'll watch Rick Steves do it. Let him go. That's what Ferdinand Magellan would say. He would say, apparently Rick Steves isn't so hung up on this whole butt wiping thing. As for me, I don't know. Maybe I have OCD or something, but I need to wipe my butt. Seems important to me. So I'll just let Rick Steves be the first one to navigate the Straits of Magellan instead of me. Call it the Straits of Rick Steves. I'm going to stay home, sitting on my couch, my clean spotless couch. What is, seriously, I mean, what is out there to be seen in the world that is so important that you forego wiping? And I told my son, don't ever call me again. I, I'm repulsed. You repulse me. You disgust me. This is the first time I'm finding out that my grown son went to Cuba and, and Greece and wasn't flushing toilet paper after the years I spent training him for nothing. Okay, show hasn't started yet. I think it's starting. Hang on. No, it's gas. See, I thought the show was just about to start and it, it was a false alarm. And we wonder why my six o'clock guest canceled and we couldn't find anyone to replace that person. Why would someone not want to be associated with a class act like David Feldman? All right. We've killed enough time here. I think... Uh, it's uh, time to start. By the way, you know why Chipotle loads their salsa? Uh, they load their uh, 
burritos and they're food with salsa and onions and garlic. You know why, that, why there's lots of garlic and onions in Chipotle food? So you end up thinking it's the onions and garlic that are giving you the distress, but it's not. It's something far worse. Onions and garlic are just the scapegoats when the real villain in all this is an actual scapegoat. That's how they make the sofritas over at Chipotle with a scapegoat. That's what they cut up and put into the sofritas. A baby scapegoat. They cook a scapegoat that has wandered through the desert for five years, taking in all the sins and moral impurities of the universe. And they serve it up to you and call it sofritas at Chipotle. The scapegoat, that's how they rolled back in the day. Moses would set a goat free in the desert for a couple of years. After that goat had sucked in all the Jewish people's impurities and moral trespasses. This is true. That's what a scapegoat means. That's what a scapegoat. I think it's Leviticus. And we're not talking about Glade air freshener that covers up human stench. I'm saying a scapegoat, read the Bible, a scapegoat was like a Dyson air purifier that just sucked in all the poison and it stayed inside the scapegoat. And that's how the Jews felt clean. Uh, thanks to the scapegoat. That, that's the truth. Right? Read the Bible, read Leviticus. The Jews invented the scapegoat and then they spend 4,000 years asking, why are we always the scapegoat? Why, why, why are they always scapegoating the Jews? Well, there wouldn't be any scapegoats, you asshole, if you didn't invent it. We invented the scapegoat, but goes around, comes around. Welcome to the mop up for March 10th, 2022. I'm barely David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 45 degrees and cloudy. Well, uh, I want to clarify some of the things I've been saying on this show about the situation in Ukraine. We will be back right after this. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. He'll tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. 
Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. I was Professor Mike Steinal. Then again, I wish I was anybody other than myself. Well, I want to clarify some of the things I said on this show, and I have been saying about the situation in Ukraine, which is very serious. If I said anything dogmatic, I apologize. I really do. If I stated, I was a little rude to Dave Cyrus, and I apologize. If I stated something with absolute moral and intellectual certitude about Russia, Ukraine, and America, then I am sorry. There are some things I am certain of. And on this show, I try, most of the time I fail, but I try to listen to informed people. And I try to put them on the show and listen. I try not to interrupt them. I try to learn. I try to give the audience facts. And, you know, we filter through our leanings, our biases. But one thing I want to know when I have people on the show is why someone thinks the way they do without judgment. I'm always curious, why does somebody think a certain way? And I don't want to judge. I just want to understand why do you think this way? There is a dearth of critical thinking in America because most Americans have not been trained by the Jesuits who encourage their students to perform thought exercises. I am the beneficiary of Orthodox Hebrew school. Until I went, I went to Orthodox Hebrew school three times a week. And the Jesuits, I think they were Jesuits, trained me to perform thought exercises. Maybe, maybe they weren't Jesuits, but something like Jesuits. And so often on this show, I ask all of us to perform thought exercises that are not the defense of evil. It's just trying to arrive at the why of evil. Many Americans are incapable of going there. Now, between 1932 and 1933, 13% of the Ukrainian population starved to death. Joseph Stalin did this. This is, this is a fact. The New York Times uh, won a Pulitzer reporting from Moscow those years. Many think that the, the Pulitzer should be revoked because they never mentioned that 13% of Ukrainian kuliaks were starving to death because of Joseph Stalin collectivizing and shutting down privately owned farms. That's a fact. Man-made famine, not because of drought, famine by design. Conservatively speaking, 4 million Ukrainians, kulaks, peasants who owned property, I guess, they starved to death, even resorted to cannibalism. It was slow motion genocide of the Ukrainian people who back then were part of the Soviet Union. I condemn mass slaughter. Obviously, it's evil. All of us do. Unfortunately, that's where most Americans stop. Critical thinking demands the question, why? But in America, we don't ask why, because asking why suggests that there's a possible excuse for evil. And because we frame every narrative with some sort of religious dogma or, or connotation, 
our history, our conversations are built on faith as opposed to truth. And that's why religion or any strong belief, any dogmatic belief is dangerous because faith, strong belief will always corrupt the truth. Propaganda, strong faith begets propaganda. Look, the Holocaust, evil. We know Hitler killed six million Jews. We know he gassed the LGBTQ, communist Catholics, and all his political opponents. It's black and white. It's evil. But asking why he did it, asking why, what was he thinking? What were the German people thinking doesn't condone the atrocities. Why does this person hate gypsies, right? That is an unreasonable question to ask in America. Why did Hitler hate, hate German? Uh, why, well, he hated Germans. Why did he hate the Jews? And I've been told anti-Semitism is a mental disorder. Racism is a mental disorder. Don't bother searching for the why because you're dignifying it. It doesn't matter why. Don't dignify it. Why does somebody hate homosexuals? doesn't matter. It's evil. Just don't ask. Many Americans fear the why because they're afraid that understanding the why, the roots of this evil, they're afraid that it might possibly lead us down a path towards compassion, understanding, or possibly conversion to that evil. That once you understand Hitler's venality, why he's venal, you will. Don't read Mein Kampf. And we saw this played out after 9-11. We were never allowed to ask why Osama bin Laden flew two planes into the World Trade Center. George W. Bush framed it immediately as evil. There's no excuse, he said, for evil. It was black and white. We must not ask why they attacked the World Trade Center. Why not? Why were they so afraid 21 years ago of the media saying, why did they do this? Because in that rubble of ground zero, we might unearth the why. And the why might unearth a justification for that deadly attack. Not a good justification, but enough of a justification that could lead some Americans down the path of rooting against America or questioning America. Don't touch it. Do not question why. It's evil. Leave it alone. For the record, I was against 9-11. Okay? All of it against it and the aftermath and all of the aftermath. I was against 9-11. We didn't deserve it. Okay. Two weeks after 9-11, Rudy Giuliani spoke before the United Nations. I know it's hard to believe, but you know, 21 years ago, Rudy was America's mayor. Believe it or not, he of all people was the lone voice of reason while the rest of the city and the country, including President Bush, were all prairie-dogging their common sense. Uh, Rudy spoke before the United Nations to essentially sell 
Bush's global war on terror. He didn't write that speech at the UN. He was parroting Bush's official response to 9-11, the official framing of the global war on terror. It was, do not ask questions. You're either with us or against us. This is good versus evil. Which side are you on? That's how you sell war. It's the only way to sell war. The other side must be evil. And there is no room for why. No room for why. If you're going to war, no room for why. Why is Osama bin Laden evil? Why is Vladimir Putin evil? Because to ask that question opens a Pandora's box of empathy, understanding, and perhaps even, God forbid, an opportunity to tamp down the violence on their side and ours. We don't want that. We want war because war can only be blind fury. Throwing a punch always comes from a place of moral clarity. Intellectual ambiguity, but moral clarity. You cannot throw a punch in a fistfight unless you have moral clarity. And you must have intellectual ambiguity. And that's why America always seems to be losing so many of its wars. Trillion dollars a year, then we go off the books. We keep losing because we come from a place where morally it's as clear as a bell. Intellectually, there's a lot of ambiguity. Read the Afghanistan papers. I mean, it's like it's like you had people who couldn't read, see, or talk running the war in Afghanistan. Those who studied martial arts know you never bring emotion into conflict. Those who study Taekwondo understand that the battle is won by minimizing damage to oneself and the opponent to bring a swift and deliberate end to the violence on your terms. When you remain clear-headed, your opponent surrenders because they understand they are outmatched. That comes not from intellectual ambiguity, it comes from intellectual clarity. So, looking back at what we now know about the global war on terror, and with the possibility of World War III, let's revisit Rudy Giuliani's words before the UN General Assembly on October 1st, 2001. They are simplistic. Rudy's words are simplistic, and his words would be right at home, coming out of the mouths of Liam Neeson, Clint Eastwood, or anybody else who traffics in revenge fantasies. These are the words that led to our losing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Rudy Giuliani, let's talk about Rudy's words before the UN. These are the words that led to a 20-year failure in Afghanistan, in Iraq, on the world stage that turned us, this global war on terror, turned us into the people who attacked us on 9-11. When you have people like Rudy Giuliani, Dick Cheney, and, and uh, George W. Bush responding with their gut to 9-11, you become as bad as the people who attacked us. In fact, 
maybe worse. I don't know. America's military has killed close to 50,000 innocent civilians in the name of wiping out terrorism. That's 20 times the number of innocent civilians who died tragically on 9-11. That's a fact, whether you like it or not, and I suspect too many Americans like it. I'm beginning to see it in what's going on right now. And it's the idea that somebody must pay. We heard Thomas Friedman say that after 9-11. You know, just put some heads on sticks and say to the Middle East, you want a piece of that? Because we can. Look up Thomas Friedman. Uh, might as well make them innocent. We're going to kill innocent people. Make sure they're from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, any place with people of color. All in the name of fighting a war on terror, which of course is insane. Fighting a war on terror, 21 years, it's still going, is fighting a war on an emotion. Terror, how do you fight a war on terror? It's like fighting a war on greed or envy. George Bush could have said, he could have said terror. He could have said envy. He could have stood before a joint session of Congress and said, ladies and gentlemen, the people who brought down the Twin Towers hate our way of life, which he said. He said they hate us for our freedom. He said that. He said they are jealous of us, which is why tonight I'm declaring a war on jealousy. Could have been terror. That's an emotion. Jealousy is a feeling. A war on envy. To those of you who are envious, we will find you and destroy you at a time of our choosing. That's good, tough talk, right? That makes me feel too messant. A war on envy to countries who provide safe haven to the petty, green-eyed monsters who traffic in je jealousy. We will find you and we will kill you. That would work. Terror, jealousy, war on lust. What about a war on lust? Uh, okay, so declaring war on an emotion is an effective way to get Americans or any country to go to war. And it's an even more effective way to lose that war because you don't know what the F you're doing. We fought a war against an emotion, terror, a feeling. We lost Iraq and we lost Afghanistan. It's not funny. You know, it's, I do like, uh, I shouldn't be laughing. We used emotion. We fought a war using emotion instead of the truth. And the truth is Iraq and Afghanistan didn't attack us. The Taliban didn't attack us, but our blind rage, you, you only throw a punch if you have moral clarity and intellectual ambiguity. Our blind rage, right? Our moral certainty demanded we start killing people. And what we ended up doing is creating more than two countries that did not attack us, but they paid the price for 9-11. We we uh, went into Afghanistan, we went into Iraq, they didn't attack us, and uh, they ended up attacking our soldiers. They didn't attack us, but when we invade, they're going to attack our soldiers because they didn't want us on their soil. And now we have generation after generation of Iraqis and Afghanistan people whose children were killed by our drone strikes. And guess what? 
Guess what happens now? If someone flies a plane into a, a skyscraper in America, remember how they all turned out? Even the Iranians after 9-11 and candle, they held candlelight vigils. Do you really think if somebody flies a plane into the Freedom Tower today, you're going to see candlelight vigils for America around the world? We've lost, after 21 years of this, we've lost our moral authority. The people who see uh, one of our skyscrapers coming down from a terrorist attack, they're going to pretty much feel the same way most of us feel watching shock and, awe, shock and awe. Even worse, some of them, uh, you know, we our drones kill kids. Some, some of uh, these uh, survivors will join a cell and conspire to blow something up here in America because during the global war on terror, we have killed 50,000 innocent civilians. That's according to air wars. See, our military doesn't keep track of the innocent civilians we have killed. Isn't that odd? When, when they get caught killing innocent civilians, it's the New York Times or the Washington Post who uncover it, and they immediately say, our Pentagon says, we take this very seriously. We take this very seriously. Not seriously enough to uh, tell us about it. We have to have journalists uncover it, right? We, or WikiLeaks, but you take it very seriously. Not seriously enough to actually keep count of, conservatively speaking, the 50,000 innocent civilians we have killed according to air wars during this global war on terror. Now, it's horrible. It is horrible that this has been done in our name. Billions spent on these smart bombs, precision guidance systems to ensure maximum damage with little to no collateral damage. That's how Raytheon sells their smart bombs, and yet... Even Raytheon doesn't keep a tab on just how accurate those bombs are. They're, they're selling something, smart bombs, right? You know, destroy but don't kill innocent people. How come nobody in the Pentagon ever calls up Raytheon and says, hey, you know that Storm Eagle smart bomb you sold us? Killed 20 innocent children. We want our money back. Well, why don't they? Why doesn't the Pentagon get their money back from the person who made the precision guidance missile that's not supposed to kill innocent civilians? Uh, you know, if personally, uh, if Raytheon sold me one of those Talon laser-guided rockets and some of these cruise missiles, if you know, they run anywhere between four to eight million dollars each, each. Depends on how many you buy. The Pentagon buys in bulk, so they get a discount, but I'm only buying one. So I'm spending $8 million to uh, fire a smart bomb at Rob Reiner's Malibu compound to take out his computer modem, not to hurt anybody. That's why I'm spending the money on a smart bomb, just to go into Rob Reiner's Malibu compound uh, to take out his computer and his modem and his internet so he never tweets again. And there's, I find out there's collateral damage. 
I don't want that. I'm not paying for collateral damage. I'm paying for precision. I just want Rob Reiner's computer mo modem taken out. I want his internet permanently wiped out so I never have to see one of Rob Reiner's Donald Trump is a soulless bully who must be stopped tweet that gets 50,000 likes and gets retweeted. If that guidance missile does more damage, if that guidance missile that I spent all this money on, if that guidance missile does more than just take out Rob Reiner's internet, then I'm going to call Raytheon and I'm going to say, you know what? Let's escalate this. I want to speak to your manager because I want my $8 million, I want my $8 million back. But not our Pentagon. We fire a cruise missile that hits the wrong target. We call up Raytheon and say, hey, got any more? We need more. We just fired a couple. We need more. By the way, America has 5,550 nuclear warheads ready to go. And there's talk of updating them, spending you know, a couple hundred billion more to update the 5,000 and 550 nuclear warheads, switching the older ones out for new, faster, and stronger ones. This planned obsolescence, right? They always get you with the, the planned obsolescence with these nuclear warheads. It's like Apple. Uh, how do I get in on that grift? That is nothing but a grift. 5,000 550 nuclear warheads like we're going to know if they work or not how do i get in on this do you think anybody uh is going to call hi lockheed martin uh sorry to bother you in the middle of this nuclear conflagration but yeah i know this is a bad time but with it being the second coming of jesus and all that but not trying to be a stickler here but that nuclear bomb we just launched, I believe it's number 403, and the serial number is 8 Roger Roger 64 Roger 7. It did not detonate. No, it just landed. Yeah, nothing. No, not, no, we look, no mushroom cloud, nothing. Uh huh. No, we maintained the detonation system exactly as it says in the manual. No, no, it has not, my kids have not dropped it. No, and, and we, kept, we kept it out of the rain. There's no moisture. What do I want? I want you to either replace this nuclear warhead or refund my money. Well, I've tried calling customer service, but the Philippines, the Philippines has been wiped out. No, don't put me on hold. You know what? You know what? Forget it. When this nuclear apocalypse is over, I'm heading for Yelp. I'm going on Yelp and I'm going to let the world know what a horrible company Lockheed Martin is. Good day, sir. How do we know that these nuclear warheads actually work? You know, this is America. Everybody's a scam artist here. You know, half of our nuclear warheads don't work. And there's only one way to really find out if all our nuclear warheads work, but Trump is no longer president. So we're going to have to take their word. We're never going to get to see if all our nuclear warheads work because Donald Trump was not reelected. What a great scam Lockheed Martin has going, selling something that if the customer 
uses the thing you're selling and it doesn't work, they can't return it because they're dying. It's genius. Anyway, critical thinking. Rudy Giuliani, I was talking about Rudy Giuliani, going before the UN General Assembly two weeks after 9-11. And this is what he said. He said, you're either with civilization or with terrorists. On one side is democracy, the rule of law, and respect for human life. 50,000 dead civilians. On the other is tyranny, arbitrary execution, and mass murder. 50,000 dead civilians. That's what uh, Rudy said before the UN, October 1st, 2001. Moral clarity. No, no intellectual clarity. This is the guy who ended up as Donald Trump's attorney, by the way. He goes on, we are right and they are wrong. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as Eric Trump. It's as simple as that. We are right and they are wrong. That's how you throw a punch. Moral clarity, not intellectual clarity. Moral clarity. We are right and they are wrong. That is why I started by apologizing for any intellectual and moral certitude that I have had about Ukraine and Russia and America, because we are right and they are wrong is a recipe for Armageddon. Rudy says at the UN, there are no gray areas. There are no gray areas because Rudy applied just for men, which I believe at the time of this speech didn't run down the side of his head trying to find a place to hide out of embarrassment. Uh, there are no gray areas. And he went on to say, by the way, and by the way, this was 2001 when Rudy still had one of his marbles. He still had one of his marbles. He said, the terrorists are wrong and in fact evil. Yay. And the crowd went, you know, the UN General Assembly went crazy. He was talking about Al-Qaeda when he said, they're evil. He wasn't talking about New York City cops who, under his direction, would shove a broom handle up a suspect's rectum and shout, it's Rudy time. That's New York City cops under Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor. If you were a person of color and if you heard the cops shout, it's Rudy time, you weren't going to jail. You were going to the hospital. And that's the truth. And they used to shout, it's Rudy time. It's called broken window policing. And the way broken window policing works is New York City cops patrol neighborhoods populated by people of color, people who are poor. And the cops look for broken windows and then reach their hands inside to see what they can steal for themselves. Bernard Carrick, Rudy, Rudy's police commissioner, ended up going to prison, just so you know. Bernard Carrick, Bernard Carrick, Bernard Carrick. It's everything you need to know about the Republican Party, everything. The Republican Party from the year 2000 all the way through the Republican Party today, Bernard Carrick. They have not changed. Bernard Carrick 
is an example of how the Republican Party has never changed. Bernard Carrick, this high school dropout, and by the way, if you drop out of high school, you cannot rise uh, in the New York City Police Department unless you're Bernard Carrick, high school dropout, who becomes police commissioner. That's against the rules. You have to graduate from high school. I think you also have to graduate from college. But Bernard Carrick, high school dropout, became Rudy's Commissioner Gordon, and he got caught. Let's start off easy here. He caught caught bringing women up to an apartment that had been set aside only for the people clearing the rubble at 9-11. Think of what an asshole you have to be. There are guys working 48 hours straight, cleaning, looking for their friends, and they you know what they went through, guys working around the clock. And so the city said, you know, we should provide an apartment for these guys to nap, shower, clear their heads. But sometimes the apartment was unavailable because the police chief, Bernard Carrick, was too cheap to spring for a cozy eight motel so he could cheat on his wife. He was bringing women up to that apartment. So guys cleaning ground zero didn't get to use the apartment because Bernard Carrick, high school dropout, wanted to bang his several mistresses. So in 2004, a guy with that kind of character, George W. Bush had no choice but to nominate Bernard Carrick to be Secretary of Homeland Security. But two weeks into the screening process after the nomination, the name was removed after they discovered he was hiring undocumented workers to take care of his kids. Seriously, that was the reason Bernard Carrick. That's what they said, oh, undocumented worker. They did all the oppo research in preparation for the hearings to confirm Bernard Carrick as head of Department of Homeland Security. And the only thing they found was the illegal nanny. Here's a little tip. Anytime someone withdraws their nomination because of the old, I had an undocumented nanny taking care of my children, that is the graceful exit. It's the tip of the iceberg. When they say, you know what, I didn't pay Social Security on my undocumented nanny. What they really mean is they found out about the hard drive with my secret stash of photographs I took on all those camping trips uh, I did with the Boy Scouts. So uh, I'm just going to say I didn't pay Social Security on the nanny, and let's leave it at that. They... <laughs> They did about as much research into Bernard Carrick to be Homeland Security as they did into the invasion of Iraq. This is how stupid and corrupt the Republican Party has always been. George Bush did not know there was a difference between Shiites and Sunnis. And he said, let's go into Iraq. He ginned up a war on Iraq and he should be sitting next to Vladimir Putin in The Hague. So I continue, Carrick, right after the illegal invasion of Iraq in 2003, Bernard Carrick, before Homeland Security, 
they named him police commissioner of Iraq. He was in charge of all the police in Iraq during and after the invasion. This is the guy who George W. Bush made police commissioner of Baghdad and Iraq. And while he was there, right? This is before they nominated him to be Homeland Security. He's in Iraq. Before he's nominated, he gets caught taking an illegal $250,000 interest-free loan from an Israeli billionaire, a, a something like a $300,000 gift from a real estate tycoon in New York City. There's a war going on, 9-11, they're setting up a police department in Baghdad for Bernard Carrick to be in charge of. But somehow, police commissioner Bernard Carrick finds the time to arrange a $250,000 interest-free loan from an Israeli billionaire, another gift of a couple hundred thousand dollars from a real estate tycoon. Long rap sheet short, Carrick convicted did some time pardoned by Donald Trump on his way out of the White House. But here's the thing. All that stuff was done. All those crimes were committed before George W. Bush decided, let's put this guy in charge of Homeland Security. No research into his past. Well, why would you expect, why would you expect George W. Bush to know that Bernard Carrick was a criminal if you didn't know there was a difference between Sunnis and Shiites before you invaded Iraq. That is your Republican Party. That is your criminal Republican Party. I, I you know, this is an example of me defending Joe Biden. Carrick sentenced to about four years in prison for felony tax evasion and perjury. Uh, and he did time pardoned by a fellow grifter, uh, Donald Trump. Meanwhile, while all that, before all that was going on, Giuliani is before the, the United Nations. And in no uncertain terms, he says, those who practice terrorism, murdering or victimizing innocent civilians lose any right to have their cause understood by decent people and lawful nations. America killed 50,000 innocent civilians past 21 years. We killed 50,000 innocent civilians. We've killed 50,000 innocent civilians since Rudy Giuliani spoke the, those words, not to mention the millions of refugees in Iraq and Afghanistan, but let's enforce, let's get a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Now, I'm guilty of aboutism, right? We always call, you know, what aboutisms, right? Uh, an example of a what aboutism that I don't approve of is Putin bombed a maternity ward, uh, a hospital where babies are being kept evil. And it would be wrong to say, well, what about the seven kids we killed in that drone strike last summer on our way out of Afghanistan? Uh, go F yourself if you say that. It's wrong to bring that up 
because both mass slaughters are wrong. Both are evil. And you know what? You know who said this best? The great Rudy Giuliani at the UN in 2001. He said, the era of moral relativism must end. Moral relativism, relativism doesn't have a place in this discussion and debate. There's no moral way to sympathize with grossly immoral actions. And by so doing, and by trying to do that, unfortunately, a fertile field has been created in which terrorism has grown. Rudy said we need to put an end to moral relativism, which in some ways is the whataboutisms, right? Sort of. Different side of the coin, but in the neighborhood. These are big thoughts uh, for Rudy's bibulously addled mind uh, that has been stewing in early times Kentucky bourbon since he was born. Uh, moral relativism is different than what about isms, but they're they're close. Moral relativism dates to some ancient Greeks who maintained that while morality can be broken down to good and bad, the, uh, the definition of good and bad, the morality behind that will differ among cultures. And so we have to understand moral relativism says our culture might think this is bad, but their culture doesn't. And we should accept that culture's morality, right? And, and Rudy was saying, we have to put an end to that kind of thinking. In other words, and I think Rudy, I think he's right. I think he's right. Um, killing 50,000 innocent civilians in a global war on terror would appear horrendous to say the Iraqis or the people of Afghanistan. And a, a practitioner of moral relativism might try to convince the people of Iraq or Afghanistan that by complaining about American drones killing everyone in their wedding party, their kids, if you're complaining about that, you are applying your sense of morality to America's sense of morality, and that's unfair. When a mother stands over her husband and child who've just been taken out by an armed drone, and she's wailing and crying and demanding revenge. She is, in fact, being insensitive to the American view of right and wrong. She is culture shaming. That's what, if you practice moral relativism, when we bomb somebody, somebody's home, right? and they clench their fists and shake it at the skies and scream, God will get you. That's culture shaming because their definition of right and wrong could be different from ours and they should respect ours. Uh, if she takes up arms to attack America for killing her husband and child, if she attacks America, then she's guilty of cultural appropriation. That's something Americans do. We act out of revenge. 
revenge killings, uh, that's cultural appropriation. You're taking what we do from us, and it's not right, it's unfair. So uh, that's what somebody who believes in moral relativism might suggest. But Rudy, to his credit, says the age of moral relativism is, uh, is over. And there's just right and there's just wrong. And it just simplifies everything. So we should respect Rudy Giuliani for his speech before the UN, where he said, there's good and there's, there's bad. Well, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, never ask in America why someone did something evil. Just aim and fire. You're not allowed to ask why. And in a moment of weakness right after 9-11, George W. Bush reportedly asked, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? That's the question a five-year-old would ask. A five-year-old sees the World Trade Center coming down, and a five-year-old asks, why would somebody do this? Why do they hate us? And George W. Bush, the mind of a five-year-old, uh, Margaret Thatcher famously told that five-year-old's father, George Herbert Walker Bush, right before he invaded Iraq the first time, Margaret Thatcher said, remember, George, this is no time to go wobbly. You know, get in there, invade. Now, Dick Cheney was defense secretary at the time. He insists Thatcher never said that to the first President Bush. He says it's apocryphal. And when has Dick Cheney ever lied about the lead up to a war in Iraq? So it's probably apocryphal. I'll go with Cheney. Uh, but baby Bush W. asked, why do they hate us? And it's the wrong question to ask after 9-11 here in America. The question is, why do you hate them? There's a war that must be fought. So get going on why you hate them. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson was Secretary of State Colin Powell's, I think he was his chief of staff over at the State Department in the run-up to the illegal invasion of Iraq. And he said on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour about a month ago that after 9-11, uh, he was working in a White House consumed by hatred and anger, essentially uh, moral clarity intellectual ambiguity. They were humiliated that the towers came down on their watch. This is what Colonel Wilkerson said. And uh, they were especially humiliated that the Pentagon got hit. And think about how humiliating it is to have a plane flown into our Defense Department. What does that say about a Defense Department that can't keep, that can't defend itself? And, uh, and it was terrorism. So they were coming from anger and humiliation, not a good starting point uh, for terrorism, which is what it was. It wasn't an act of war. It was an act of terrorism. And the White House knew exactly who it was on 9-11 and what it was 
It wasn't a declaration of war. It was an act of terrorism. It's why Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary, immediately went outside and helped search for bodies and clear the rubble instead of immediately manning the battle stations because he knew it was a terrorist attack, not a declaration of war. It was the worst terrorist attack ever on American soil, but it wasn't a declaration of war, which is why George Bush kept reading My Pet Goat. Right? He knew it was a terrorist attack. They knew what it was, who did it, and the idea that suddenly America was under attack and we were going to war with an enemy never occurred to anyone because it was a terrorist attack. Bush and Rumsfeld didn't think it was war at first. It was a bad terrorist attack, a really bad terrorist attack committed by terrorists. And after a terrorist attack, as John Kerry said in 2004 during the debates, you bring in the police, you bring in intelligence agencies, and you find the people behind it. But it's not an act of war. That's why it's called terrorism. Stateless actors killing innocent civilians. Stateless actors, right? Pearl Harbor, we knew the Japanese attacked us. Ukraine knows Russia attacked. After 9-11, no country attacked us. There was no place to invade after 9-11. We were attacked by stateless terrorists who shapeshift throughout the Middle East and throughout uh, Southeast Asia. They go into Afghanistan, then to Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Syria, everywhere but, of course, Iraq, which we said they did. They were nowhere to be found in Iraq, but we ended up fighting the war there. Al-Qaeda was everywhere and nowhere. There was no country to invade, but that didn't stop Bush from forcing us to spend the next 20 years occupying Iraq and Afghanistan, waterboarding and torturing and killing innocent civilians. 20 years ago, Bush asked, why do they hate us? Well, now we can answer that question for him. It's because we fought a war on global terror for 20 years that didn't just cost us a fortune, didn't just cost us lives, it cost us our moral authority. And it cost us how we perceive this country. The first thing I should have said is it cost us the lives of innocent people. Then it cost us a fortune. Look at where we're at now. Flag-waving patriots openly hate their country. They This is how effed up the global war on terror is. You have people screaming USA and waving their flag and invading the Capitol. You, that's how schizophrenic America has become from this global war on terror. You have people who think the patriotic thing to do is hate this country. You can't fight a war for 20 years, a wrong war, and come out of it sane. So Rudy's right. Moral relativism is evil. Evil is evil. It's wrong when they do it. It is wrong when we do it. And we are paying a horrible price for the sins we have committed overseas.
we have committed sins overseas for 20 years. Putin is doing horrible, horrible things to Ukraine. And the Biden administration right now is working on a criminal referral to the International Criminal Court. There are members of the Biden administration who want Putin and his generals brought before The Hague. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Only one little problem. America is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court for one reason. If we were signatories to the International Criminal Court, it wouldn't just be Vladimir Putin going before The Hague. It would have been Dick Cheney, Condi Rice, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. So we can't be signatories of the International Criminal Court. It's going to be a pretty shaky case to make that we're going to bring Vladimir Putin before The Hague and try him for things that some of our leaders uh, might be guilty of, might be guilty of. Uh, I say this, I have to wrap it up. I say this because I am filled with hatred and anger and rage most of my day. I understand why punches get thrown and I understand why wars get fought. That doesn't mean I understand evil. I understand the evil inside of me, but it's wrong. I understand why people want to fight, but you look at what's going on right now in Ukraine and it's a horror show. It's a horror show. Maybe, just maybe, we tamp down our animal urges for revenge. Maybe we've fought enough wars. Maybe before we do a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine, diplomacy, minimize the violence, Try everything first. Do not act for moral certitude. If we go to address this Ukraine, pro the war, with moral certitude, which we always do, and intellectual ambiguity, we're fucked. We're fucked. There's no need to rush into anything. We need to help the Ukrainian people and get rid of Vladimir Putin, who is evil. But slow down and don't come from a place of moral certitude. Come from a place of intellectual certitude. Learn the facts. Know what's really happening and why. Ask yourself why is this happening just because you ask why somebody is thinking a certain way it doesn't mean you think they're correct well one person who is correct who has moral and intellectual certitude is our friend christian smalls you're listening to the david feldman show 
We'll be back. Chairs in this Bessemer shop. The back and out day don't ever seem to stop. A man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. AmazonLaborUnion.org. We may have union, a union shop at the Amazon Fulfillment Center out by JFK, Staten Island. John Ross, are you there? And can I'm you here. can you turn your video on? It said that I couldn't because you wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Oh, there it is. oh good. Okay. 
Jesus. Okay. I would have had it. I would, I would like, I don't know who's running this thing, but I would like to cede my time to the gentleman from the air shaft overlooking a parking garage. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I got it. I got an email that said, uh, asked me to do the show at six o'clock. I was like, yeah, all right. Then I get another email that says, uh, he needs you at six thirty. And I look and I see that the show started at five and there was nobody else on. You needed another 30 minutes. You needed to do 90 well, minutes. Well, we didn't have a 6.30. We had you at six, but we didn't have a 6.30. So I figured wow. I'll just kill a half hour. <laughs> kill is right. <laughs> you, 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 you cluster bomb that half hour. <laughs> well, you know. Usually, you should be brought up for war crimes. <laughs> oh, my God. What, did you see the first half hour? I didn't. I'm sorry. It was pretty I, bad. I'm <laughs> it sure it was all the same. Look, I don't want to. Um, I guess I do. Uh, Go ahead. I, there, well, there's a word you keep using. There's this this concept that you keep coming back to. And I need you to explain to me precisely what it is. You keep referring to compromise. What, like, literally, what is the compromise? Like, there is nothing. What is the thing that they're going to show that it's going to change anybody's mind or it's going to hurt anybody? Like, what, what, Lindsey Graham? What, what? They're going to show a picture? Forget, forget, you could show a video. Forget it. You could show a hologram of him eating out a 14-year-old boy's ass with a spoon. <laughs> and it's like, nobody's going to care. Nobody cares. There's... Yeah. Uh, oh, what, they're going to show that Trump uh, did illegal financial stuff. They've got that. It, it doesn't matter. Literally, tell me what's the thing that they're going to show that somebody's going to go, "Ooh, I'm scared." They can't put anybody in jail. You know, Merrick Garland, I think, died, and they're, they're <laughs> trotting him around like Weekend at Bernie's. And you don't mean Sanders. That's right. Maybe. May I address that? Yes. Tell me what is the literally what is the picture or the the they, his tax returns? We've got him. We've got everything. Uh, you can present compromise. There, there are files that you can present that well, what's you, in the file exactly, and you don't have to go public with it. You just have to show it to somebody who will be. You just send it to a wife, a child. I, but everybody knows all this stuff. They're doing it in public, openly. Well, tell me, tell me what literally what's in that file that somebody's going to go. Oh shit! Uh, Nobody can get prosecuted for anything well, in this did country. You, did you see Bill Gates's ex-wife and her interview? on CBS yes. this morning and what she said about Bill Gates's visits to Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Okay. And what happened? And what happened to Bill Gates? Uh, well, he's no longer running Microsoft, by the way. Hey, he was already done running Microsoft. There's an investigation now into his, uh, he was a sexual predator, according to the divorce. And he was having affairs with employees. And there's a an investigation that may cost him a lot of money. Everybody's under investigation. 
Who's not under investigation? Well, let me ask you a question. Who's in jail? Okay, so let me ask you a question. You're Bill Gates, okay. right? Okay. And it's 2018. And I say, I have some files that if your wife saw these, we're not going to go public with this, but you have a, mm -hmm. a daughter, a lovely daughter. It would be a shame uh -huh. if she saw these pictures of you hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. And, uh -huh. he, and, and he would say, what? You're blackmailing me. I'm going to go to the FBI. And I would say, I am the FBI. You can't, <laughs> we've come to you with this. But there's pictures of Donald Trump with Jeffrey Epstein. Doesn't hurt him. But we haven't seen all the pictures. You're acting like you're acting. You're acting like, and I understand what you're saying. You're acting like we're a, a shameless society where everything's out in the open and we have no secrets and we cannot be embarrassed. The truth is, that is how our society works through compromise. You get people to bend based on their secrets. But but the thing is, you, I don't understand. You, you're I creative. don't understand what's secret. They're doing, what's his name? His, uh, M Mitch McConnell, his wife is like just doing dirt. They are just, it is graft and it's all just out there that I don't know what it is the thing that you're going to present to anybody that, that they can't even get a, a, an indictment with these grand juries with evidence that is so open and shut. I want to know what's in the file that's going to prove anything to anybody. Well, I could talk about Lindsey, I, 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 I could talk about Lindsey Graham, but you're an incredibly brilliant man. You have Thank a great you. imagination. We mm -hmm. I think 30 years ago. You and I wrote a screenplay together. I, I and I never, I don't know how it starts or how it ends. I, I didn't want you to ruin it. I just tell me how it ends. You you wrote a brilliant screenplay. You're brilliant. Use your imagination. What do you think I do not want people to know? Everybody, everybody has something that they don't want people to know. There is always and if you see so you're not a predator you're not a predator I, I, but i i just i need give me an example what's what's the use your example? imagination john no Rush. no i can't use my imagination you tell me oh, i'm gonna ask what you is this thing? uh you're you get to a certain age where uh you need more to spice up your sex life Right. Uh, sure. What if what you need to spice up your sex life is personal and private and you don't want your kids to know? What if you have to bring in specialists to make you ejaculate? You don't think that's possible? You know how fluid sexuality is? Every, there, I, there's a lot of things people need to get them off, right? Donald Trump said, I walk up to women and grab them by the pussy. He said that on a tape and he said, I kiss him. I do whatever the hell I want to them. And nothing happened to him. I don't understand That's what the, the thing is that they have. Not everybody is Donald Trump. What now? 
do you remember Lindsey Graham? Let's talk about Lindsey Graham and the sickness of being in the closet. Okay. 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 He was uh, right wing, but he wasn't as depraved as he is now. Right. Uh, he, you know, he for a right wing Republican when McCain was still alive, he was still reprehensible, but he was in the along the guardrails. Occasionally, he did something trustworthy. When he said last week, "We need to assassinate Vladimir Putin," yeah. is that sane? Does that suggest what does that suggest? It suggests that Vladimir Putin has compromise on Lindsey Graham that was handed to Donald Trump. And that compromise is that Lindsey Graham is straight. That's the uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, do you think for one I, second, do you think for one second, Donald Trump gave out Lindsey Graham's home phone number in 2016 on the campaign trail? Remember that? Yes, I do. OK. Wouldn't he start making fun of Missy Graham and start coming up with little nicknames, just just enough to question his masculinity. Don't you think, isn't it a Lady G, as Anne, Professor Ann Lee writes in the chat room, thank you, Lady G. What would happen to Lindsey Graham if Donald Trump started calling him Lady G? Think about it. Well, well, okay, so why didn't he? Because Lindsay went from being- compromised on Donald. No, Lindsay went from oh. being a, a cockhound to a lapdog. Instead of, he, he became Donald Trump's lapdog for one reason and one reason alone, he didn't want to be uh, called Lady, Lady, Lady Lindsay, Lady Graham, Miss, Miss Okay. He hates okay. Lindsey Graham hates being gay. That's why he yeah, won't come out of sure. the closet. Miss Lindsey, as Karen Emerson says, all, that's all Donald Trump has to say is call him Miss Lindsey and he will break. He will. I bet, that's I bet he likes it sometimes. Huh? I bet he likes it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, People. OK, you're not a predator. Forget it. You know what the difference between you and me is? Yeah. What? I Nothing. walk into a room. I'm a predator. And yes. I look around and I try to figure out what's this person hiding? What's uh -huh. what's their deal here? Right? What what you what get gets, it. you get it just like that. Or I find out. Yeah. And yeah. then I let you know that I know and then I have power yeah. over you. <laughs> yeah. Alpha Feldman. I'm a I'm an alpha. Uh, no kidding. How are things going in uh, in Deerfield? I was bragging about you over the yeah, weekend. Oh, no. So, yeah, you, you keep talking about this play date you had in Albany. What uh, I have what, new what, friends who? and we got along well. We play very well together, you know, play biting, but nobody drew blood. And what did what did you do? Well, we hung out, took the, took the train up, which I took you the stay train over. Up. I stayed over. Whoa. Yeah. And wow. they have something resembling a homestead, but it was late at night. Uh, they have 
guinea hens. They have sure, chickens. They, yeah, they, I I would put me in touch with that. I'd love to know how they keep their uh, guinea hens alive because guinea hens are a very um, uh, bad combination of dumb and delicious. <laughs> and so they don't they don't seem to be able to stay away from predators very well. And they, they don't say, sleep in the coop. They say they're loud. They're yes, very they're loud. very loud. They're to me, they're they're funny. Um, the, 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 how loud they are is hilarious, but they're great because they eat ticks. Did they tell you that? They're yes. like tick vacuums. Yes. So right. they keep your property uh, clear of ticks, but uh, they just end up. I had a couple freeze to death because they didn't go in the coop at night. You know, if you I'm told if you raise them with chickens, then they learn to go into the chickens will just go into the coop. They come home to roost. But the the guinea hens would go up in the trees. Sometimes they, you know, hide in a bush and a couple of them on a super cold night. I just found them frozen to death. Right. So you, you, who gets rid of ticks? Uh, the guinea hens. We should know, buy some good. for Steve Mnuchin. He's <laughs> all he does is he's covered in ticks and stuff uh do you want to play or you want to play how old are they i think i can sure. beat you at this let's bring in dan frankenberger our uh we changed some settings here dan so i have yeah there we go please welcome i am quiz master dan and it's time for stump the hump Now, Dan, we celebrate everybody's birthday. It's your job, John Ross, to guess okay. how old they are. Okay. And let's put some money in the kitty. Is that a fistful of dollars? That's four dollars. Ninety years old. <laughs> okay. So let's play stump the hump. All right, go faster. So, uh, John, you're going to go first. You're going to try to guess the age of this person, and then okay. David is going to say higher or lower. The first I say higher is... or lower. And by the way, I always win. Not I'm just sure because did. I see the answers beforehand. That's part of the, but the fact that I can remember the answers. That would is, be the trick. No, I've I not seen. I have no idea who you're talking about. And I show my work, by the way. And I'm going to kick your ass. You're off with in the Wait. Grapefruit League, playing baseball, hitting 90 mile an hour fastballs. I'm going to kick your ass. Nobody beats me. Were these answers kept in a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar? <laughs> you are correct, sir. Yeah, they're Cabernet. <laughs> uh, the first person is Carrie Carrie Underwood. Ooh. Country singer who has won seven Grammy Awards from 2007 to 2015, Carrie and, Underwood. And Kevin Spacey played her in House of Cards. Very good. The Carrie same, Underwood. Same yeah, you're sharp. You're fast. Uh, you, who goes first? Me or, I'll go first. Mr. Ross. I'm, oh, he okay. goes first? Okay. I'm going to say she's been around a while. Say forty-eight. You're gonna say forty-eight. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show my work. 
she was on American Idol, I'm going to say 2004. So that was 20, let's say that was 18 years ago. And at the time, she was probably 18, right wing and uh, waving the flag and like a Sean Hannity devotee, not a fan of Carrie Underwood. Uh, I'm going to say eight and eight, 16, uh, something in the neighborhood of 36. What did you say? I said 48. But oh, I, I have, I have kicked your yeah. cottage cheese cellulite riddled ass. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Off the top of your head, you knew that she did uh, American Idol in 2004? That's like a, a factoid you happen to know? Maybe 2004, 2005. But, but, but honestly, that's just a factoid you know? that I, I don't know if I'm correct. I, I may be wrong. Okay. I'm curious. I, I didn't even know she was on American Idol, so I'm not even 100% sure who she is. So keep going. So I'm going to say she's pushing 40. I'm going to make her 38. But I, I, lower. Uh, I'm going to go with lower. Lower. Yeah. She is 39 years old today. Wow. Almost on the net. Kicking your ass. Kicking your ass. One to nothing. Kicking your ass. Humiliating you. This is, you know, my fantasy is to get into a fist fight in, like in front of your wife, like a good good looking yeah. woman and beat you and then you're down on the ground and then i kiss you on the lips and i do uh, a johnny sack remember johnny sack beats the guy up he and, pees, and then he uh, yeah. pees on him and while i'm ping i look at your beautiful 25 year old girlfriend after i've kissed you and then peed on you yeah. go ahead next one that, 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 that's exactly what i feel is happening right now <laughs> That's how I feel. Stump the Humpty Aristocrats version. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting you mentioned fighting. David, you're, you're up on this one. The next uh, person is Chuck Norris. Which, which, can someone explain to me why we're not just sending him into Ukraine to end this whole thing? Uh, not enough hair. It'd be, over, it'd, be over, it'd be over in half a day. Why do why do we have a Chuck Norris if we're not going to use him? Because <laughs> he's afraid of Steven Seagal. <laughs> that would make a great movie. <laughs> Steven Seagal versus Chuck Norris. How old is Chuck Norris? We have six minutes. How old is Chuck Norris? Oh, I have to guess. It's me. Yes. yes. Okay. And no help from the chat room. Uh, okay. So, two thousand and seven. He was old. And that was 14, <laughs> 2007 would, was 14 years ago, three, 13, 15 years ago. I'm going to say, believe it or not, ooh, this is tough. I'm going to say in 2007, he was 65. I'm just guessing. I know he endorsed McCain in 2007. I think he did. I'm going to add 15. I'm going to I'm going to lose this 80. I'm going to put you in a, a difficult boat because he he it's he's definitely in the 80 range. So you have to go higher or lower. I'm going to say 80. Oh, he's much younger than that. I would say he's like 
72. You have to you have to say uh, just lower or higher. Lower, 72. Chuck Norris was born in 1940. He is 82. 82. Oh, I'm kicking your ass. Wow. Hang on, we're getting a call. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I was I was wondering how you could do a, a less interesting segment than the ones you've done, and I'm now you're this? showing me. Yeah, people love this. Oh, do they? We're, okay. we're turning this you're show. Doing... This show. I'm I'm leaving the show to Dan in my will, and <laughs> and he's gonna he's it's just gonna be stump the humps. Okay, uh, so I'm, I'm winning two to son. nothing. John Ham. John Ham. I know Hamm. this. I know this. I don't really. Who is it? Who? You have to guess. John Hamm. This is going to be. John Hamm? Yep. Prominent actor who became known for. Uh, yes, John yes. No, I, uh, I'm going to say John Hamm is 53. <sighs> That's tough. That is tough. Such a great actor. So great. I'm such a fan. Funny. Huh? Very funny. Very funny. Very funny. And I can relate to him, you know, career-wise. And just, you know, a lot of women see me the way they see you. Uh, I don't know if you... I don't know if you ever watched the Between Two Ferns that Zach Galifianakis did, but John Hams is the best because his ability to, like, treat it like... It's this interview that he, you know, he has to do, but he didn't want to do, but he, and he's like trying not to insult the guy, but he's so insulted by what the guy is. He just, he treats it, he plays it so comedically perfect. It's hilarious. My fantasy was to see John Hamm and James Gandolfini in the opposite one another. Because and they, then you, and then you, and then you would pee on both of them. That's right. You got game right. <laughs> uh, okay, John. He, you said how old? Fifty-three. I said. Well, let's see. Uh, Mad Men started in two thousand and seven, so he must have been thirty-two in two thousand and seven. So that was set. Uh, it was let's say seventeen. No, 15 years ago, seven. Wait a second. He was 32 in 2007. How many? That would be 15 years ago. So that would make him. Seven. Just listening to you say numbers, I, I just don't understand how. You said how? How old did you say? I said 53. I I, I think it's higher. It doesn't feel like it. it's got to be higher. I don't know. Is that what you're going with? I'm going to say higher. John Hamm, 1971. He is 51. So what? that's two to one. We have one minute left. The speed I round. I drink your milkshake. This is the speed round. Take the methamphetamines. Okay. Go ahead. This is our speed round. All right, round. Sharon, Sharon Stone. My turn. Sixty-four. Uh, yep. Sixty-four. Ooh. 
That's a good one. I'm going to say higher. You lost. Saldo nailed it. 64. I, I, I knew it was close. You don't think I'm going to know how old Sharon Stone is? What do you think I am, man? All right, let's do, let's do one, Dark, let's do one more down. before the Hershey builds. You, you count the rings. <laughs> that was fun. Right, last, last one, Liza Minnelli. That's John. Oh, it's my turn? Oh, I know this. I saw CBS this morning. She was singing with Michael Feinstein. I know how old she is. She's, exactly. Uh, well, she's got to be at least as old as Chuck Norris, right? Um, though I, that'd be interesting to see who would win in that fight. Um, <laughs> we love I would Liza. Say really. She's 80, 84. It's lower. I'm going to say 77. 76. Wow, so she's she's that much younger than Chuck Norris? Yep. Yeah. And Don't she's, what I know. We love Liza. We love Liza. I'm also hilarious. Have you ever seen her turns on Arrested Development? Hilarious. She's the best. So, so good. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just genetic. It's also learned. You know, it's a pretty amazing. Uh, I love Liza Minnelli. And I'm, she seems to be doing okay. Uh, so that's good. What's well, the final score? So I kicked your ass. I did. You you destroyed me. This, I, this I is this why we play the game because I because I, I, I can't uh, be beaten. I have to wash the uh, virtual pee off of me. <laughs> wash your lips too. Don't forget the lips. Yeah, everything. <laughs> All right, Johnny Ross. Follow this man on Twitter at Fun. Hmm. With friction, we love John Ross. Everybody loves you. We love you here. Yeah, sure. Pe yeah, we get good luck the rest of the show. Uh, and 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 uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, no. Okay. Thank you, Johnny Ross. This is what we're going to do. Great job. It is uh, the top of the hour. I'm doing a much better job not keeping the Hershenfelds waiting. What I'm going to do is we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to because we've changed something in terms of letting people turn on their video. And so let me let's take a quick break. I have to figure out how to turn people's video on. We had a big production meeting uh, yesterday and we changed some settings and I have to go in there. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. I will read uh, the Super Chats when we come back. And Dan, at 7.30, why don't we finish up Community Billboard before Emil comes in? It sounds good. And I can I can uh, let the Hershenfelds turn their video on. You made me host and I didn't even know it. Yeah, I, I think you may have to make them host. Let's take a quick break. We always need to hear from you-know-who, Professor Mike Steinel. I'm traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. To saw bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light, 
I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket Wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book. Large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in LA, and my enemies list. Don't forget. Welcome back to the show. I want to thank some people in the chat room for their super chats. They're helping to pay the bills. 
Midi Doctor, thank you for your super chat. He writes, but Bruce Lee said we need emotional content. Okay, Alex Rosenbaum writes, you are the best, David. Ah, and thank you to Dave Campbell. Thank you for helping to pay the bills. We have, we're growing the show. We have a crew now and we want to be able to pay them for their time. People deserve to be paid. I won't take on interns. Well, it's time for everybody's favorite couple, the Hirschenfelds. Dr. Philip Hirschenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. He teaches Freudian psychoanalysis. And Ethan Hirschenfeld is a brilliant comedian. He is a, an amazing stand-up. Go watch Thug Thug Jew right now on YouTube. It's streaming. You will be blown away by how brilliant he is. The, in the past six months, he's been on Netflix's Red Notice, Bull, and uh, uh, Law and Order SVU. Tonight. Tonight on SVU. Tonight. 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 Yes. It goes tonight, tonight, Lahaim. Tonight. I don't think that's the right song. That's a, that's a mashup. Yeah. yeah. And he is also an opera singer. There's nothing. No, no. That, I was. I was. That David, just I was. was. I you are. I gave it up. You gave it up, but you <laughs> traveled to Germany and Italy. What are some yeah, of the I operas? Sang, I sang in all sorts of places. It was a former life. I, I had a, a few other former lives also. I was a, I was a student. I was a, uh, I was a consultant. I was a, I was a, I was a surgeon. I was, a, I was, I was in the South China Sea on a whaling ship. I, I've done, I've done it all. I carved. I learned how to carve didgeridoos and and didgeridons. Um, <laughs> Which is a much, which is a smaller instrument. I can actually impersonate. I'm one of the only. I don't do a lot of impressions as a comedian. People know that about me. But I do. I do do a, an unbelievable didgeridoo. Have you heard my didgeridoo? Please do. Okay. Thank you. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, I gave everybody an assignment this week. Did you oh, see? Oh, Jesus. I always, I, I don't, what, what was the homework? I, I totally, I didn't. The origin did, of the did. word shibboleth. Oh, shibboleth. I know that one. Yeah, it was. It was uh, you, you, yeah, so, it was so you know the, the origin? You, have you, you know what book shibboleth. of the Bible it's from? The word shibboleth? Shibboleth. Yeah, um, it's from, uh, I think it's the... Uh, Epistle of uh, the Ephesians? Epistle from Ephesians. From the Apocalypse. The apocryphal. It's apocryphal. Is it apocryphal? No. It's real. Let's no, let it's your... real. What it was was it's like a code word. If you could pronounce it right, then you they didn't have to kill you. Yes. Doctor Doctor, you want to explain this? It's kinda of interesting. I think it was in the book of Judges where the tribe of Ephraim invaded um, another territory and they were beaten 
And when they were trying to cross the Jordan River to get back home, the soldiers from the victorious side would ask each of them to pronounce the word shibboleth, right. which means Hebrew, a stalk, the top of a stalk of wheat. And they couldn't do it. They would say shibboleth instead of shibboleth. And they killed them on the spot and threw them in the river. It's like but in- there have been many. There have been many such shibboleth examples throughout history, where people couldn't pronounce a certain word, and were identified as being the other. I knew a guy who was from Holland, and I think before the Second World War started, exactly. German troops were trying to sneak in. Right. Dressed not in uniform. And they had this very complicated string of Dutch words that the Germans simply could not pronounce. And they were thereby identified. So I don't know if they killed them. Maybe we just kept them out. Stroopwaffel. Stroopwaffel. <laughs> So yeah, the word is a cookie. The word shibboleth is it's an ear of corn. And the they they wanted to know who was on their side cuz this is going on in Ukraine now because we have Russian speaking some would say spies yeah, infiltrating yeah. infiltrating they wanted there so there's certain shibboleths that they run by the Russians to make sure uh, originally, it wasn't an ear of corn. They asked uh, who plays center field for the Yankees. That was the wasn't that the World War II thing? They would always ask some a question about the Yankees. And right. uh, what would be a modern day shibboleth? Like what would be a test? Do you think like how could you prove to some what what do all Americans were so divided? What is the word? that defines us as a people? I think any American knows the term, the David Feldman show. Exactly, yes. And if somebody doesn't know that, he's an enemy. Kill him, kill him. I actually, I have a test uh, that I did when my father was alive with his friends and it were it was it was it was a test to see if somebody was jewish um and i'm being serious here uh so you know the comic jeff ross yeah i don't know 15 years ago jeff ross a an oligarch an american oligarch fell in love with jeff ross and said, I want you to come to my 50th birthday party and make fun of everybody there. And here's the deal. My father bought an island in the Caribbean. And it's been in the family for 50 years. And you'll you'll fly to Miami. There'll be a boat waiting for you. And the, the boat will take you to this island where... Uh, it's been in the family for 50 years. You will have your own little cottage. It's not particularly fancy, but fancy enough. And there'll be free food. 
and you'll you'll work for free, but it'll be a great vacation. Okay. So I've given you the following information. Very wealthy man. Father bought the family an island. There's a house and some cottages. What is the first question that you want to know that maybe not that you wouldn't have the courage to ask, but what would be the first question you would ask in this scenario? And this will determine. Uh, <laughs> what are you wondering about? Kosher? What? Is the food kosher? No. no. What's the say, second um, question? Am I am I going to be charged? For, no, no. For, the, for... The, about the story, you're not. You're not. No, no. You're not Jeff Ross. Oh, I'm not Jeff. No, oh, sorry, okay. Claire Slay. I'm not doing this right because I haven't done it. I'm telling you oh. a story. Right. What do you want to know about this story? I've I've laid out everything you need to know. What more do you want to know? Okay, rich guy, family. Father buys island 50 years ago. Jeff Ross, comedian, brought in, not paid, but gets put up on the island that the father purchased 50 years ago. There's a cottage, a big house, and free food. What else would you like to know about the story? I don't think you guys are Jewish. Is there a mortgage? That is, you are close enough. What did he pay for the island? Oh, what did he pay for the island? That, right. and it was uncanny. Go. It was like everybody. I'm sure you don't have to be Jewish, but the first, the first question, and I remember asking Jeff this. I said, "What did he pay for the island?" He goes, "Everybody's asking me that." All right. That's uh, I just saw a news item about these guys who bought a little island off of Belize to start their own micro country. They're actually creating a flag, I think, and a constitution, a group of friends for just a quarter of a million bucks. They bought an island. Well, I've been we had a meeting, Dr. Hershenfeld. Uh, we do a thing called office hours and it's every Friday night at 8 p.m. And we've built a community. Uh, Ethan has come and, and taught and it's on Zoom and people get to know one another and they uh, we've done a lot of interesting things and, and I've been reading about the metaverse and I thought we could take office hours and turn it into in five years a city a gated community where everybody, we could have a mayor, a librarian, a, a bordello, I'm hoping for, uh, a virtual city that almost feels. Can you, do you make, do you get an avatar? Can you be like six, eight if you want? Or are you, is everyone themselves? How does that work? I know I'm going to have a full head of hair. I'm going to tell, <laughs> tell you that right now. And. <laughs> I don't want to. I won't go the other way. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm not gonna have uh, uh, idiopathic urticaria and angioedema. 
lately I've been itching at night and then weird bits of me swell up. Like my eye last night just swelled up for no reason. What is the difference between idiopathic, egopathic, <laughs> and super egopathic? What does idiopathic mean? I have idiopathic. Yeah, it's a fancy way of saying that they don't know where it comes from. Really? Myster mysterious, yeah, yeah. Idiopath. That's a great word. I didn't. Idiopathic. Yeah, I just started itching. I just started itching, and then you can't put your finger on it. I mean, you can put your finger on it, but you can't put your <laughs> finger on it. But it's better not to put your finger on it because it makes yeah. it worse. That's what I was told. Yeah, the, the thing is, I it's if I play leading man, it would be a problem for these self tape auditions. If like I wake up, but the, the stuff I audition for, if I wake up with a swollen lip or whatever, it's totally fine. Like tomorrow <laughs> I'm auditioning for the role of a gas station attendant. Like anything goes, I could have swelling, you know, and well, it wouldn't uh, matter. Dr. Hershenfeld, the, I don't know if you've been follow, following the metaverse, this idea that we can stay in our homes, not leave, and, you know, take a, a group trip to Puerto Rico and lay on a beach, but not actually go and not actually. Is this going to be the end of humanity as we know it? The end may coming, be coming, but, but this is not the reason why. This is just a small bit of nonsensical fluff. Yeah, I feel like it just isn't it just like turbocharged Zoom? It's it's just like it's it, it's just more. It's just one more iteration of a uh, uh, an online gathering place with a few more bells and whistles. I don't know what the big no. There's is. something coming. There, there there's something something big is coming. Barry Diller, Ooh. David Geffen, Ooh. who? Putin is coming. Oh, he invested in Activision too. How bad is Putin? Let's talk about. Are you? Um, how how bad is it today? It continues to be unbelievably bad. You know, Masha Gessen. Yes. Yeah. No. The New Yorker writer, a New Yorker writer, and a commentator on Russia and. She's from Russia, but lives in this country. She's totally brilliant. And there's an interview of her on Frontline from four years ago about Putin, his whole life, who he is, what he's going to do. And four years ago, she just nailed this absolutely word for word. Does she have any stock tips? Yeah. What did she so, say? Um, he said that um, he is totally identified with the Soviet Union and that he is getting more and more isolated and that he is a reincarnation of Stalin. And don't expect anything but this from him. And he thought Trump was a total buffoon. He had nothing but contempt for that buffoon. And that he's a, a little, he is very little, insecure, greedy guy who even as a KGB agent stole stuff 
for himself and that his his greed is insatiable. He had a lot of other nice things to say about him also. And if do you believe, as I'm starting to believe, that Biden is leading from behind and might this might be uh, he may not be doing as bad a job given the hand he's been dealt. I think he's doing a good job. That's what I think. Yeah, I give him a thumbs up. Right. I mean, they're too. They, yeah. He has Congress to deal with. He has politics to deal with. He has public opinion to deal with it. He, he's not Putin. He just can't say this is what's going to happen. It's a huge balancing act. But all in all, I think it was brilliant from the beginning to keep saying this is what's going to happen. He is going to attack Ukraine. And a lot of people said, no, not, not a chance. And he kept saying it because his intelligence said that's what's going to happen. And it happened. So and, he has not been perfect. Right. So I don't know who would have been better. One of the things I'm trying to do on this show is just listen. You know, I, I, I come to conclusions way too quickly. And I was screaming earlier about diplomacy, not today's show, but I think last Friday I was screaming about diplomacy. Why aren't we, you know, if you knew he was going to attack, why didn't you get on Air Force One and go to Geneva personally and meet with Putin and do everything you can to to stop this? But one story is that he's on. Go ahead. Because Putin had already made up his mind. Right. And he already, according to Masha Gessen, who I trust, he made up his mind four years ago. But it seems to me, seems to me, not knowing anything, and I'm, you know, I really don't want to be dogmatic here, because I'm guilty of that, and 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 it gets you nowhere. It seems to me, though, there's always a way to stop an invasion. There's a there's a there's money, there are promises. You know, if you say, look, uh, don't attack, we will not try to get uh, Ukraine. Not only we, we'll keep Ukraine out of NATO, we'll keep it out of the EU. We will build up. We will help you build ec an economic alliance between Russia and Ukraine. Whatever you need, we'll pay for you guys. We'll, I'll pay you. What does it take for you not to invade? Because if I because if you invade, then I will shut you down. So tell me how much it's going to cost. What do I have to do to save the Ukrainian people from what's happening now? Which I think is somewhat sure. reasonable. What I'm I saying. don't because this make him stronger, and he would not believe for a second that you could shut him down. So maybe it postponed it for a year while he could get more money in the bank. 
and more weapons. But if he's made up his mind, and a number of people who said this, people have dealt with him, he has no reverse gear. He did for, well, in Chechnya and Georgia and Syria, let's not forget Syria, you know, he, you know, Assad won. Assad won. And look at what, you know, look at the, what, what, uh, what did what did they say about Carthage? They raised Carthage. est. Carthage must be destroyed. Yes. Right. Yeah, he's willing to kill everybody, and if he kills everybody, he will win. And you you raise Carthage and call it a victory. Uh, I I like to think that you can stop mass slaughter before it happens. That's a lovely I think, I think the problem the problem with that idea of preemptively offering something to avoid an invasion is that you you would end up in the situation where all these countries would then be motivated to start making threats that you then had to pay them off to not carry out. But that's what it's we like do that. all the time. We pay well, we pay what... we paid Israel <laughs> and Egypt they get a couple of billion dollars a year each not to hate one another. That's why people stay one, married. Neither one threaten the world. You're not going to. Putin has this vision that um, he wants to recreate the Soviet Union in his image because he was a small, puny, poor kid who was probably picked on and his parents were totally unavailable to him. And he's got a huge chip on, chip on his shoulder. And he's going to take what he can take. But this also proved that he's not the genius that everybody thought he was. Because this was really stupid. And if he were not so much of an autocrat, if he actually listened to his generals, maybe he wouldn't have done this. Maybe if Hitler had listened to his generals, who I'm sure were thinking, attack Russia in the winter? Is he crazy? But you attack Miami. You, you attack Miami during the winter. Fortunately, he did not listen. He didn't, he didn't care what anybody else said. He thought he was a genius. And that would, you could, I mean, you can look at his report cards, Hitler's report cards. It says very clearly from the second round, doesn't listen well. <laughs> I know Dr. Hershenfeld has to get to a class. So thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. And, and what, are you, what, what are you pushing me out now for tonight? Oh, I thought you had a class. Well, last week. Oh, okay. I'll stay here. I'll stay here till midnight. <laughs> Uh, well, can we bring in uh, where what I'd like to do is keep the show on time today and, and oh, honor our guests. Keep uh, it on time. I, you, I, even though we end, we started eight minutes late, we'll pretend that you're keeping it on time. Did okay. we start eight minutes late? Yeah. Okay. okay. I, I yield my time back to the Hershenfelds. I apologize. Ethan? No, no, stay um, for five geez. more minutes. What? Oh, okay, I'll stay, I'll stay. Stay for Goodbye. five minutes. Uh, 
Uh, what happened to your father? I don't know. He just uh, okay. I, let's I bring in. Uh, I, I went to dinner with him last night, and he after I got there, he left five minutes later. So this is his style. He tries to keep it oh, mysterious. before the check comes. Well, no, he did not. He doesn't do that. He's very generous, but <laughs> but he disappeared. Yeah. Uh, Emil, can you turn your heart yes, light? Um, it says I cannot start my video. Because and we're going to bring Dan in. Let's do let's do this. Let's bring in Dan for community billboard. And we're going to have a problem tonight because the settings have been changed. So let's bring Dan in and Emil. And Emil, I just made you a co-host, so you should be able to turn your video on now. So we okay. have to make them co-hosts. There you go. Is that the secret? Well, that's that's what we're getting through tonight. We're getting through tonight. Well, before we go to Emil, let's do community billboard. Let's talk. Even. What's going on with our group? Well, I just got uh, two announcements today. Uh, the first one is concerning the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website. Their uh, most current uh, guest they have posted uh, says, Ralph welcomes Professor John McCorder, linguist and author of Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America, and also Father Al Fritch to talk about his long project mapping and celebrating the various ethnic groups that make up the United States. So as always, you can go to ralphnaderradiohour.com to check that out. And they still have the banner up there off to the right, the blue banner for joining the Congress Club. Right. And then secondly, um, our friends over at Valley Box have a show this Saturday. Uh, we have on Saturday, March 12th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, Valley Vox Theater will celebrate Women's History Month in their own unique way with an emergency screening of Tony K's 2007 documentary film, Lake of Fire. So contact Valley Vox for a free Zoom link. Uh, how do you, uh, how do you uh, contact Valley Vox? You uh, can get a ticket at Valley Vox on Twitter, or you can uh, email them valleyvoxtheater at gmail.com. Great. And how are we doing on Super Chats today? Um, as far as I know, I think you've read off all the, the ones that have been uh, been posted so far today. So okay. um, well, come, thank come you on to back all the people who are check again. Uh, contributing with the Super Chats. And we'll probably do a, a pledge episode in the not-too-distant future to figure out how to be able to pay people what they're, what, well, not what they're worth. I'm not going to go that far. But uh, <laughs> we can't do this show without the crew. And they are, let me see if I can get this right. They are the Invisible Ninja, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Professor John, Joe in Norway, Hannah Fartman, uh, Grace Jackson will be joining us, and Dan Frankenberger. Am I getting everybody? I, I must have left somebody out. Right? I think that's it. Right. Did I get Professor John? I yeah. I and these are people Professor who John got. are coming to the meetings and the production meetings. And believe it or not, you're going you're gonna to see uh, some stuff won't be good, like this bit. We almost had a bit. Uh, that has to, I have to send that back. Somebody just didn't give a shit. I believe it was Hannah Fartman who I gave a comedy writing assignment to. And, 
really, <laughs> she really phoned it in. I'm going to have a word with Hannah Fartman, my daughter. Uh, how do people contact you? Um, if you want to get something on the community billboard, just send an email to dentfeldman at gmail.com. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's that's it. And what, what, oh, we lost Ethan. We have Emil Guillermo, who's joining us. Emil is an old friend of mine. He is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also a columnist for ALDEF. We're going to ask about their tiger dinner in a second. He writes for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Well, ALDEF had a, a year of the tiger dinner. We can talk about George Takai auctioning off his tie. Cal Penn was an honoree from Kumar, from Harold and Kumar. Obama, uh, uh, did he work yeah, for he was with the Obama administration for a while. He told a joke about um, like getting, you know, someone asked him if he'd ever stuck his foot in his mouth while, while there. And he told a story about uh, an email that he responded, he replied all to. And so, yeah, he was, he took a break from his Harold and Kamar franchise and and went into the Obama administration. And then he I think he's gone back into acting now. And he's he wrote his memoir. He came out. He fell in love. He you know, he's a a changed person. And uh he won the uh, Justice and Action Award last night from 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 Aldef. So yeah, you know, do you like do you watch any of the Harold and Kamar movies? I yeah. Yeah. So the, it's kind of you're a Jersey guy, right? Yeah. White Castle. Yeah. I mean, so that you know that's up your alley. It's not The Sopranos. No. Uh, so where was the dinner uh, held? It was Chelsea Piers in New York. Did you, I, and you uh, went it there. Was, it was uh, no. It was a high. If, if I was there, I would have knocked on you. I would have been knocking on your door saying, "Hey, David, I'm here in New York oh, City." Oh, Chelsea Piers. I'm uh, for some reason I'm thinking of Ghirardelli. Girardelli Square and Tiger oh, yeah. Dinner, where they they serve Tiger. This is a tradition, I believe. No, no, it was. Well, it that's was what they do at PETA. Tiger. PETA serves. PETA serves fake Tiger, fake and they tiger. served fake Tiger. You can't tell the difference. Hour. You can't tell the difference. It's kind of like rubber, like like a kind yeah. of Tiger rubber. Why is it called so, a Tiger Dinner? Well, it's the Lunar New Year. Come on, David. It's uh, the tiger, the year of the tiger. So it wasn't really a tiger dinner. It was a hybrid event. And, uh, you know, uh, because I'm, I'm still in California, so I event, I uh, attended the event via, you know, via online. Right. And then they, you know, except it was free online to people to see. And I, I know some people, they had a small gathering, 300 at Chelsea Piers, right. which I, I always get stuck with the name. I, Chelsea Piers is a nice place in New York. Also a great name for a porn star. Well, that's a, that's what I was thinking about. Chelsea, I, I keep thinking he's Piers. That's a verb. Is it a noun? Is it, you know, who is this Chelsea Piers? And why right. haven't I seen her in my in my uh, well, I, I think they it used to be where the boats docked, and yes, when right, 
So and now, yeah. So, so why is it called the tiger? So it, this is the year of the tiger, or we're start. When does? Yeah. When does the year of the it's, tiger start? Uh, it started actually about a. It's like a period of I don't know the exact date of the lunar new year, but it's been about a, a, a few weeks. And this is like the tail end of it. Um, started like maybe around, uh, you know, you have to look it up precisely, but to end of Jan January, beginning of February. And and so it changes every every year. So when I have attended the event in New York City, it's always like the worst weather, right? I mean, it was snowing and, and sleeting yesterday in New York. When I've attended and it was in February, I, like some of the worst weather, you know, I'm a, I'm a Californian, right? That's where you're we are weak, met, but you're weak. Well, I have spent some time in, in the, on the East Coast, and I I think I'm hardy. But uh, every time the Aldiff dinner comes up, and it's in some part of February, you know, the, the lunar year where it's like the worst weather in New York, and the snow drifts, and it's the blizzard. I just feel like no, I I I was so happy that it was hybrid this year. So there are about 300 at the pier, uh, and there were uh, you know a couple hundred you know online. And so a good way to contribute to ALDEF, uh, always needing, you know, donations in the fight that they uh, are, uh, they're undergoing for voting rights, the fight to end discrimination against Asian Americans. And right. most notably now, you know, the call to end, uh, to stop Asian, Asian hate in this country, which is really epidemic and, and kind of, look, we're all focused on the war in, U in, in Ukraine right now. But there is a war within our our boundaries here. There's been a war against Asian Americans for the last two years, and it's real. And it, the slights and transgressions against Asian Americans are, you know, from the very, you know, from fighting words, from you know, the kind of slights and many transgressions, all the way to very violent transgressions, including death. And so. This is significant because next week, David, you know, it's the is the one year anniversary of the Atlanta spa killings. And, you know, it's it's something how you know how news cycle goes and we just sometimes you remember and then, you know, it's it's heightened, then it goes away and mm -hmm. it comes back. And now the war is just really kind of this overhang over over everyone. I mean, I'm thinking about it all the time. And I think there is a link between the fight over there for democracy and for, you know, sovereign nations and self-determination. And just as there is a fight here for people who are, you know, are fighting for voting rights, fighting for, you know, fighting against the kind of, you know, gerrymandering that uh, that negates, you know, population increases in places like Queens and New York. And, you know, there's, you know, we have two Supreme Court rulings recently that, that we're pro, you know, uh, you know, fair districting. But you know, if we get this passage, well, we're not going to get it. I, I'm, I'm being pessimistic. But very quietly last week, with Bloody Sunday, Joe Biden said, "Okay, let's get this voting rights legislation, you know, you know, back on the table. Let's get this passed." And you know, Kamala Harris went to Selma. She gave her a little talk. Uh, I hope. I hope it ends up with, uh, you know, positively, but I, I, I just, you know, you cross your fingers, but you know, maybe, well, there's still going to be that filibuster, you know, problem they have to get around. 
Right. But anyway, the fight for democracy there. There's a fight for democracy here. Aldef is helping in that fight. So all donations still welcome at uh, aldef.org, which is the website. Right, right. Well, let's talk about George Takai's tie. <laughs> George, everyone loves George Takai, you know. And this is the thing. Yesterday, uh, when he was honored, he was one of the honorees. He's been honored before by Aldef. But, you know, he the importance of George Takai is that when he was five years old, when he was interned, you know, when executive order 9066, probably the worst thing that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. I know you have some Roosevelt scholars and people who love Roosevelt. He did some good things, but look, as far as Asian Americans go, he's probably the worst, the worst president in the United States history. Uh, I think that you look at executive order 9066, you look at what happened, you look at what the, the things that were ignored, the documents that were later found, you know, there was no military necessity, but Roosevelt did sign 9066, executive order, incarcerated 120,000 Japanese Americans, one of whom was George Takei. He was five years old. And the significance of Takei appearing at any Asian American event is that he he can speak with the moral authority of, yeah, I I was screwed. I was screwed by the United States. And it is. Were the there reparations? That, what were the reparations that were paid? Well, I think every family, it's, it's called the Civil Liberties Act. You could look it up. Uh, my old boss, uh, Representative uh, Norman Wymanetta, along with some other Japanese Americans who were incarcerated, like uh, Bob Matsui, the late congressman, his, his wife is you now Doris Matsui, is still in office. Uh, they were able to pass the Civil Liberties Act. Reagan signed it, gave 25000 I believe, to every family. And it remains the basis for the call for reparations now for African-Americans. And, uh, you know, it's a miracle that Asian-Americans, Japanese-Americans were able to get that. But there's still, in 2022, there's still an issue of Japanese Latin Americans who happened to be in this country at the time, and they were incarcerated, and they were left out of any reparations, and they were Japanese Latin Americans, but they lived in this country, and they were and they were incarcerated, and they were deserving of some kind of payout, but they didn't get it, and that's still something that is uh, an open question. Uh, the International Court, I believe, has made a ruling, but the Japanese Latin Americans, that's a real issue. But, anyway, but we're not signatories is, to the International Criminal Court, so it can't be. In, can't. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know where, where it is, but at this point, there, there's a push to get reparations for the, the Japanese Latin Americans. Anyway, the uh, the Aldef dinner with with Takei is always good that someone like him is still with us, number one, but can remind us about what happened historically and how what happened in Atlanta 2021, what happened to the Chinese Americans 18 in the 1890s, the Exclusion Act to, to the Filipinos in 1934. You know, this is an historical thing that has always happened to Asian Americans. 
that the few people really understand. And if we get more laws like that law in Florida that tries to limit what we can say in history classes, we'll never know. This is why there's a big push to get Asian American history in high schools, not just in colleges. In colleges, it's, it's not exactly a lost cause, but it should definitely be taught in high school, K through 12, in some some shape or, or form or fashion. So anyway, George Takei was there last night. He he. You know, they love to auction off ties for some reason. And a Takei take tie. Was he wearing was more, it at the time? He was wearing it at the time. He, he stripped down, took off his tie. Now you're and talking. And here's the thing. I, I asked uh, Margaret Fung, the executive director, what is it about George Takei? Uh, there's like these Star Trek fans. And they, they love it. And even though in Star Trek, they did not wear ties on Star Trek. You know, I mean, think about it. They wore these like little red tops and they didn't wear ties. But George Takei's tie, which he said was given to him by his husband. So it had special meaning. He took it off right in front of the the people and he auctioned it off. And, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Do I have 5,000? 5, 5, do I have this? 6,000? Do I have this? 7,000? 7, do I have this? 7,500? Do I have 8,000? 8, 8, do I have 9,000? $10,000. They for auctioned a tie. off his tie. It's the Takai tie, yeah. Wow. $10,000 for a tie. Yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, so, But to a good cause, of course. And, you know, you could write it off. You could write off your tie. And you're not wearing a tie. You could have used one. I, I don't, yeah. So Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and what is your column about this week? And what is it going to be about next week? Uh, well, this week I'm writing about, uh, well, I wrote about Bloody Sunday and the significance of Bloody Sunday and voting rights. Uh, that's the one that's up now. If you go to the Aldip blog, I write about that. And I write about, uh, well, look, I'm one of the early callers for I'll pump for peace, you know, no, no war for oil. And I, I don't know, David, but, you know, your your listeners know that I'm a big no oil guy in in every area of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I I want to be modest. I, I know some people say, oh, Neil, modest. I mean, that, that that's that's you know, that's not a, a normal occurrence. I, I just think I'm just going to be humble about any calls for the Nobel Peace Prize. But, you know, I I was I was calling for no oil, no oil. Well, yes. for peace. I want to talk to you about PETA and what's going yeah. on with the refugees. It's very serious. One of the things we all find very touching is the photographs of the Ukrainians leaving with their pets yeah. and the pets who are left behind. It's sad. It's I, I, you know, every now, you, every now and then you see people crossing that bridge, like when they were showing video of the the people leaving Irpin, right? The the bridge that are the the these are among the refugees who were, you know, did you see that New York Times the Lindsay Adario photograph? I mean, I guess it's famous now. It may be the since it, it's the one photograph that everyone's talking about, but the one with. Uh, there's a, the soldiers are administering to a woman and her two, two uh, children. And it's just a classic kind of war, a piece of war photojournalism that 
Lindsay Adario was happened to be there, right? It's like, you know, to to have the the presence of mind in in this, you know, terrible spot news situation and you're clicking away and you get it captured so well, the composition. I mean, that's... Um, right. The, the photographs of the older people are chilling and the pictures of people leaving with their dogs. Wow. I know. It, it, it highlights... And, and for, for some reason, it highlights the humanity. When you see people with cats and dogs it registers that these are humans because that is what humans do they take yeah. on animal companions who they cannot leave behind that are yeah they cannot leave they they take with them there's there's some shots that uh, are i believe are on the PETA website at PETA.org now of women uh who are they this one woman had her cat uh, close to her, 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 her body underneath her garments because their cat was freezing and they had to walk about 15 kilometers after they had to abandon their car. I think they ran out of fuel, but they had to walk the rest of the way. I think they just walked because of the, the long lines to get to the border. They got to the border fast and some, we have Peter Germany volunteers going down to the border to greet them, to help them, to bring them to safety there's a, just a small cadre of uh, PETA Germany volunteers who take them to, uh, to to Poland to veterinary clinics and also to uh, uh, for 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 uh, shelter. But some brave PETA Germany volunteers, the animal rescue teams, have gone into Lviv because they're in touch with Ukrainian uh, shelter the people who run the shelters there and. When people can't take their dogs and and pets with them, they've they've put them in shelters, and the shelters are running out of food. And the people are saying, "Well, we we were running out. We have some human food that we're sharing." And they're saying things like, "You know, we're gonna we live with them. We're gonna die with them. You know, but they need help." So, PETA has shipped forty thousand tons of dog food into into Ukraine. It's not easy. They go from Germany down around around Ukraine and then up through Moldova. And and some of them are coming in through through Poland. But it's 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 mixed. It's based on, you know, every day it's it's different. And it's danger it gets more dangerous all the time to get into uh, Lviv. So and then so so that's going on. They're 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 trying to save as many uh, dogs and cats from the shelters as they can and bring them up uh, back through the border to, to Poland where they all need veterinary care. They certainly need food. There's no food and water. If you think no food and water for the humans, no food and water for the animals. And then there was the report about, uh, you know, it's dangerous. There's at least one animal rights activist in, in Ukraine who was shot, killed when she was coming back after giving food to a sheltered a sh a shelter in that, I believe it was outside of uh, a Kiev. And then there are also other reports about the zoo in Kiev. And Pete is trying to figure out what to do with some of the zoo animals that need saving and how to bring them back. But it's, it's a 
logistical nightmare. And of course, we're not even talking about the farm animals, the oh farm God. animals that, that oh just, you know, you think, about, you think about them. Ukraine is uh, primarily agriculture, ag, ag state, the yeah. bread basket so, to, to Asia. Right. And so I'm, I was told by the PETA Germany folks that the, they've been putting out uh, messages to people in Ukraine to let them out of the stables. They, they can't just die in the stables, let them out free. So I just don't know what's happening with, with the animals. Uh, what can the farm? What can farm animals, how long can they survive without humans? Have they been bred into complacency? I, I think they, people don't even think that far, right? Because the farm animals are usually intended for, for consumption. And so they're, 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 they're totally dependent on being fed and being fattened and then being slaughtered. Uh, because I don't think these were, you know, these were farms. And now if they're working farm animals, that's another thing. But I, I like I said, when I talked to the PETA Germany volunteer or the coordinator of the project, there's a project a manager there who is pretty good at this because she's in charge of the PETA project in Romania where they have well, get this, 600,000 wild dogs. They're like stray dogs. You have a stray cat problem in America. They have stray dogs in Romania. And so she's been dealing with that crisis for the last year or so. And then this happens and now she's shifted focus into how do you deal with animals that are sheltered or animals that are abandoned in Ukraine and then the zoo issue and then the farm, the farm, the farm animal issue there, they can't even touch because it's just uh, logistically uh, in terms of uh, uh, the kind of power, you know, person power you need to go in there and help and then the danger. So we just like every, everyone else, we're, we're saddened by the situation and we hope that it, it ends soon. Well, the Russian people, we, as Bernie says, we have no quarrel with the Russian people who love dogs, the famous dogs of Moscow. You've seen those videos of dogs who ride the rails in the, in the subways of Moscow, and they're just given seats and treated as fellow commuters. Uh, humans, all citizens, are the same. And... Uh, you know, our beloved Henry is in Russia right now. He says it's tough. Uh, it's really tough to be a, an American right now in Russia. And the the sanctions are hitting. Uh, yeah. We, you know, the Russian people, uh, we have no problem with the Russian people. We just have a problem with Putin. And yeah, uh, and uh, so I think I think everyone's sort of stumped about a, a way out. And I, you know, I it's easy to say, yeah, tighten the sanctions, and then you know you cross your fingers and hope overnight that something happens. It's still going to take time. Um, I think last week when we were talking, as we were talking, it's about uh, you know it's early morning over there, late in the morning. Who knows what happens? Uh, or will happen, but last week we know 
you know, the first uh, nuclear power plant was attacked. So this is what happens, though, when, like you said, we the, the argument, the quarrel is with Putin and Putin seems more than unstable. He's illogical. And it's always how do you how do you negotiate with with that kind of person? I, well, you start I 10 feel, years before they invade Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to start early and you don't give him the false the false uh, idea that, well, uh, you know, Helsinki 2017, right? The way uh, you had uh, Trump uh, and Putin, you know, acting out there. And I hey, think we're, he we're, just we're, had- we're I, I have to. We had a big meeting yesterday and I promised yeah. to to keep these segments on time. Oh, okay. All right. So let me just say that uh, my next column will be about the North Korea, uh, not the North Korea, the, the Korean American uh, spa shootings in Atlanta, because uh, people don't know that Robert Aaron Long, the perp, is going to come up next uh, in, a, in a month, his, his trial. He's already been found. He pled to four killings and is serving four life sentences plus 36 years. And now he's, but that, that was a plea deal with Cherokee County in Georgia. Now he's up in Fulton County and it's for the, the, the prosecutor says she's going for the death penalty and she's going, going for uh, hate crimes. So some people might say piling on, I don't know. I think it's uh, the people who are killed, their families deserve justice. And if they want to forgive them, they can, but, it's the people against Robert Darren Long. Right. And the prosecutor is going after him. Fantastic. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He's also a columnist for ALDEF, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Before you go, let's go wow. to Ricky in London, who runs Weekly Marks. And I believe you have some suggestions on how to assist the Ukrainian people. Roricky? Oh, uh, I have to. I, I think you muted me by mistake, David. Oh, OK. Hang on. Hi, Rodrigo. We'll get to you in a second. Uh, Roricky, can you unmute yourself? OK. Uh, while we're waiting for Ricky to unmute, I will say goodbye to Emil. You're listening to the David Feldman. Thank you, Emil. Yes. One last thing. They can also check out my, my daily live stream podcast on YouTube. So at Emil Guillermo on YouTube. Fantastic. Give my best to your Thanks, wife. Steve. Thank you. Yeah. Coming up is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. And then we're going to do the professors and Mary Ann and uh, Professor Ann Lee uh, has uh, uh, writes for the Daily Kos, and she's been covering disinformation and uh, maybe diplomacy is a little harder than I imagined. We'll find out. We'll talk about this. I know I see things simplistically. I have the mind of a five-year-old. I keep it in a mason jar, but... Uh, let us now go to Washington, D.C. Let's see if I can do this. Uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I'm going to 
ask you to unmute, sir. And I'm going to unmute it. And can you turn your video on? We did some. Now, I, I'm told that I can't start it because the host has stopped it. You being the host, you stopped it. I there. just made you a co-host, Reverend. Okay. Okay. Started now. And can you, uh, let's bring, so I don't have to worry about this. Can we get Dave in PA and Joe in Norway in as uh, co-hosts? So I don't know if Dave in PA and Chad are working on anything today. Can we, is it possible to find out if we do a thing called ASMR for the eyes, Reverend, for the people who subscribe to our YouTube channel, we have video. I can turn for you tonight, David. I'm sorry? I can turn for you tonight. Uh, how about during uh, Minsky and K? Minsky and K. And do we have Chad as your helper? We sure do. Oh, good. Okay. So we. And I I can do Ricky's plug if you'd like, what he had his hand up about. Yes, please. He might be asleep because he is a Brit after all. He, and he is listening to this show, and this is a soporific. Yeah. So. This is copy he gave me. I'm reading it straight. Good. Our Feldman community is setting up a refugee support group. We want to raise funds to give humanitarian support to people fleeing from the conflict around the world, not just Ukraine. We have a friend in Poland currently driving refugees from the border to Warsaw. He has requested support to buy food to distribute to the refugees. We have a refugee thread in the Discord, so go there to find out more and to participate. And we will take some time and talk about it tomorrow night at office hours, if anybody's interested. Fantastic. But we want to give direct action to somebody who's getting people out of trouble. And can they join uh, us, possibly? Yeah, I'll turn. Can they, can they join? You think they'll be able to join us for office hours from Poland? Oh, that? No. No, I doubt that. They don't have time. <laughs> they don't have time. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I doubt that. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's just a regular guy with a van, so we're trying to give him some cash. Right, right. Well, we can. It's somebody Ricky knows directly and can... Okay, so we'll raise money tomorrow night, and I guess there's a PayPal Great. and a Thank you. Venmo. Thank you, Dave and PA, and we'll see you a little later on. For that, we trust Ricky to vet these people. Very reliable. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran... Americans United for separation of church and state for nearly a quarter of a century. He is a lawyer, a barrister, a counselor, an attorney, as well as a member of the Supreme Court Bar. And if that's not enough, he's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. Welcome, sir. It is always nice to be here. Yes, it is. I wanted to ask you some some stuff, but what would you like to talk about tonight? Well, I'd like to talk about gas prices, and I'd like to talk. I'd like to return to a segment we used to do every week: religious right nut of the week, because okay. it's an old, familiar face is back explaining why Putin invaded ukraine so those two things i'd like to talk is about. it pat robertson did he come out of retirement is that who you're going to bring up yes he did he literally came back he, he of course left his show but he came back one day earlier this week to explain what's going on well good this so is clarity that now we he's, he's, he's here 
he said, look, um, Pat Robertson said that Putin was compelled by God to invade Ukraine, that we have to understand that. And you'd say, well, why is that? And he said, because of the book of Ezekiel says that all of the nations will eventually turn against Israel. Now you'd say, well, wait a minute, Ukraine, that's not Israel. But he went on to say that uh, God is getting ready to do something big. And he implied that this big event is going to potentially lead to the end of history. Hmm. And you say, well, it doesn't make any sense, but then you have to look at how he interprets the book of Ezekiel. In the Old Testament of the Bible, Ezekiel talks about a prince of Rosh, R-O-S-H. And that obviously means to some of the uh, Christians who really don't understand anything about Judaism, Rosh must mean Russia. That makes perfectly good sense. Okay. Rosh equals Russia. And then, of course, in the various places in the Bible, there's a discussion of Gog, the king of Magog. And Gog. people always wonder, well, what does that mean? He knows. Gog, doesn't that start with the same letter as Georgia? which is now part of Russia. Oh, it's making sense. It's I like very this. clear. This yeah. doesn't just make complete sense. Right. Now, I do want to say to people that, of course, uh, when I worked at Americans United, at, uh, Pat Robertson and I had enormous numbers of battles. Back in 1992, which is 10 years before I got to Americans United, he said that there would be judgment by God on the world by the end of 1982. I was there in 92, 82. That didn't pan out. Then I was there, though, in 2006, when he predicted that the entirety of the Pacific Northwest of the United States would be destroyed by a tsunami. He's a little off on that one, too. And then he also predicted in 2020, not only that Donald Trump would, in fact, be elected, but that shortly after his election, an asteroid would hit the Earth and destroy it. So he's, he's really big on this idea that the whole world's going to be destroyed. He knows the time. He knows how it's going to happen. It's just that he's unfortunately, he's been off. And mm -hmm. I have a feeling he's off about this. But I'm glad he came back just to tell his beloved listeners and viewers why Putin went to Ukraine. And that makes perfectly good sense uh, to him. And unfortunately to a lot of his followers as well. Nice. Right. That's the clearest uh, understanding of what's going on in Ukraine that I've heard uh, in the last week. What do you see us, uh, what do you see happening in the next week it's going to get a lot worse. i think we're going to i think it's going to get a lot worse i think that we're living in a bit of a fantasy land when every time there is an opposition a courageous opposition by ukrainians to these invading troops they do something they blow up a tank they shoot down a helicopter 
then it becomes the news everybody fixated on on the major media and it, it's i'm sure it's true we're not fabricating news like that but i think it's misleading because no matter how bad things get for the soldiers from russia it's going to be twice as bad for the people who remain in ukraine and um so i don't see any uh, i don't see any particularly good news coming in the next week and this idea that it's going to be so tough for the russians to say, stay there because they'll be constantly badgered by ukrainians i mean that's i'm afraid a bit of a fantasy also i'm not very optimistic about where this goes there's always the possibility there were these rumors of two efforts to kill Putin in the last 10 days. I don't know how one assesses that information or whether it's even accurate, but I could see something like that happening. Not somebody sent in is a sniper, a famous sniper from Canada who's going over to Ukraine presumably to consider taking out Putin. I don't think that stuff that's the stuff of, you know, bad action movies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. What are your thoughts not. about these Americans who are going over to, like the Lincoln Brigade that went to yeah. Spain? What are your thoughts about Americans, ex, you know, vets? Yeah. I guess if you're currently in the military, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to go. But if if you have any kind of military experience, or you even have membership in the National Rifle Association, there are people who want to go over there and participate. It's not clear to me exactly what the Ukrainians are going to do or what they're going to allow them to do. Well, they have a foreign but, legion. They, they've, they, they've they do. They do. It's, it's, it's similar to the Spanish yeah. Civil War. And, Here, and these people not, not, not to... didn't hear about the Spanish Civil War, but they think it's the same thing. I'm sorry? Go ahead. No, I say the people that are going now probably would not have been in the Abraham Lincoln brigades during the Spanish Civil War, but that's beside the point. Okay. They're convinced this is something like that. Okay, so I, I want to dial back the dogma uh, on the show and not yep. speak from certitude. Just ask a question. Should it be legal for Americans to go to Ukraine, given, just asking the question, given, yep. given our character, given who yep. some of the people toting guns in this country are, what they're capable of doing, what they fantasize about doing, should they be allowed to travel overseas and start killing Russians, supposedly killing Russians? What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts is that nobody from the United States ought to go and become a participant in an effort to much as the pathetic pictures, the horrible pictures of people and their children in mass graves and what you and Emil were talking about, the dogs, the little baby. This is all tragedy, but I don't think the benefit of the doubt should be given to people who say, sign me up. Here's... You have to bring your own weapons, I understand. You can't just go to the Ukrainian embassy here in Washington, volunteer. They have to make sure before they agree to let you go, if, if you can find a way to get there. 
but you have to prove that you at least have your own weapons. Now, I don't know how you and, get and, your and weapons I, over the time, but that's... Yeah. I mean, whenever I see right-wing militia, the first thing that I think is bilingual, they, 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 they speak Ukrainian. They'll be able to communicate yeah. with the commanders, right? Sure. This would be a... Sure. A boon to the National no. Rifle Association. Sell more guns, right? Buy guns for. Are you are you allowed to travel with an assault rifle to Ukraine? No. Well, I think you can probably break it down and put it in luggage and and transport it that way under the current rules for aircraft. But but you certainly can't take it on the airplane. You can't take any weapon on the airplane. Amazing, but it's just it is it, it creates this this fiction, building on the idea that the United States is the world's policeman. So if everybody, if you see criminals doing something terrible in your community, what should you do? You should try to stop it. And so the analogy is, if you see terrible things happening in another country, and you have the wherewithal to go, they should welcome you with open arms, and you should be able to kill anybody you want. And yeah, that's I yeah. terrible, terrible idea. That's that's like the people who say, Well, I hope the Supreme Court allows for the open carry of handguns in New York City because I can I'll I'll scare people with that. Right. Right. Wow. Just when you think you can't sell enough guns to Americans, <laughs> there's a brand new yes. market. And I'm sure a new the, market. Yeah. A new market. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's a horrible, horrible idea. Um, so would you say that people who are bewildered and bedraggled by living in America for too long have come around and surrender to Joe Biden because they know what is possible, what is not possible. Their expectations have been so lowered that older people are coming around to sympathize with Joe Biden and think this is the best he can do. He's been dealt a bad hand. There was no way to stop this from happening. Or should we hold him? If, if war is unacceptable, right, which it is, yeah. and we are the strongest country in the history of civilization, do, do we, does Biden have a responsibility to stop this war before it happened? And what could he have done, in your estimation, what could he have done to stop this? Well, although I don't think it would stop it, I think had he been clear about what we would do and what we wouldn't do and implemented these sanctions right away, we still haven't uh, really put the lid on all banking transactions. There's, there's one big central bank in Russia that we're still doing business, that we do business with. I thought you were going to go a different way place here, though. I thought you were going to say, have we given up so that we give Biden kind of any any options he wants? 
because I think that's where we're heading with the gas prices. I mean, I think that there's some really clear things that should be done. Bernie's talked about them. Uh, we should support a windfall profits tax on the oil companies. I mean, if, if not now, what, when the, the, yeah, people have to understand, ex excuse me for one second, yeah. what the oil companies do when the price of crude oil goes up is their profits go up along with the price of crude oil. Correct. So they, they just double their yeah. if, if the price. So if it costs you two cents for the oil and you traditionally charge four cents, uh, then <laughs> A reasonable person, if you know, would add two cents to the price of oil because it's doubled, and charge six cents instead of eight cents. You don't double it. That's uh... right. we were also promised independence from OPEC from Venezuela when we became the world's largest exporter, and then something happened along the way. I believe it was two thousand and fifteen where we decided that America could sell to the world, that, yep. that our That's oil, the reason our oil is so expensive is it's it, it, it has to play with the world's market, not our own. That's 100% correct. But, but they um, still sell us on energy independence and drill, baby, drill. We can drill our way out of this if... The price well, of crude oil is $150 for the for OPEC. It's $150 for us. Doesn't matter where it comes from. It's the world market. Wasn't supposed to be that way. That's not how they sold fracking to us. No, of course not. But it's another thing. See, one of the things that bothers me is that we, uh, Jen Psaki, who is really a good uh, you know public relations person for Biden. But when she starts talking about the oil drilling rights that oil companies already have, there's certainly some truth to that, because you have to stop this ridiculous argument from the Republicans that say, well, this is all of this happens. The gas prices are going up because Joe Biden, he was too soft on Russia or he was this or that. But so it's important that she say, you know, there are 9000 oil drilling leases already in the hands of oil companies. So why don't you use them? So that sounds good, but do we really think it wasn't a mistake to open what we've already opened of the land, the federal lands in this country to oil and gas drilling? We already did that. But I think what we ought to be talking about is using the same statute, the Defense Production Act that we used during COVID to in, in COVID, we were urging companies and requiring companies to produce uh, personal protective equipment and later, I don't know what's happened here. Can you still hear I me? I can hear you, see? yes. Yeah, um, um, we need to do the same thing with alternative energy sources. We should have the Production Defense Act utilized for the purpose of generating things like solar energy. I'm very big on solar energy. You know, we have solar energy on this house we live in in Washington. Every, 
it generates so much electricity that we sell it now. We get about $4,000 a year selling it to the, so that other people can use it and well, we get paid for it. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So your house runs on solar? Correct. And it runs plus it generates more energy for somebody else. So you have no energy bill? Now, someday, well, in the darkest days of winter, there's not enough sun to actually generate electricity. But I've, I've had bills as low as $5 for a month. And then you get $5. money back. But, 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 and you get money back. So it's a net positive. In other words, you're making money off the sun. I am making money off the sun. Yeah. Now, we, I think only two of our neighbors here have solar panels on their roof. But if you could encourage everybody in this neighborhood of 60 townhouses, if you could encourage them and support their purchase of solar equipment, everybody would be generating more and being able to sell it. And with the exception of potent possible costs of installation, um, this is a really good way to generate power. We don't need, um, I'm not a huge windmill fan. Uh, uh, the former president today was asked about Ukraine and started another tirade about uh, windmills, that they kill birds right. and that they, they rust in 10 years. And I mean, my problem with wind energy is that I, I think solar is much more practical much more environmentally sensitive. I, many people have not gone. I was lucky enough to go there once to the furthest southernmost tip of the United States, which is in uh, in Hawaii. If you go to the furthest southernmost tip of Hawaii, you run across a huge wind farm, and it it is it's a horrible sound. I mean, if you lived anywhere close to that you would say this this is its own kind of pollution. This is horrible noise pollution. And if you look at windmills as they're often put up on mountains in the eastern part of the United States, they, they, they look horrible. I mean, they just, they, they, one person I knew in Vermont said uh, they're ridge raping, ridge raping, take the ridge of the mountain and raping it by putting up these huge, ugly windmills. But solar, biomass, all of these alternatives that really have no particular negative impact, that's what we ought to be funding. We can't be satisfied with the fact that the 9,000 leases ought to be more appropriately used. They're there. Technically, it's right. We shouldn't have opened them. We did. We sold them. We're not going to use the courts to uh, do anything to stop them. But please, let's not think that we can do something. And it's also important. $174 billion in profits from all the oil and gas companies in the last year. We have any evidence about it. Um, They're not allowed they should... to. The stockholders, activist shareholders of 
the oil companies are forbidden, are forbidding the oil companies from drilling more because they want a tight supply. They have said, if you start drilling, that means lower prices, lower profits. We want you to return this windfall to the shareholders. That's the patriotism of the free market. Yeah, to be joined by the patriotism of the oil company executives who make are made all like bandits almost from the time there was an oil company or an oil business in the United States, and they're making out even better now. I think it would be appropriate. I think it'd be morally right, and I think it's legally possible for oil company executives to say we are taking a twenty-five percent pay cut until the war in Ukraine is over. Yeah. I mean, they, they get good publicity. And that's well, you know, a reasonable country back, you know, when Jimmy Carter suffered the oil shock uh, in the 70s, we got rid of him because he told us mm-hmm. something resembling the truth about conservation. Yeah. A, 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 re- a reasonable society would have the head of the CDC call fossil fuels a bigger threat to humanity than COVID. And we are banning fossil fuels. You know, we already bit the bullet. The past two years, we've shut the economy down. We know how to unplug this economy, kind of, sort of, and print enough money so some people can survive. We, we really do need something like a massive response that we saw with COVID where we get rid of fossil fuels and the country cannot run on fossil fuels anymore because this is more dangerous than COVID. And we need to move now this what's going on in ukraine should serve as the 1000th wake-up call in the past week that if we don't get off fossil fuel we're dead the planet's dead somebody's got to step up and say hey you know what and this sounds glib because i know we have truckers listening and i know we have commuters listening and i don't mean to be insensitive But for the sake of the planet, somebody has to wake up and say, high oil prices means you got to switch to renewable resources and we need to subsidize the, the, we need a moonshot to get off this shit now. Well, I mean, (laughs) if, um, Let me go back to 20 years ago. 20 years ago, when people started to talk about uh, cars being electric, no no gasoline-driven cars, and the Republicans went absolutely berserk over it. The heads of every car manufacturer at the time, interviewed in the Wall Street Journal one day, said, of course, we can do away with gasoline-driven cars. Of course we can. We're 20 years away from that. 
now to do it now you've got um, I mean you're right that's of course what we should be doing we can't simply let the environment be destroyed it's it's um, everybody we had a big donor who was a huge donor to environmental groups much bigger than than to civil liberties groups but I mean he literally this was probably five years ago he gave a big speech I'm just blocking on his name he literally wept in talking about how terrible he felt about the future of the planet earth I mean these are people who spend their life on it these are people with vast wealth who are devoting it to trying to do something to save the planet and now with all due respect to the truckers who may be listening, I hope none of them are driving around the beltway outside of Washington. Mm-hmm. They've been driving. Some people have been driving there for four days, just around and around. Now they didn't block the roads, but what the they have spent hundreds of dollars in wasted fuel to make a point that has nothing to do with the environment. It only has to do with COVID bans and what they're teaching in kids in high school. So the connection between teaching kids in high school things they don't like, COVID restrictions, which are virtually non-existent anymore, um, it, and driving around, it, it's, it, 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 could, it could drive you insane just thinking about it. Today, Ted Cruz uh, goes out to talk to the truckers. He starts to explain how he's 100% convinced that COVID started from bats that escaped from a Chinese laboratory. Off in the distance, you can hear one trucker saying, F you, Cruz. Mm -hmm. It was a perfect moment. And Ted, of course, said, "Uh, God bless you, too. We are in a position, we, we, we are becoming a crazy country. We are, we are becoming the kind of country that many of us who grew up in the 60s and who agitated for change, substantive change, thought we'd never get there. We had won so many of these issues. We made people think women matter. Women matter so much, the women's rights movement. And now you still have some clown running for um, state legislature, a Republican, of course, who told a group a few days ago that he tells his daughters if they're being raped, they should just lie back yeah. and enjoy it. Yeah. Who the hell says that at this time? His uh, daughters, he, his daughters went, uh, went on the Internet and said, don't vote for our dad. So he raised really? them. Yeah. So at least he raised he them. Raised well. them well. <laughs> uh, Madison Cawthorn. I mean, we don't talk much about him, but look what he just uh, earlier today um, called uh, President Zelensky a thug. He said he's a thug. And so of course, I wanted to, days after he got arrested again for driving without a valid driver's license. I want to uh, pause here for a second because we have a bit a, a, a 90 second update on the situation. And then I want to come back and talk to you about Putin and the role he may or may not have played in the uh, in 
the Republican Party going insane. I just want to give an update on what's happening in Ukraine. Russian troops have fired and continue to fire on Ukraine's port city of Maripol. That massive Kremlin convoy that we had been watching getting stuck in a just not moving has now split up. It's now spreading uh, to side roads into towns near Kiev with artillery pieces reportedly poised for attack. Uh, an airstrike on Maripol has killed three people at a maternity hospital. Western leaders are calling this a war crime. This is uh, just getting worse. And they're, and they're saying that we can expect in, in two weeks, it's going to 3.5 million Ukrainian refugees spilling right. into neighboring Europe. Pretty, uh, 2.3 is the number right now. Okay. So let me ask you about the Republican Party and the insanity. I've never seen a level of depravity in the Republican Party that I'm now seeing. Right. Do you ever wonder if the Republican Party is completely bought and paid for by Vladimir Putin? There was talks. There were talk when when uh, Trump first became president. We knew that Dana Rohrbacker, Kevin McCarthy said about Congressman Dana Rohrbacker, who's, who's no longer there in the Congress. Right. What, what, uh, Kevin McCarthy said he's an employee of Putin. Uh, Michael Flynn, who was going to be the national security, who was the national security advisor right. for, you know, a week and a half under Trump, turned out to be an employee of Putin. There's no question. If you look at what Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, is saying, he is on the payroll of Putin. There are journalists. There are lobbyists. There are members of Congress who are on Putin's payroll. Putin is said to be worth a trillion dollars, that he cleaned up Russia after Yeltsin and said... You can be an oligarch, but you have to give me half. Otherwise, you're going to prison. He, You have to kick up to Putin. He's, some say, worth a trillion dollars. He, some say, doesn't want to attack us militarily. He doesn't need to do it he, militarily when he can fight asymmetrically through the Internet and by Republicans buy think tanks, buy the National Rifle Association. A lot of money in 2016. Yeah. We know this went from Russia into the National Rifle Association and then illegally in to the campaign war chests of Republican politicians. You can't help but wonder how many people are bought and paid for by Putin in this country. And it makes me wonder that when you get into the situation room and you're Joe Biden and you're sitting down with Hillary's 
intelligence advisors, Obama's intelligence advisors from 2016, whether or not they're right, don't you think Biden thinks the threat to our democracy, a lot of it is coming from Putin? A lot of this talk radio that's ginning up uh, division in this country is fueled by Russian money? Or is that just crazy talk? No, I don't think it's crazy talk, but I don't, I don't think that the evidence, I have not seen enough evidence to draw the conclusion that the majority of the problems within the Republican Party are caused by the fact that so many of them are bought off. How do you Why explain a Republican? How do you explain a Republican Party that goes from ruining Americans' lives because they were sympathetic to Russia? Now I know Russia is no yeah. longer communist. How do you? But but the the Republicans hated the Russian people, and now they 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 are defending Putin. We, you just mentioned, you just mentioned a couple of. Sure. Well, so, some of them are, but I mean, I think the best thing for the United States is the fact that this division that's going on now within the Republican party. I mean, Steve Bannon earlier this week on his uh, podcast basically said, I don't want any real Republican to send one penny of aid to Ukraine. He said, now I know you, I see the same things. My heart strings, I don't, don't, didn't know he had any, but they've been pulled. But I don't think any honest Republican should send a penny to defend Ukraine. Then you've got people, of course, who are equally, at least as valid Republican spokespeople as members of the Senate who say, of course, Russia is evil. It's completely evil. It's always been evil. And we have to do whatever we need to protect the Ukrainian people. Right. But by footnote, the way, Russia is... By the way, Biden is wrong. Reverend... You see, they always have a footnote. They right. always have a footnote that blames Biden for everything. For being so, weak. Didn't, he didn't... Yeah. The Republicans say Biden didn't stand up. Biden did to right. to to Russia when right. uh, yeah uh, we don't have uh, the Russian people aren't evil uh, Putin is evil right. I I think money buys a lot of speech in America I think when you have income inequality the way we do you have a lot of terrified people who would take money from Syria. We know of some podcasters who are on Assad's payroll to spout propaganda that Assad never gassed his own people. You have a lot of people who sub Rosa get money from Putin. I don't it once the invasion started, nobody who's a Republican who's on the payroll could still defend Putin. You of know, course. It, it became impossible. But some of them are, as you pointed out, some of them are. They're, they're kicking sure. and, and, 
Yeah, remember, I mean, for the last two weeks, I've said the biggest positive, the, the one thing that gives me any hope in all of this is the extraordinary anti-war sentiment of Russian people. And it continues. And they're arresting more and more people. Just a few days ago, of course, they clamped down on journalists. There are no independent journalists working in Russia today. The entire staff of Russia today literally walked out one morning and never came back. Are you so talking about RT? These people, RT. You um, talking about RT but, America? RT America, but there, there also is, uh, there was a, a comparable uh, organization in Russia, and they those people are off the air too. They don't exist anymore. They were completely fired. But those things do make a difference. The question is, will they make enough difference? It's so difficult to fight your country when your country doesn't know enough. If you look at the interviews from a week ago in Russia, they would go to people and say, what do you think about the war? And a lot of these people were saying, um, we didn't start it. Ukrainians started it. They're committing genocide. They bought into all of that stuff. That's why a free press is so important. Because if you only hear one side, you only hear the lies presented by governments, including the lies of the United States. But at least here we have something remotely like a free press. It's real. It's true. But you have to, you have to hope that that's a sentiment that leads people to eventually resist. I just saw about an hour before I, I, I joined you here, um, some stories starting to pop up about Russian state radio asking Putin to stop the war. I don't, I, I haven't listened to it. I can't confirm it. But if that is true, then it's one more thing that uh, Putin really does need to worry about. Because if people start on state radio and television explaining that the original Putin narrative is not true, or that at least whatever the narrative is that is true, the war has to stop, then you get a slightly freer press and more of an opportunity uh, for cool her heads to prevail. Now, how much of our press can be trusted? There are two stories that we, we, we got hopeful. There was that Russian convoy that was just sitting there on the road to Kiev. Military analysts, probably, they never reveal which defense contractor they're lobbyists for. They couldn't wait to say this is proof that Russia's military is corrupt. They didn't prepare for this. And it's only a matter of time before the Ukrainian people uh, defeat them in a guerrilla war. Well, now we're reading that it's dispersed, that the convoy is dispersed. They're not stuck in the mud. They do have enough food, unfortunately, and they are preparing for the siege of Kiev. I hope they fail. But we, they get our hopes up, and with they do this with the hopes that it's going to get to the Russian people who will be demoralized. 
that it's not necessarily yes. propaganda for the U.S. They're saying things like Tokyo Rose. They're, they're saying that the Russians are losing because they hope the Russian people will call their sons and say, you know, demoralize them. Uh, so how much can we trust our media? Uh, well, how, not very much, but um, uh, Wolf Blitzer, who uh, just professionally and, and personally, I've never been able to stand, but he, he tends to put people on, like he, he had a guy that was uh, briefly chief of staff for, uh, for Trump on last night uh, talking about what we should do. And of course, the uh, remind me, the, gen the general who was briefly uh, Trump's chief of staff. I've lost. Kelly. Anyway, Kelly. So Kelly says, he asked him these questions about strategy and, and Kelly kind of admits, I don't know anything. I don't know. I have no inside information anymore. I'm not in the government anymore. So Wolf Blitzer asks him more questions. What about a no-fly zone? What do you think we ought to do? And I don't have enough information. to. But why do you even have him on? Why is he? Because he left the corrupt Trump administration. Now, all of a sudden, he's one of the experts you have on in order to talk about the policy that you have nothing to do with. So I, I just think it's the heartstring stuff that how many of these pictures of people and their puppies, people and their little kids, people and their grandmother crossing a border or trying to cross a border. Um, how many of those do we need to see? We know he's a terrible person. I'd like people who know a lot more than people like you and I and Emil and others know to be able to talk about the ramifications of what's going on. How dangerous was that attack on Chernobyl? How dangerous would it be to have a no-fly zone? How about moving the planes from Poland into Ukraine? People who actually know what they're talking about and who don't have an ax to grind and who preferably are not on the boards of any major military companies today, which so many of these retired generals are. So I don't, I don't have much confidence in that. Why do we have such a damn short memory? Last week, you know, you uh, probably properly uh, said I was uh, a little too negative about the country. But when you think about it, I knew a guy named Admiral Gene Larocque. He was a progressive former admiral. He ran something called the Center for Defense Information. And they used to do every month, a list of all the wars that were going on in the world. And it was sometime back in the 70s, be up to 30 wars going on at the same time. And um, they don't do that anymore, but somebody else does it. And they're, they're um, listing, but we have no memory. We, we have already forgotten. We for, forget that we've forgotten <laughs> about... Uh, Vietnam, but we, right. we don't freak, we don't remember. What about what happened to China? That we're still trading enormously with China. We know that they're engaged in genocide in parts of China. We don't even talk about it. The only people who talk about it are people who wanted to divert attention from talking about Russia in the run up to this uh, current war. 
Um, now they well, say, we, re they, Reverend, the, they do say, some people say, this is what Trump does. They're saying that it's not genocide, that they're creating detention centers uh, for close to a million Uyghurs, but yeah. it, it's not necessarily genocide in, in the in the definition of the word. Let me ask you about, uh, uh, we have the vice president who's now being attacked because she's in Poland and she was in a press conference and she started giggling, which she has a habit of doing, but she brought uh, Patriot missiles to Poland. These are missile defense systems that we are told they're made by Raytheon. Each one costs anywhere between two to six million dollars a pop. We are told that a Patriot missile can shoot one of Russia's incoming missiles out of the sky. However, it's always been my understanding, going back to the Gulf War, that Raytheon has not been able to perfect the Patriot air defense missile system, that while they can shoot a plane out of the sky, it's really hard to take a, a missile out of the sky. Now, people talk about Iron Dome that Israel has to take out Palestinian rockets, which are, yeah. in, you know, they're primitive. They are not guidance missiles that can trick a Patriot missile. We discovered that the Patriot missiles in the first Gulf War that were set up to protect Israel from Saddam Hussein's Scud missiles that it was basically a lie that these Patriot, we were told that the Patriot missiles were shooting scuds out of the sky and keeping Israelis safe. And then a year or two after we discovered, well, the Patriot missiles aren't that effective. Uh, That's, what do you that understand? Is my, that, that is my understanding. But then, then you have to look at the question of all, so much of the news has been to targeting of maternity hospitals. Is it targeting or is it that people are too inept to utilize the missiles in a way that avoids them? See, I, I don't know the answer to that, but presumably people do. And presumably people who remember the Scud Patriot stuff and how money lies were told about that. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that I hate to give the benefit of the doubt to Putin and his crazy of people uh, shooting and, and destroying cities. But the, when you start to talk about how they're targeting hospitals, I don't know if it's targeted or just that these are inept people. They're very young people. A lot of these people, they're in the front lines are 18, 19 years old. They have never been to war and they're going to believe whatever they hear and they're going to be told that their weapons are superior. So you utilize them. And um, I don't I don't even know if that's true. Right. But I can tell you that there's not there's not I have never seen in the media in the last two weeks anybody 
they, they used to say things like, we have not independently verified the figure of 103 people dead. But now they don't, rare, rarely do they even say that. They just take whatever the number mm-hmm. is, promote it. And now, and this is why we are coming to loathe Putin. I mean, some of us did before. Right. But how do we, but those are the kinds of things that you never see. It's not, you watch I watched so much uh, news the last couple of days. It's the same people on different networks or people with exactly the same background talking about military stuff, which they may or may not even understand. That they're selling. And of course, these are generals. That who, they're selling. They're, they're selling they're military hardware. Yes, or, or their friend who they go drinking with or out, you know, to the... CIA breakfast right. places with they talk to them. They never and, tell uh, us whether or not these ex-generals are lobbyists for Raytheon. And Raytheon no. spends a lot of money on lobbyists and they're selling precision guidance systems. Their, Raytheon sells the smart bombs. Raytheon helped create Iron Dome in Israel. And Raytheon yes. makes the Patriot missiles that are going to keep us safe and shoot Putin's ICBMs out of the sky. Sure. Uh, and here's the thing. There's a lot of money. I don't know if you know this. There's a lot of money, Reverend, in selling weapons to countries. Did you know that? Um, I... Yeah, I think I Eisenhower had I a did. speech about this. So it yeah, does. He, he's starting to look pretty good these days. These missiles that Raytheon sells, especially the Patriot missile, they do not work. The Star Wars Defense Initiative. What did we spend? A trillion dollars? Everybody said when oh. Reagan unleashed it, you can't do yeah. it. And he said, wouldn't it be nice, though, if we had some kind of security blanket where we could shoot missiles out of the sky and everybody could sleep and we'll never be attacked? What he was really saying is we don't have to do the hard work of diplomacy and getting along with people. Every nation that focused on protecting itself from the world and not pursuing diplomacy pays a price. The Maginot Line, the French were convinced Hitler will never be able to get through the Maginot Line. And he couldn't, nor did he, because he flew over it. You know, exactly. the Maginot you know, Line was the, the nuclear umbrella of the, of the late 30s, early 40s. And we're saying that now we're 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 telling the Polish people, don't worry, we're giving you Patriot missiles. Go to bed, sleep. We can shoot Putin's missiles out of the sky and Raytheon pockets a hundred million, two hundred million dollars here, even though they sure. know it doesn't work. If you could oh. shoot missiles out of the sky, they keep telling us about Iron Dome in Israel and how successful the Iron Dome is in shooting down these prim- primitive Palestinian rockets. If they work so well, if Iron Dome works so well, then how come Israel has to go in with tanks 
and, and go yeah. shoot down, uh, blow up the source of these missiles, if you can just shoot them out of the sky, which you, you know. Yeah. It was a great idea. Did I ever tell you about Edwin Teller being on a radio show with me once? No, tell. The, the, Teller. Radio. Tell. No. Okay, Teller. so uh, he, he, Teller comes into a studio. We were doing a, a, a radio show in a very small room, smaller than the room that is behind me here. And um, getting ready for the interview, we do the commercials and the news. He looks at me and he goes, is is, is this radio or television? There's not a television. There's not a television camera in sight. It was just a a piece of glass into where the engineering was done. Blank walls, and two of us sitting there with him. And he asked that question, and immediately I thought, and this is the man we're supposed to believe knows so much about technology that he's going to save us. By shooting missiles out of the sky, right, right, yeah, unbelievable. <sighs> hey, um, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn has a website, barrywlynn.com. You go there and you can see interviews on great, great shows like Firing Line and CNN and Crossfire. And some links to some mediocre shows like this one, uh, <laughs> Reverend. But I do, I do have a new one up. Um, uh, a listener to this program uh, got me involved in a, uh, a podcast. Very innovative. You you want you you inter are interviewed by him, and he asks you to talk about a movie that you remember as being very, very good. And then to interviews you. And this was one of the movies, then, I think the Mies Commission reviewed it as well, right? The movie. Yes, I think they didn't. I think you're thinking of biker slave girls. But yes. I was talking about Easy used Reverend. cars. Then you watch it again. You take a week off, you watch it. Then you come back and talk about uh, what... What you learn now was whoa, whoa, whoa. It still is this good? Roger Nigo? Hang on, is used cars the Bremer, uh, the guy from uh, Chappelle? Did did he direct this? The Kev, um, no, Robert Zemeckis. It was one of his Robert first Zemeckis. movies, okay. Robert Zemeckis. And uh, but it's 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 all there. I think it's right at the top of the page. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. Okay, I look forward to watching that. The Reverend Barry right. W. Lynn is a reverend he's a lawyer he ran americans united for separation of church and state and stay out of trouble follow him on twitter at barry w lynn great job reverend stay out of trouble thank you stay only good trouble for me thank you and say hello to your wife for us we are she'll do that thank you sir thank you you're listening to the david feldman show davidfeldmanshow.com and we are powering through technical difficulties before we start the professors and Marianne. Let us go to Norway, where Joe is standing by, and he is going to be cooking a meal out of plastic vegetables. If, I don't know if you can see the tomatoes, <laughs> and it looks like potato. These are all plastic. This is all fake 
plastic vegetables. Is that eggplant or is that what is that, Joe? Eggplant. I have a few things. But it's all fake, right? You're going to melt plastic vegetables, right? Yes. Those tomatoes. Excuse me for one second. You're in Norway, right? Imagine that. And how are you getting tomatoes? That don't look like well, red rubber balls. And speak of red, speaking of red rubber balls, how are you feeling? <laughs> oh, I'm feeling all right. Okay, much better from you. <laughs> okay, uh, good. We don't need to talk about that. Well, let me see those tomatoes. The the roads are still open from Turkey, so we got the majority of our fresh vegetables come from Turkey. Those come from Turkey. Hold that up. I'm not done with that. Oh, my God. Wow. That's from Turkey. Wow. Yes. It's a lot of season. Okay. Tell us what you're going to be preparing. This is a new segment we do called ASMR. ASMR for the eyes, where we're going to do Professor and Marianne, and you'll have the sound down. And we'll pretend to be talking and we'll pretend not to be watching you cook. So what are you preparing tonight? Yes, I have a few dishes I need to prepare for tomorrow. So I'm going to make uh, a uh, cucumber and dill salad, a quick fresh salad. And then I'm going to be making a potato and pickle salad. These are the pickles I made last week. Wow. Fortunately, there are still a few left. And oh, hang on. You, you made those pickles last week and you already started eating them? Yeah. It's hard to keep them around. They're, they're, I'm surprised that any are left. How long did it take yeah. for them to be ripe? Or They're, they're refrigerator dills, so they so how... take about three or, four day, three or four days. We saw you make it. We saw mm-hmm. you conceive those and... pickles. Go ahead. Nice. So then we'll be making um, uh, diced tomato for uh, bruschetta for for breakfast this morning, and then I'll be making a, a Korean dish of steamed eggplant called gaji namu with uh, garlic, soy, chili, sesame seeds, some other things here. Did I forget? Yep. That's. We'll see how how long it takes. Should should have enough time to make them all. You, you always we'll bring it fast. We're going to be riveted. Uh, um, but I'd also like to mention again our uh, what's going on with uh, the community. Our Feldman yes, community is setting up a refugee support group. We want to raise funds to give humanitarian support to people fleeing from conflict around the world. So we have a friend in Poland driving refugees from the border to Warsaw. And he's requested support to buy food and to distribute to the refugees. We have a refugee thread in the Discord, so you can go there to find out more and how to participate. Right. And we'll be talking about that at office hours. Office hours. And what can we expect? I know that Professor Adnan Hussein will be teaching. What, What do we have on tap? Oh, is Dan here? I don't have the list. Well, we'll up, review it later. You get to work and start cooking. Steve, Steve K. will be doing a guitar lesson. Which was phenomenal. We have, uh, 
We're going to do. Talco will be doing the war report, a little uh, update on what's happening in the war. Professor Bick uh, will be doing uh, a deep dive into the Twilight Zone and Star yes. Wars, not Star Wars, Star Trek. Yes. So I yes, Dave. Yes. Well, let, let's. I'm trying to run this show on time instead of into the ground. So I'm going to mute. And while we're looking at this food, remember to go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. It, it is a, uh, a food pantry that was set up by Professor Adnan Hussein's parents a few decades ago to take uh, care of specifically refugees from Afghanistan. And I would assume it's unfortunately spread to other refugees. And uh, it is a great way to give money. Go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A, and they feed the refugees properly with lentils and and beans and healthy food, not garbage. It's money well spent. It won't get wasted. So if you uh, want to thank the show, uh, go to rahima.org uh, and give give $5 or whatever you can. So thank you for that. It's time now for the professors and Mary Ann. Welcome, Professor Adnan Hussein. Welcome, Professor Jonathan Bick. Welcome, Professor Ann Lee. And welcome, Professor Mary Ann Cummings. I will not get in the way. And I want to ask Professor Ann Lee about diplomacy. Your piece over at the Daily Kos, you write about how difficult it is to negotiate with people who traffic in disinformation. So are we making a good faith effort in your estimation to stop the hostility? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, John can probably speak to this better than I, but it, it does appear that most of the rule, diplomatic rules are actually being followed, despite the fact that people are getting killed and mayhem is occurring. The the procedures of negotiation are still occurring. I mean, today was the first day of, of a the highest level of meeting so far between the two foreign ministers. And, um, you know, it, unfortunately, it's it's between people, you know, raised in the Russian tradition and nothing happened because that's kind of what happens in negotiation among Russians without without overgeneralizing. It's what uh, some people in negotiating manuals call, you know, Soviet style negotiating where nobody budges, at least for a while. It, it's all about time. And the entire war is about, you know, it's it's it is about trying to endure each other. And and which is why, you know, it's now defaulted to uh, heavy artillery and uh, rocket barrages and worrying about a you know combat air cap over uh over ukraine so yeah it's just a first round there's going to be more rounds uh it's just that the disinformation got real wacky today yeah what um uh, uh lavrov uh of lavrov and trump and kislyak and all those other folks um you know accused uh i <laughs> 
<laughs> Lavrov is just one of those guys who just cranks out disinformation with a straight face. You know, it, it's like it's like they're in a totally different world. Uh, that their disinformation campaigns are in a very different world. Although it did, it did reveal how how different, um, for example, the data is. Um, but anyway, it was uh, it was an accusation. Uh, the accusations have flown back and forth about whether uh, uh, the uh, the Ukrainians are bombing themselves uh, in order to create an impression. Um, and they were trying to, you know, uh, it's very typical of uh, from a Russian point of view, throwing up. Uh, it 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 was uh, you know it, it was like on the on the internet it's uh, you know sort of poop posting where they throw literally everything up as a cloud of noise, and so they they claimed that there were there were uh, crisis actors in that hospital that got bombed. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Is Alex got Jones hurt. working for the Kremlin. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be no different at certain points. But uh, anyway, a lot, there was just a lot of noise uh, that, that essentially comes from the first first meeting between the two. So both sides essentially said nothing happened and uh, uh, lots of other things are going on. Like the chem- this whole chemical, chemical warfare conspiracy theory thing is just, it's all noise, but it's, it's pretty powerful noise because it's getting repeated all over the damn place. There is some truth to it in the sense that I think, uh, well, currently, as I speak, I think there's a a, uh, a small research reactor at the university in Zarki that's being, that that's on, or, well, something around it is on fire right now. So that's, it, it sort of replicated what, what went on in the main power reactor that they've, that the, the Russians have captured, which has four reactors at this four reactors at that site of the 15 total reactors in uh, Ukraine. So currently there is a reactor under threat, but it, it, it's, um, and Marianne can address whether it's a, a, there's something on the internet that says it's not really a supercritical reactor. It's a, it's a small research reactor. Uh, so I have no idea. <laughs> it's out of my right. field, but certainly something's going on right now. And, and I think the Russians will probably attack there's there is a, a tank farm with ammonia in it that they will likely attack and then make a claim about chemical warfare. So wow. everything is in is sort of in a kind of interesting set of motion. Uh, on the other hand, the Russians have only taken 20 percent of the country. I mean, when you actually look at the the kind of mapping, they don't have that much territory. They're just really close to big cities. So anyway, the, the diplomacy is just going to go on. And, and I think if, if the Ukrainians can last a month or two, which no one is predicting, all these military experts are cranking out the, 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 the opinion that the Russian numbers are still favored and that in two weeks it'll be over. Uh, I don't think so. I think the Ukrainians really are serious about what they want to do about resisting. So I, uh, I, you know, time is on their side, and I think uh, Putin, as as many other experts have said, Putin has already lost. Uh, I'm sorry, they what? what was it? He's, he's already lost. He has to figure out a way to uh, exit gracefully. The, Putin the has already lost. Ramp metaf- 
uh, Putin that he's already Land. lost. Do you believe that? Uh, no, but it, he did fire some generals today, they say, but I, I think that's disinformation too. And he fires generals a lot. He's fired uh, eight to 10 generals every year. I mean, he's just, you know, he's, he's very Trump-like or Trump is like him, you know, so. So that anyway. doesn't, that doesn't bode well because you cannot manage people through chaos. Well, I think he has actually a plan. I mean, the plan looked pretty obvious. You're going to have non-Russians non be your vanguard. You know, that's why the Chechens led, led, the, uh, led the battle. Uh, and, and they failed, of course, fortunately. And he brought in uh, some military groups in the eastern, uh, eastern military districts. So it, there, was a, there was a plan there. What do you mean? What do you mean by non-Russians? You mean people from, from the Siberia and uh, there's. I mean, there are units from the Eastern Military District around Moscow, but his vanguard were these guys who are going to go in and and whack uh, Zelensky, and they they may still be prepared to do it. I mean, there are what a thousand of them. That special. He has special ops guys in there. But fortunately, the Ukrainians, you know, defeated them at, uh, at one of their two landing sites. I mean, you know, if, if one wants to indulge the uh, a Chuck Norris kind of thing, they got messed up real bad. One of their generals got whacked, as I mentioned before. Right. Um, and we are and, supplying, uh, the United States is supplying, they have, I would assume they, they have more weapons than they know what to do with. The, even the polls are wanted to send MIGs in there. I think we turned them down on that. But uh, I, I can't help but worry that our Pentagon is looking at Ukraine as though it's the Bonneville salt flats, just to see. You know, well, I I think it's a faint. Actually, I think we're sending a ton a as a a, a poop load of of stuff there. Right. And and most of it is smaller stuff. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of anti-tank ordnance in Ukraine now. Right. People but should a read, lot of it. Yeah. Thank I want to I want to ask uh, Professor Marianne about this. But first, I want to remind everybody to go to Daily Kos and read Annie Lee, A-N-I-L. How do how do we spell L-I? Right. 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 Let's first find out what everybody wants to talk about. So let's go to Professor Jonathan Bick. What would you like to talk about tonight? Well, I wanted to talk about uh, Ukraine. Um, also, I don't know if we have time, but uh, there I have an example of um, privatization gone bad um, here in uh, Massachusetts. Has it ever uh, gone good? Has it ever gone right? <laughs> Seriously, can you get I've asked I'm begging somebody for an example of privatization gone gone good. So I uh, it depends on the metrics you use to to measure what's good and what's bad. Uh, I mean, some people could make the argument that uh, deregulating the airline industry in the US was good because there were uh, rates went down quite a bit. 
of course, what they leave out of the equation is that uh, flights to uh, underserved areas or areas that are now underserved, uh, uh, you know, all but disappeared in, in to many parts of the country. Uh, and the also, only way uh, you can enjoy the flight is if you have the legs of a jockey. <laughs> that too, <laughs> exactly. Or, or yes. you like waiting in O'Hare a lot. Right. Yes. And okay, if, so if privatization. Uh, and what else yeah. would you like to talk about? Uh, so Ukraine, privatization, um, and uh, the, um, the environment, the uh, climate. The climate. Ah, that will be cheerful. Professor Adnan yeah. Hussein. Did you do your show with Professor Juan Cole? I have, and it should be coming out either later this week, to, tomorrow, or early next week uh, on the Mudge List. So check it out. Give everybody the uh, the spelling. How how can we make sure? Everybody... Yeah, you can find it on all the platforms. The Mudge List, M A J L I S. Um, you could go directly to anchor.fm slash the dash mudgeless m-a-j-l-i-s fantastic i want to find out what you want to talk about but we all have i'm going to speak vaguely here we all have a friend uh who's in russia i've asked this person to come on the show this person said not a good idea this is mm -hmm. an american mm -hmm. who's service over there in russia and he or she said to me at this point, it would not be wise. There's been a crackdown. 15 years in prison for anybody, even an American, to talk about what's going on in Ukraine as an invasion or a war. I pass. This person also told me that the, the ruble is down to nothing, that the dollar has turned into mist that this person, she said, or he said, I don't know who this person is. I don't want to <laughs> tell you who they, <laughs> I want them safe. He or she uh, said that they put money in, in a bank account and it's just a mist. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you spoken to this person? Uh, yes, uh, I have, um, you know, still are there are means of communication, uh, thankfully, although there have been restrictions clearly on some social media and monitoring of accounts and so forth. But uh, I have and he, he or she uh, seems to be um, safe, but it's a very difficult situation, um, obviously. Um, Good, because so, I was taking it personally. I, I, I just wanted to make sure. This person was treating you the same way. I just wanted to make sure what he, you know, a lot of people will come up with a lot of excuses not to talk to me or do the show. And I didn't want the old Russia invaded Ukraine and I can't talk about it. Excuse again. Routine. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, you know, we'll still be recording uh, and communicating on other topics, but um, I think on Russia, Ukraine, um, you're right. Uh, he's had to uh, be discreet or yeah. she has had to be discreet. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, I do you get out? I mean, it's a frightening situation, uh, obviously, where you have to worry about that. And also, I think, you know, when you're um, on a work visa as a foreigner in any country, your rights are, of course, very tenuous and your status can be revoked very easily. And we know that because that's one of the reasons um, why you know, Republicans, conservatives in Canada like to establish um, work visa immigration programs where people would come in but not actually have full rights and be intimidated so that they can't unionize, they can't get involved in political speech and so on. That's a condition where you're precarious. And Mm -hmm. um, I definitely feel for this individual having to deal with a war right on the doorstep and the atmosphere also uh, being very serious and and restrictive as a result of a wartime atmosphere and being a foreigner in a country that's at at war can't be a comfortable situation which brings well, he, he, he could work on his jump shot you know <laughs> <laughs> then we can yeah, send him to north korea who could, who could coach him on that right <laughs> which brings me to uh, i want to ask you what you want to talk about and then i want to go to Professor Marianne, who's an expert on this topic, which is, I don't know if you know this, but she's a particle physicist. And uh, besides being a brilliant artist and a an elected official in Aurora, Illinois. So we'll get to that. Here's the thing about nuclear weapons, Professor Hussein. If Iran were to drop a nuclear missile on Israel, which everybody's afraid of, or if Putin were to drop a nuclear bomb on Russia, what would you mean? What, what did I say? Why would you do that? Because I'm tired. Putin drop a bomb. I meant Russia. Ukraine. I meant Ukraine. Okay. You drop a nuclear weapon. If a Russian drops a nuclear bomb on Ukraine, or an Iranian drops a nuclear bomb on Israel, who are they hurting? Well, I mean, they're hurting a lot of people, obviously, including, because uh, including their who? weapon is, is, is the kind of, is the uh, paradigmatic weapon of mass destruction. Um, so uh, by definition, you're talking about an awful lot of people who would be victims of it um but who who specifically would you be would the iranians be hurting if a nuclear bomb went off in israel not just the jews you'd you'd be killing um, well i guess what you mean is that uh you know these are weapons of such uh, danger and indiscriminate uh, harm that in places where there are mixed populations, um, diverse groups altogether, you're indiscriminately subjecting them all to the same devastation. Um, but of course, also one has to imagine that in this day and age, the use of a nuclear weapon would bring, I mean, the world, so, so much of the world has been um, demonstrating in various ways. It's um, 
rejection of this criminal invasion uh, by Russia um, in the Ukraine. But if, you know, if the Russians, if Putin were to decide to actually use a nuclear weapon, of course, that would unite the world, um, I think, even more profoundly and strongly uh, in attempting to um, oppose not just the invasion, but at that point, uh, the regime entirely. Um, but he'd be killing Russians. Would... We have Russian-speaking yes. brothers and sisters, in his estimation, who he'd be killing. So, you know, I said he was not going to invade. I, and uh, and now I'm saying he's never going to use uh, nuclear weapons. Mm. And folks, I can't be wrong all the time. <laughs> so take take solace in the fact that nobody can be as wrong as I have been on this subject. <laughs> what would you like to well, talk David, about, Professor? Well, um, you know, about Russia, Ukraine, of course, but um, I have not had time to follow uh, in forensic detail the way Anne has the military situation, the blow by blow. Um, but as people know, you know, if you're a avid or loyal, keen listener of the David Feldman show, you might recall that I have a bit of a penchant for maritime stories. Um, your book is, I talked what about, is your book called? Uh, sorry? Your book is called uh, Beyond the A Faithful Sea. sea. Yes, yeah. um, that's right. So I'm interested in <laughs> bodies of water, maritime history interactions. And, you know, I talked about a story of a you know piracy in the 17th century, Henry Every's attack on the Emir of Hyderabad's Gali Ganji Savai in the Indian Ocean, and that's being the explanation for how Arabic coins were being found in New England. Or last year, around this time, the ultra tanker ever given, you know, running aground in the Suez Canal and disrupting supply chains globally and exposing this just in time network and massive tanker shipping and so on. Uh, so it shouldn't be a surprise that I was drawn to a topic uh, that brings me into rare alignment with another physics professor uh, associated with the show, uh, the, and that is the sanctioning of Russian oligarchs' um, assets, and in particular, the seizure of several super yachts recently <laughs> by the French and the Italians. And The Guardian has a really interesting story tracking the locations of a dozen or so of these super yachts and their sudden departure from ports around, you know, places like Barcelona, you know, St. Martin's uh, and, and making beelines to um, other havens where there are no extradition agreements with the U.S. and European Union. And in particular, I was quite taken by the fate of um, major oligarch Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, who thought that he would be sheltering a lot of his, you know, privatized gains from the um, neoliberal plundering of um, the Soviet Union uh, after 
its dissolution in 1991, sheltering them by uh, engaging in sports washing, you know, by buying a football club that has a popular following, turning it, you know, a small London club without a lot of history of success into a super successful, you know, thing that burnished his image before millions of people globally, and also growing the, it as an asset base that would be outside of Russian or Putin corruption, you know, um, where people may, you know, all of these Russians are sheltering, were sheltering money outside of Russia because they thought it was a safer bet. And now suddenly they're having to deal with the fact that with this geopolitical turn, their assets are, are being targeted. And um, so in particular, um, his uh, Solaris, uh, six hundred million dollar uh, uh, yacht, left Barcelona, seen off the coast of Sicily. It's not clear where it's going. Maybe it's going to Israel because you know he is Jewish and does have Israeli citizenship as well. Right. Something they acquired a few years ago. Maybe he's hoping that um, they will protect his his assets. His other left St. Martin's um, and he's he looks to be headed to the mall. Uh, it left it's it's called the eclipse and it's 163 meters long has nine decks two helipads a 16 meter swimming pool uh, and he doesn't want it to be one of the three that have been seized by french and italian sources and you can track the progress of these on a wonderful site called marine traffic it's marine traffic.com i was able to watch my son's ship, the St. Lawrence II, which is a sailing vessel in Lake Ontario during his voyage last uh, summer. And it's an amazing sight. You can find hundreds of thousands of ships all over globally and see where they are. So people have been watching to see where these boats are going. On, going. And I just, in conclusion, want to say that I think it's more than just a fun curiosity um, to be talking about these super yachts. But this is really, I think, the, the epitome of typifying the disparity, the global inequities, what the neoliberal destruction of the Soviet Union economically has led to, how this response is exposing again, like we've had with the Panama Papers and Pandora Papers, where these havens are, but also the vicissitudes of geopolitics on this kind of black, you know, this kind of shady, you know, world of um, legally, um, you know, very iffy and certainly ethically disgusting, uh, you know, moves of, of money. And um, I think the last bit of it in terms of that sheltering and so on is also you know, the environmental aspect as well. These yachts are just horrific, you know, incredible, like guzzlers, and they create a lot of pollution. And they're just the real epitome of um, outrageous uh, late capitalist um, consumption at its absolute worst. Right. Um, Two quick questions. Uh, and then we'll, uh, I know Professor John, you wanted to say something, Professor John? I, I wanted to ask Professor Hussein, a quick question. No, no, go ahead. Uh, London has a lot of Russian oligarchs. I was surprised that the United States doesn't. We take their money, but we don't give them citizenship. London is very welcoming. 
And despite a speculation tax on stock transactions, they're pretty uh, hands off when it comes to dirty money. I didn't know that. They're, they're, they're kind of worse than the United States is with d filthy, dirty Russian money. They're about... Uh, well, well they ahead. have dirty money from all over the world. I mean, the Gulf states, uh, I mean, my goodness, you go there during the summer, there are whole neighborhoods in West London where, you know, you just hear Arabic on the street. I love going to those places. I mean, you can go and, you know, have a shisha cafe. It's like you're in, you know, the Middle East somewhere. Uh, it's like you're on the streets of Damascus, but actually more like on the streets of like Abu Dhabi. Not that anybody walks in Abu Dhabi, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're really poor. Um, but all of that Gulf elite shelters money there, too. So you've got uh, kind of uh, horrible, you know, assets um, seized, a lot of petrochemical like, um, uh, you know, Abramovich is himself. Uh, I think he has, uh, I think, Gazprom. He was involved with Gazprom, if not Gazprom, other sort of of these um oil and gas um, exploiting. So really what you have is London is um, one of the financial hubs for, you know, uh, petroleum uh, wealth being sheltered. And it really sheds light on the dangers of income inequality because there's an end game to this. The when when the Soviet Union fell and Yeltsin, who was a puppet of a drunken puppet of uh, Wall yeah, Street. That was awesome. I still miss his International Women's Day like addresses uh, on C-SPAN. <laughs> it was amazing. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, there were about 22 oligarchs. And then, uh, what's his name? Uh, Putin came in and apparently he said, you're either going to jail or you're giving me 50% of your assets. And he, he had to kick up like a mobster to Putin or you're going to jail. And then he created some oligarchs from within his immediate government. And this is how income inequality, this is how you end up with Vladimir Putin. And if we don't do something about the concentration of wealth in this country, it's going to go from seeming like a fascist state to an actual fascist state. So very quickly, were you surprised that Erdogan closed, is it the Bosphorus, the, the, uh, to well, I think what he closed actually was the Dardanelles, but obviously both the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles are two straits that connect the Mediterranean first to the Sea of Marmara through the Dardanelles and then uh, the Sea of Marmara to the Black Sea uh, through the Bosphorus. And, Were you surprised because um, he was yeah, flirting? He a month ago, he was flirting with Putin. I think he was going to buy some jets from Putin. And were you surprised by how quickly Erdogan got with the Western program? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, it, it, I mean, Turkey is a NATO power, so obviously they're going to follow overall um, the approach of NATO. And of course, as we all know, Ukraine is not 
yet or a member of NATO, but nonetheless, there is a kind of coordinated policy towards it. So, of course, there was going to be an alignment in that direction. But I think, um, you know, it is close to all belligerents. So I think that also includes, um, you know, U.S. Uh, tankers and warships. Also, I think they, they've closed it to every one of the belligerents. Um, and so I think in some ways also Erdogan, um, I mean, my, my mother really likes to watch Turkish television. So she's following the news out of Turkey, how Turkey is looking at this uh, fairly closely. And I was speaking with her and she said that there's a lot of talk on the Turkish television about how Turkey under Erdogan has offered to broker and host you know, a lot of peace talks. I know there are other discussions, diplomacy taking place, but Turkey would like to sort of position itself as mm -hmm. a broker, despite being a NATO power. They also like to have a bit more of an independent policy as a kind of emerging power in the Eastern Mediterranean with relations with good relations with the Middle East and some of the Gulf states like like Qatar. So they're trying to uh, host um peace talks themselves, or at least some sort of diplomatic discussion. Is crime, I don't have- They wanna be players. I'm sorry? I think they wanna be players. Right. Is so. Crimea worthless? I don't have a map in front of me. Is Crimea worthless if Erdogan shuts the Dardanelles to Russian ships? Well, the whole point, yeah, obviously the whole point of Sevastopol, Odessa, and, um, you know, Crimea is that they're, um, they have access to the Mediterranean via the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, so they can get out into the wider shipping. Um, and that that access is usually not cut off by weather problems, etc. You know, the, you know, warm waters. And that's the, the you know, Russia only has two ports. Uh, they have a naval um, uh, facility, um, I think, near Latakia, so in northern Syria, on, on the coast of Syria, and now Crimea. The, the, those are their, their, their ports. So, yes, they are um, uh, worthless, but, I mean, only if they decide, I mean, they are a much stronger power. They're only if they decide they don't want to push, you know, the issue. I mean, Turkey is not a huge military power. It is part of NATO, but um, by itself, um, you know, it could conceivably be intimidated, um, you know, to, to provide access. Um, it's in a geostrategic location, but it is no longer the Ottoman Empire, right? right. Like it's it's obviously diminished in its military capabilities, its economic power, and so on. Professor John, you wanted to say something, and then we'll turn to Professor Marianne, who I've been keeping waiting, and I apologize. Yeah, I, I just want to do just. Uh, address a couple points uh one you were castigating yourself for uh saying that you didn't think russia would invade um there's another important person who didn't think so either up to a few days before the invasion and that was president Zelensky. um apparently we have the same intel yeah don't, don't be too hard <laughs> on yourself um as far as anti-missile technology is concerned, I, uh, I saw an interview with uh, uh, retired Colonel Douglas uh, McGregor, the U.S. Army, 
talking about that. And uh, he said it's uh, it's basically too late to to do that, even if those systems are effective. Uh, you know, you're not dealing with an Apple iPad here. Uh, these things have to be set up. They have to be trained. The people running them have to be trained. Uh, they're not, you know, user friendly. So um, it's just it's not feasible unless you're willing to send in people to show the ukrainians how to use them and then you're actively getting involved on the ground supplying sophisticated weapons with personnel to use them or to uh, train the ukrainians how to use them well i'm Uh, sure don't you think we have special i mean i i can't imagine america staying out of ukraine with a you know well, in, in order to deploy enough of these things to make a difference, uh, it would be obvious. Right. And, the, you know, then Russia would say, OK, you're intervening. Uh, we're now at war with you. Uh, I don't think we want that. OK. So I, I don't think that's a really, you know, usable option at this point. Professor Marianne Cummings, sorry to keep you waiting. What's on your mind? You know, I was going to I was going to talk about the March, the uh, decision this past week by the Supreme Court that dismissed this fellow Zubadias petition uh, requesting the testimony of the psychologists at the black site that he was tortured at for several years, apparently waterboarded 80 plus times. So he had a um, he, so he had a case. What's the from water? The what's the water court. bill alone for something like that? <laughs> That's, we have to. He might have reused the water. I mean, I don't even want to. I've got a paragraph. I don't even want to read it. It's it's horrible. Yeah, I, it so is. I don't want to read it. Uh, you know. So anyway, um, it turns out that uh, Stephen Meyer wrote the opinion of the majority. He joined the five conservative other five of the conservative judges and Stephen Breyer in, in, uh, and basically asking them to dismiss because it was it had issues of national security and uh, uh, one of the one 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 of the uh, Republicans or rather the conservatives was Gorsuch who wrote the opinion for the minority and he said, this is preposterous. I mean, this is just covering up embarrassment. None of this information is secret anymore. It is known that we do this. This guy should have, and besides which, those two contractors aren't even military people. They were just contracted by the CIA. It's a whole messy affair, but you know, it just kind of goes to my point I, I made a while back that I, I long ago stopped worrying about the Supreme Court. That's a shibboleth that, you know, centrist Democrats are always raising like, oh, but the Supreme Court, you've got to support these horrible Democrats over here. And actually, the Supreme Court judges in the last two or three years have been. Well, I was to say uncharacteristically, but that's been characteristic of Supreme Court judges for the most part is, you know, reserved, cautious, small C conservative. And I think it's the nature of the job where once you get there and it takes maybe a year or two to realize you don't have to answer to anyone anymore. I mean, you really, it's, that's, you know, that's one of the things that uh, people, uh, 
the the lifelong appointment is is something that people have uh, pointed out that maybe we need to reconsider. On the other hand, there is that. You know, you don't ever have to worry about your next job. So, uh, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about that later. However, um, you know, I was, uh, I found some, I actually found an amazing article. I'll post it in, in the chat. But, you know, um, we've got a fog of war. It's all, it, it's, it's a lot of propaganda. And uh, CNN had just, and other places debunked this, you know, these pictures of Zelensky, you know, in battle fatigues, manning the trenches, you know, and they had mm-hmm. to admit that that was, those were pictures from last year. Okay, so I just kind of got curious. Well, okay, where was he then? And it turns out he was at the front in Donbass last year. And there is a um, article in the Kiev Post, which has an, uh, an English language version online. And it, the article that I got to was, the, the incident was notable because uh, Zelensky kind of went off on a, uh, on a veteran. So the, the situation was, is that there's these, there are these protocols that were negotiated within the Minsk Accords for disengagement. Oh, this is where he, he attacked was, a, a, an, a, was it a, an Azov battalion member in front of the no, cameras, well, right? It was, it was a veteran that he, he told the veterans that, you know, to dis, to stand down, there were veterans uh, illegally living in these areas, harboring weapons. And he said he, he demanded that they be handed over. He gets into a fight with, uh, with an older uh, Ukrainian war vet and, and I guess he kind of went off on him because the guy told him to pound sand, you loser. And he goes, I'm not a loser. I'm 41 years old and I'm the president of a country and blah, blah, blah. You know, and uh, so uh, that was, um, you know, that was captured on video. But what was remarkable was the reactions to it. I mean, this fellow, Andrei Biletsky, head of the National Course and the Azov Battalion, now realize they are now part of the official security unit. And a lot of these guys are out there, you know, just kind of over the trenches, you know, facing off the rebels in the provinces. And he threatens Zelensky publicly on his YouTube channel. And he says, there's going to be hell to pay if you try to pull these people away or evict them from these towns. And, you know, like, basically, this is insubordination, like, writ large. You are telling the president of your com- country that, no, you're not calling the shots. Uh, meanwhile, there was uh, a gal who was um, in the party of, the, of Poroshenko, the previous president, and she is issued physical threats against him also. He says, this guy thinks he's immortal, something else. He said, it would be nice if somebody, you know, during this shelling that a bomb would go off and from a certain guy wearing, you know, white or blue shirt was referring to the fact that Zelensky used to uh, dress in civilian clothes when he went to the fronts to, um, you know, to talk to people. Th- that's just a... You're threatening the president of your country, like assassinating him. Um, but, you know, uh, there is a problem for Zelensky. I don't think he's, I mean, this is an amazing article on so many levels because it kind of reveals that there are protocols. He really was trying to, like, do a ceasefire. And apparently uh, one of the things that people now believe, according to uh, according to Scott Ritter, who I think we really should have on the show if yes. uh, Peter can 
arrange that yeah. because he says, you know, these guys, it's, it's not that the uh, the Azov Battalion is even the majority of the government uh, of of the national security forces. However, they seem to have an enormous outsized influence to their actual numbers, and they threaten people. And what's creepy is that there is actually a tolerance for this kind of threat, at least in the western part of of Ukraine. So. You know, I, uh, I I had mentioned before that um, that uh, Zelensky was one of these politicians named in the Panama Papers who has set up several. He set up several shell companies right before he be- was sworn in as president. Now I'm going to be generous and say he probably knows that he may not be able to stay in that country if he does anything. In fact, there was a New York Times article that I had just brought up, it was from, I think it was from this year, that, um, you know, the title was Armed Nationalists in Ukraine Pose a Threat Not Just to Russia. And that's the thing. These are armed groups that will not tolerate, who have publicly stated, they will not tolerate any politician that is going to call for a resumption of talks with Russia or anything, having a, a peaceful settlement that might end up in the provinces having autonomy, even if they are in uh, within the Ukraine Federation. So, uh, you know, they've got a problem. They, I mean, this is in the New York Times. This is not a, a paper that uh, is a paper that's pro-war, pro the interests of the neocons in our own Pentagon. But I think somebody is, you know, like sending up a warning, like, hey, guys, you know, we're not going to be able to have peace. You're going to find that if in your mind, you th- even if you're in your mind, you think you can subdue Russia, you're going to have these guys who yeah. actually have demands. I think, I think Lane in the chat room I think yeah. I think this is Lane. He's writing that the neo-Nazi community of Europe are all joining the Azov Brigade. You know, you yeah. re- you read about the French right-wing militia heading to Ukraine, and our beloved right-wingers heading off to fight for Ukraine. Uh, they'll be scooped up by the Azov Battalion. What is the other one? See, see what. C-14. C-14. That was an extension of, what was that? Uh, the um, Svoboda Party. Svoboda Party, that's right. Uh, these were the guys that have been bragging that if it hadn't been for them, those uh, protests, the maiden protests, you know, would have just been a gay pride parade, meaning because originally the protests were largely, wasn't really over, you, you know, uh, membership of NATO or the EU. It was over corruption. I mean, that's what they were, that's what the original, like, protests were about. And those were peaceful, but they were, you know, they were persistent. They they started in the late fall of that year, and they were going on through the winter. It was just when these guys who um, our, some of our diplomatic corps were talking to and, and encouraging, um, you know, they that they kind of took over and sort of made it a confrontation with the police. And, you know, we know what happened. They made it violent. Um, the Let's, other thing I wanted to make yeah, uh, is we, that we, even we, though... We, we want to talk to you yeah. about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. 
Okay. Did you know you're well, a particle um, physicist? Did you know you're no, a particle? No, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly an accountant these days, and I guess my main, jo- main job is begging for money, <laughs> which they gave us some. <laughs> I actually have to think about physics this year. It's a, it, How about that? But um, oh, Go ahead. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, but this is, the thing is, is that, no, I've been following, um, I, I'm a member of the ANS, and I've been, uh, we get notices from the International Atomic Energy Agency every every day, you know, I, I they, there's a, a newsletter that comes out, and uh, they're monitoring the situation. Um, again, uh, the people that... I didn't know, by the way, uh, Anne, Professor Anne, about the, the small uh, research reactor. If it's like research reactors that have been at American universities, it's about one one thousandth the power typically. It's like, a, like one MeV or less. And, and a lot of these things are the very low powered reactors are used for uh, making isotopes for industrial and mostly in the state's medical purposes. So it's like, so I don't know this particular one, but that's what I'm guessing it is. So um, in other words, those are probably not enough power, you know, to be a problem in walk away safe in case anything, you know, like cataclysmic happened like a tornado or some weather event. So I I don't worry so much about that. There is a um, uh, European Commission site that has all these monitors all over Europe and in and it's kind of neat because they they actually do give readings in real time. You it runs better on a Mac. I hear there's problems with the latest Windows uh, operating system and this site, but uh, I, it, Henry actually introduced me to it a while back, so it's it's kind of neat to look at. Um, I guess if you were just trying to take out a possible military power and you wanted to make it palatable for your troops, I would imagine you would, you know, sort of surround the nuclear reactors. There was one little notice, though, they haven't heard from, um, they haven't heard from the Chernobyl group in the last, at least as of eight o'clock this morning in the previous 12 hours. So there was a little bit of concern, but I haven't heard anything else. Okay. They've, they've been detached from the monitoring system, right, Marianne? From the AI, they've been detached from the AIE yeah. a, uh, monitoring systems. Yeah. The the two that they hold that the Russians hold. Well, there's yeah, and there there are uh, these systems on site. The European Commission is just sort of generic, you know, what's the uh, w- what's the ambient reading just all over Europe because they have these monitors all over Europe and if there was an uptick in like, you know, uh, an area, not a specific area, but a general region that they would have some concern, but that's what they're... So, yeah, the, the uh, prevailing winds, somebody did point out that the prevailing winds do blow toward Russia. However, if he gets up into the upper atmosphere, they don't blow toward Russia. They blow all over. And uh, Professor Ian would probably be able to, you know, describe that. Weren't they better. finding it in but, the milk, Cherno- the, the Chernobyl accident? They were finding it in milk in in London, right? Yeah, it was blowing up toward in, in Western Europe. I mean, they were saying, well, look, the, the you 
the, the Russians, the, the Soviets had a trick cigar blew up in their face and it's all blowing toward Russia. And then the wind changed. But what it had, the wind really hadn't changed. What had happened, it was the stuff was getting up into the upper, upper atmosphere. And there's some wind current that's a, that's kind of a residual effect of the Gulf Stream. And it was just kind of sucking it and pulling it up along to northern Europe. So, yeah, they were everybody was being concerned over that. Well, I'm trying to run this um, show. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but that, but anyway, what I'm saying is is that uh, we've got a we've got a real problem here. I mean, we, I mean, this is not my monkey or my circus, you know. So I, I all I'm all I can do is I've called my senators, I've called my congressmen, and said, please urge like a diplomatic solution. The Russians are still giving their you know their uh, demands, and they've been pretty consistent. I mean, I think what will happen is that we will, if, if this gets settled peacefully, or, you know, without major war breaking out, it will probably be a situation where the, the, the two eastern provinces and Crimea remain, you know, remain under autonomous, you know, has their own autonomous regions, the two Donbass areas stay in the Ukraine Federation, and, you know, everybody just kind of backs down. Now, it's pretty clear that the Western Ukrainians, Ukrainians are not all that, do not all, all that care too much for their neighbors to the Far East. So I can see why those people in those regions would, when you've got a hostile government, even though it, it even though somebody who was originally from your region as president is this person who appears to not have all that much power. Or he, or he is constrained. I don't think it's a personal fault of his, but this is just the situation he's in. And look, you know, I, I, one more thing I wanted to say that yes, the the party that was most far uh, far right, which had over ten percent of of the seats in two thousand fourteen, has dwindled since below three percent. However, the middle parties are still pushing the same kind of stuff. Uh, one rock musician, what was the name of it? I had to, the voice party. It's got 20 members of parliament. They pushed a bill, again, reintroducing the same thing that was introduced in 2014, you know, establishing Ukraine as the language for, of all official business. But the other point was that, um, you know, I, there, there are several articles on this. I can also put them in the chat to look them up. But, um, there was an official holiday that was voted on at the end of 2018 and uh, celebrated a New Year's 2019 for, what was his name, Stefan Bandera, the Nazi collaborator. They, they established that, <laughs> that parliament had established a, you know, just three years ago, just a little over three years ago, a national holiday celebrating a Nazi collaborator who only vote broke with the Nazis and then ended up killing more Jews during World War, during World War II. It, it's, there is a problem. I mean, somehow this stuff in at least Western Ukrainian society is normalized and tolerated. As yeah. much as we talk about Nazis, you know, some even a state having a day celebrating a Nazi collaborator in the United States would be unheard of. 
I mean, just you wouldn't do it. So, you know, maybe these two provinces, unless they completely purge them of all the Russians, that if you've got this kind of situation in Western Ukraine, I well, think what are the demands the- of the Russians? Isn't that an important question? Yeah, I think yeah, it's the, the they the NATO and the EU. If we're going to negotiate, we need to know what that is. NATO and the yeah, EU. Yeah, no, no, the demands were that, that, they, that Ukraine stay neutral, not part of NATO. That was, like, probably their most important demand. The second was that, it, well, for the Minsk Accords, it was that the provinces have their own autonomous governments but can remain in Ukraine Federation, the latest demand was that the, uh, the, that the provinces gain their independence. But I can imagine if NATO is off the table, I think there's a lot of things that are flexible. Yeah. And I can't remember, but I think those are the main two. I mean, when you look at it, Russia, whatever you think of Putin, Russia has a legitimate concern considering all of the hostile missiles and bases almost outlining you know, their, their, their western border, uh, you can see why they would want to have those buffer states and, and without the ability of NATO to put missiles like right up against their border. All right, that's... And also retain control of Crimea as a strategic asset that's essentially been part of their country for over 200 years. Yeah. So, so I, I just want to address something here, Professor Marianne. There's mm-hmm. backlash. I get some. You get some for critical thinking. And I, I just want to say something because I'm seeing it in the in the chat room. There's no dogmatism here. You have to understand why somebody is doing what they're doing. My I, I don't want to recommend the top of my show, but in America, people pick a side and then cherry pick the narrative that suits them. And you always have to look at evil and ask why it's happening. That doesn't mean you condone the actions of Putin or Hitler, or Donald Trump, or Saddam, or Assad, or, or but until you, know. you get in their head and try to figure out why they are doing what they're doing, you cannot have peace. And I see a lot of uh, pushback from people who listen to this show complaining when you explain the grievances of those who we do not like or approve of. There's a fear. This is, again, I don't want to go go listen to the top of the show. You know, we weren't allowed to find out why Osama bin Laden flew those planes into the building. Good, you're either with us or against it, and you were not allowed to understand their grievances because even talking about their grievances dignified evil and so we remained just ignorant enough to believe the president when he said 
the Taliban attacked us and Saddam Hussein attacked us. Getting into the head of these people is not condoning it. It's understanding it. You, ha you have to understand people who are aggrieved. Even, you know, the, the white separatists in our country, you, you have to understand what their grievances are. It's not condoning. And, and I see this, I get emails all the time now. Uh, listen, I, I make a lot of mistakes here, a lot. Uh, and I am a little too opinionated. But part of my Jesuit training at my Orthodox Hebrew school was to think, to do brain exercise. You know, in, in, why are you? Anyway, so go ahead, Professor Marianne. Can I just make a... It really is a censorship. I mean, I've had two uh, videos removed from Facebook. Which well, not the, one was a one one was article it was just saying and I had a comment like this is just stupid and counterproductive when I posted an article from ESPN website about National Hockey League players getting death threats because they were born in Russia I said this is like monumentally stupid um, get in line remember was, Dan Rather telling telling David Letterman when he broke down and cried and I like Dan Rather but. George W. Bush is my president, and he says march, and I'm going to march. No, Dan. That's terrible. No, that's not in America. And you know, yeah. uh, that's another thing. Remember, we used to talk about the headless nails that the Bush administration, the Cheney administration, was putting into our national uh, security apparatus, into our State Department people that could not be fired. Well, you know, we've got Victoria Newland, who for some reason is now Assistant Secretary of State. Again, I think she was Under Secretary of State during the Obama years. And she and her boss, Dick Cheney, and Zbigniew Brzezinski and Paul Wolfowitz, I mean, their attitude toward Russia wasn't just containment. They thought that they could crush Russia, that they could defeat it and break it up. I mean, and that was their big right. goal. And I, I'm thinking, you know, you might be able to do that and the world might be just one desolate, you know, nuclear wasteland at the end. But Somebody in the chat room, we do have to wrap it up. Somebody in the chat room said, there are some people who never speak an ill word about Vladimir Putin. Well, you know, on this show, we rarely speak an ill word about Donald Trump. On this show, <laughs> and maybe we're being short-sighted, it's a given, it's a given that these people are bad. We, 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 you know, we know that. So maybe we're, you know, a little too hip for the, the too cool for school. And, you know, again, I'm, I don't believe we are, but I'm just saying like, we just assume that everybody knows Vladimir Putin is dangerous. We just assume Donald Trump is dangerous. So why not talk about something you can't hear I mean, you can say, you, know, you can say, can I, can okay, Putin, bad, 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 very bad. Okay. Now what? Can you I know? make a quick point here, David? Yes. Uh, so whoever said that obviously wasn't listening to my uh, thoughts on this, uh, you know, a week or so ago. 
where I went through a long laundry list of reasons why Vladimir Putin is awful. Right. And he's no friend of the West and he's no friend, uh, no friend of uh, the left. Uh, he's not on the left. He doesn't want to reconstitute the Soviet Union. He wants to reconstitute uh, a strong Russia with defensible borders. And that's more similar to the czarist uh, regime than it is to the Soviet Union. Uh, but I, I would like to address a point that's been constantly raised in the chat, and that is it is not up to us to give away pieces of Ukraine on their behalf. And that is absolutely true. None of us are in the position to do that. What we are in the position to do is to advise against giving Ukrainians false hope that they're going to get their entire country back without causing World War III. And to suggest that the Ukrainians resist an army that is uh, three times as large as theirs, with more sophisticated weaponry, with absolute air superiority, is immoral, in my view. And I am not willing to encourage other people to fight to the last drop of someone else's blood. The, the other thing is, and I'm not going to, again, I don't want to be dogmatic. It is the, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, that NATO and the EU are doing a disservice to Ukraine by luring it to the West, knowing that they're buttressed up against a gigantic lion that doesn't want that. It, it's probably in, in the best of all possible worlds, I think Pangloss used to say that, in the best of all possible wor worlds, Ukraine would have the autonomy to leave and join NATO and the EU and become obese. But <laughs> it's not in their best interest. If we really cared about the people of Ukraine and not the 13 oligarchs and their money in Ukraine, we would encourage cooperation between Russia and Ukraine and make sure that there's peace there through trade and not hostilities. That's what the strongest, most powerful, we proved how strong we are once again. I mean, we can shut down Russia short of nuclear war. We, we I think we have demonstrated that we can turn off Russia. Well, you can turn Russia off, but we, Russia could turn the planet off. So the best thing to do is make sure the people of Ukraine, I, I 3.5 million refugees right now. I can't see how uh, joining the EU is going to make that better. Just, you know. Uh, we, we, you know. We've got to get the Russians out of there as quickly as possible without creating a larger conflict. And the only way to do that is through negotiations. And if negotiations means making concessions, 
So something has to give on the Ukrainian side. I'm sorry. You know, you know, I wish it wasn't true. But you know is. what it is? The problem is that we, we do have to wrap it up. The problem is we just lost Afghanistan. So we, you know, you're at a bar. I get into a lot of bar fights. And when I when I lose a bar fight, I want everybody to know that I'm not afraid to fight. So I go pick a fight just to make sure everybody knows that I'm still tough. And this is the problem. We were humiliated in Afghanistan. And if you don't think Biden and the Pentagon isn't taking that personally, you are sorely mistaken. And th this is their chance to show that they, they're still in the game. You know, we had Lawrence, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and somebody, he said something really shocking. He was Colin Powell's chief of staff in the lead up to the in, illegal invasion of Iraq. And he said, you got to understand, after 9-11, they were angry. They took it personally inside the White House. They wanted revenge. They, there was like white hot rage coming from these people. They're not calculating. This is their... They're ashamed of themselves, and they should be, quite frankly. But they're going to get us into more trouble. Professor Marianne, and we, we do have to wrap it up. No, what, what I was saying, and, and I'm going to put this article up in the chat, was that the, the astonishing thing was that there's quite a lot of detail already worked out in protocols. They did, engine, they did manage ceasefires, you know, most of yes, last year at various and they were doing it city by city area by area there in other words with a framework for that that's been worked out by diplomats you know from from germany from france from you know both sides both the ukrainians and and the runaway provinces and and russia so we do have a framework it's just that the u.s has never pressured ukraine to abide by them now this the, uh, Zelensky was elected in part as the guy who would resolve these issues, but he's got a problem. He's got members of his own national security forces openly threatening him and members of parliament feeling they can openly threaten him. If the, if, and these people are adamant. Anyone that you know comes to a deal with the Russians or those provinces, they will not accept all I'm right. telling you, train, you being trained to be a stand-up comic, he's in his comfort zone. Tough crowd. He's used to it. <laughs> I'm serious. He's got, we have to wrap it up. Let's go up to Joe in Norway, who is torturing me. You brought <laughs> no. it in exactly in an hour. I made it. <laughs> How's that for timing? What, so what do you got there? I have a tomato salad that I'll just make a bruschetta. Just scrape a piece of toast with garlic and then put that on top with tomato and basil. This is a quick pickle, uh, cucumber, shallot, uh, rice, vinegar, and dill, and white pepper. And this is a, a potato salad with the pickles we made and uh, celery and dill, different herbs. And this is the uh, steamed eggplant dish. Wow. That, uh, with soy and garlic and chili. It's going on. When, nice. is, when, when is Zoom 
when are we going to be able to reach through the screen and just grab it and have some? <laughs> Professor Marianne, you're a ph particle physicist. How many years away till we can just do a 3D printing of his food? Uh, well, according to the replicator technology, about 300 years. Well, what about a 3D printer? Can't he just, can't we print his food out? Yeah, you can print the physical dimensions of his food. They'll be made of like plastic. <laughs> or maybe we could like, you know, maybe you can just squeeze little, oh yeah, that's right. You could just squeeze little protein paste and then have chemists in New Jersey come up with the flavors, exact flavors for eggplant and dill and so Oh, God damn. I think I've got an idea for a new restaurant change. I like okay. the way you think. Yeah. I got to think about this a little bit. Well, it'll be in the metaverse, so then it's, you could be eating anything. Well, that was what I was going to talk about with <laughs> Professor Harvey J.K. So uh, I don't mean to... I just, I'm just going to say thank you. I, I am blessed. We are all blessed. Professor Adnan Hussein. Guerrilla History, the Mudgeless podcast with Dr. Juan Cole. So that's everybody should go go uh, listen to the Mudgeless podcast and give to Rahima.org. Look at this food that Joe in Norway is cooking. Everybody who comes to America should have access to this kind of food. It is a human right. And Rahima.org provides exactly this kind of food, good, healthy. I, sh I should point out that all of the dishes I prepare for the show are 100% vegetarian. Right. And, meaning and, vegan. And Rahima.org is a food pantry for refugees. And we don't have enough here in America. 15,000 we took in last year. You look at what the European Union is taking in. They're taking in 3.5 million refugees just from Ukraine and giving them health care. And we, we can barely take 15,000 in. Uh, shame on this country once again. Uh, 15,000 refugees, if they come from Europe, uh, they're migrants if they come from the South. Interesting. How we, what we call people. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you, <clears throat> Professor Ann Lee. Amazing job. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. I hope to see all of you at office hours. And again, uh, we get angry, but we're trying to find out what's going on in Ukraine. And we know whose side we're on. We're on the side, as Davy Mammel said, the great Davy Mammel said, we're on the side of the working people of the world. And I'm on the side of the slothful, lazy people of the world. I, I, you know, workers <laughs> of the world unite. Also, lazy, sloppy, depressed people who can't get out of bed unite. Uh, anybody who's not an is that, oligarch. Wait, is that my introduction? I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Let me. I, uh, I, I appreciate that. You don't need to play the song after that wonderful introduction. Well, let's play. Uh, play if Alan's not going to be here, play my play my original song. Harvey J.K. 
There you go. He's got a lot to say. Even if I don't. Thomas uh, we're going to bring in Dave and PA and Chad. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. I have to go get some beans. Harvey JK. So. Are they ready? Well, it's my show now. Just leave this song on all time. Worse than hold. Harvey JK wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take the sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. So good. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK. Lima bean. Oh. This is a human right that all Americans should be entitled to a meal like this. And that's why everybody should give to Rahima.org. God, that's so good. Thank you, Leslie. Mmm. Welcome back. Where, where's my uh, where's my body? Where's your what? Yeah. Well, did Alan say he couldn't make it tonight? I don't know. I thought he was invited. I I assume so. I can't. He and I have been doing a lot of a lot of shows this week, and I'm and earlier today we recorded one with the with R.J. Eskow, Richard Eskow for the Zero Hour. Wow. And we both agreed to each other tonight with you. I don't know where he is. I hope well, he's okay. Well, I hope he's not okay. I'd hate to think that he just didn't want to do the show. I hope something bad happened to him. I'd hate to think that he just decided not to do the show. That's Profe fair. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's fair. Very fair. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of countless books, including Take Hold of Our History, FDR on Democracy, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. He's written the definitive book biography of Thomas Paine that President Obama is has read about a year ago and or at least he has it on his shelf yes hey I watched as usual I couldn't sleep last night and I watched I don't know why I watched Obama's appearances some of his appearances at the White House Correspondents Dinner 
How did you? Is that a collection that it's one on watches? YouTube. It's on YouTube. Everything oh, is. On no YouTube. kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Boy, did I love him. It was like I felt, I fell. I, 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 there's some, I was. Well, you don't want me to deconstruct him for no, you. Got, I no, that's why I'm bringing it up because I've changed. I was rooting for him. I understood the way of the world and it's so hard to get things done and he's doing his best. And if only the evil Republicans would get out of the way and let him, you know, and he was, you know, well, he's adorable. Yeah. Do you remember the campaign of, oh, that have been 2000 and what was that? The campaign of 2008? Yeah. The first time? Yeah. yeah. And you remember who he ran against, right? Uh, just barely. John McCain. Right. Okay. And they both had a book out. They both had the kind of presidential campaign book. His was called what was it called the Ark of Justice or something to that effect? Or is it something about the you know like that? And and McCain had a book out which was sort of a a memoir and a commentary on you know his view of America I guess. And I had a seminar of about I don't know fifteen students, predominantly young women, and overwhelmingly progressive group of students. And I had them read both of these. This was in the fall of 2000, before the November elections. This was to, because I was having them write. Uh, I guess they were going to be writing an open letter to the candidates or an open letter to what, you know, the idea was they were going to write a, an opinion piece directed at the candidates. So they had to read each of these books. And, and I think I had them also read Obama's memoir, which was not exactly true. But, but the point I'm going to say is that to my amazement, they much preferred McCain's work. He had a better ghostwriter. Their... Well, it wasn't just that. It's also the fact that they they smelled the problem with Obama's book. It was a try. It was what what was it under Clinton? And who was that guy? That, Dick Morris. His, his, his... Dick Morris. Yes. You know where I was going. It, it was the triangulation where he would make some kind of, you know, progressive statement and then he'd work his way around basically to literally un sorry castrate it to un right. take it down take it out of the knees you know right. that kind of thing right and they said what's this guy about so you know i mean i i had you know i i read it and i i was at times excited because he did he did talk about the things i wanted him to talk about and then he came around to a point where he had no idea what he was on about. It was actually it was not unlike, I can tell you, you know, I took apart Biden's say to the union message last week. He hit the high, you know, hit the right points, but there was no sense. There was no dynamic in the speech. Well, Obama's was beyond that. He actually undid his own arguments. So I, I never had, sorry, I'm not taking pride in this. I would have loved to have seen a progressive Obama presidency, but early on, I just, I had no confidence that this guy was going to be a progressive at all. And I, um, though, and I can tell you, I was even more foolish than most people. I wanted John Edwards. Yeah, I, me, the, too. Uh, me too. I voted for John Edwards. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk about a facade and a, and a, and a story and all that. Mm. But, but at least 
his plat the two americas he was talking it was the only he was the only yes. one talking about the two americas right and that was exactly the thing and you know one figured at least somebody would go into the white house with that kind of mentality or ethos um but boy you know boy did he disappear i saw him some i, I saw him a few years later after his divorce you know the the terrible end of his marriage and the and the stories that came out my daughter was actually friends with his daughter at a place you just adore harvard law school and uh and he was there at the uh at the graduation ceremony that's where we were and you know he was dressed like the southern lawyer with the white suit that's something he and uh david duke actually had in common i recall david duke liked white suits when i lived in louisiana you know uh, uh, remember southern sam North. irvin from the yes. water guy, I'm just a country. North, Cal I'm just North a, Carolina, right? Yeah, I'm just a, uh, I'm just a small town country lawyer. I'm just trying to understand this, <laughs> the small town country lawyer from Harvard University. I'm just a, he went to mother, <laughs> a a segregationist, Sam Irvin, from the Watergate yeah, right. hearings, who everybody loved, just a small town, southern lawyer, Harvard. The enemy of my enemy is. My friends, so you don't like Richard Nixon, Watergate hearings, Sam Irvin come, comes across the as enemy a, of a my friend. enemy is my friend if as long as he didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> but I'm giving you a, a special gonna, dispensation, your daughter a special dispensation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you have to meet she like she and she likes you, that's why you should. Well then in that case, then Exactly. She exactly she's fantastic. It was that she was there that night, you know, that night in, in Brooklyn at the Bell House. Oh, uh, and with Michael. It, yeah, right. And your daughter was there, too. My daughter night. was there. And that was... When I met face to face. I, I remember... Fell Michael, in love and there was no going back. Yeah. Michael did a show in Brooklyn and I felt 80 years younger. His audience yeah. was there and I was... It was just so great, and I and I remember leaving, and thinking this is the beginning of something. This is the beginning of a movement that that there that he's yeah. there are people that he's leading something, and you know if I could just watch it, I I will learn so much. And God damn it! Yeah, I. Uh... I, a few people reached out to me today because of, I don't even know why they saw me somewhere and and they said, oh, I, 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 I'm I a fan of yours ever since you were on the Michael Brooks show. And yeah. I just today was talking to Lorna and some other people and saying, man, what a loss. What That's a where loss. most of my most of my listeners came to me through Sam and Michael. That's where most of them. Oh, I, yeah. They used to come right. to me through Jimmy Dore, but uh, I think. <laughs> they they left through the door. Uh, hey, you are speaking of doors. Speaking of doors, have you? Did you hear about? The, I mean, today I got was posed the question. This thing that was really hot on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Who the hell knows what? Are there more doors or wheels in the world? You know, with I, all I that's can't... going on in the world, what do you think is the greatest invention? The door or the wheel? Mm, the greatest invention you've turned it into a new kind of question that's interesting now let me ask you a question what what keeps a marriage going 
a wheel or a door? I'm going to suggest the door is more necessary. <laughs> I know to, we, to maintain I, a maybe marriage. I don't know where you're going because you can't slam a wheel. Right, <laughs> you went where I thought you were going. Right. <laughs> uh, are there more wheels or doors? But you can go. But but at least, or maybe the wheel is more like you know, it's all going in circles, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so what's the answer? I would say more wheels. Well, it, for, my first instincts told me doors because I was sitting in a room with two doors. Right. But when I heard this question, but I immediately started to look around and I thought about, well, people think about cars, but cars with four wheels often have four doors, right? Oh, that's a good point. You know and, what? I didn't think about that because I immediately thought of cars. But those aren't real yeah. doors. Are those doors? Yeah, 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 they are. And then okay. then uh, I, for, some of my former students jumped in. By the way, I will tell you, though, what really convinced me is I looked at my toy cars. And that's what convinced me there are more because the, often toy cars don't have doors that open, but they have wheels all the time. So and then I thought about all the other wheels that keep things moving in machinery and all that. It was I think it's got to be wheels, I think. Now, you're a car guy. You are a car guy. Yeah, I am a car guy, right? No, I mean, not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know engines, but I know, I know, I like cars and I, yes. I always find that uh, interesting that somebody who's on the left is fascinated by cars. I don't know why, but, you know, Tom Hayden, one of my first interviews on this show uh -huh. was with Tom Hayden. Uh, everybody should read uh, Tom Hayden. Uh he wanted to know what car I drove. He walked me to the parking lot and he, he hmm. wanted to see my car. It was a Japanese car and he was not happy. Ah, okay. And it's interesting. Yeah. Tom Hayden, of all people, you would I you would just think that people on the left there's something was it can I just ask though Tom Hayden, I associate with Michigan because of the because of Port Huron, Port Huron and yeah. where he went to grad school. But where was he actually from? I don't know. I'm going to assume Michigan. Uh, Professor Marianne would probably know. But he ended up in California. Uh, yeah. Running, and he became a I had contact oh, with him very late. I had con oh, hang on. We have, hang on. We have, a, we have Professor Marianne. What, what is the answer? Yes. Uh, he was the one of the original authors of the Port Huron Statement. You know, yeah, that was my point. But where was he originally from? Yeah. I don't know if he was Hmm. I'll ask Al Gore's internet. I, I, I had contact. I think it's Detroit. I, I, something tells me that yeah. he told me, I think his father. Somebody's Googling it now, I assume. Yeah, that's but, cheating. Uh, Can't Google. Yeah. That's cheating. Yeah, I, I, I had contact with him because I was really interested about some of the references he made to, to Thomas Paine. So this was back in the early 2000s. And. And I, I was friendly with Todd Gitlin, who who we also just lost him. often referred to Thomas Paine. Yeah, that that to me was a Todd problematic to me was one man. Of those, problematic man. Yeah, but but very. I mean, the times that I spent with him, he he always challenged me in a good way, and I really really appreciated it. Um, He's a bit well, yes, he he, but some of the things. He said about Ralph Nader stuck in my crawl. Yeah, I see. I don't know about that. I can't yeah. speak to that. I mean, he, he passed away and he chronicled the 60s. What, he taught at Columbia or something? Didn't he become a... 
Yeah, for, for for quite some time he was out west, and then he but he, he went to Columbia to the uh, yeah. journalism school and sociology. Right. But but you know it's interesting. You, as long as you mention Ralph Nader, and I'm doing this recollection of my work on pain. Ralph Nader issued a pamphlet, which I, I it's downstairs. I just came across it again in my collection, which he modeled after Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And next time I'm on, remind me, I'll, I'm going to show and tell it. Okay. okay. Um, it'll take me too long to run downstairs right now. But uh, yeah. In fact, I'd wanted to talk to Nader about that, but I've never had contact with him and you've never introduced me. Yeah. So you know, I'm going to try to. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to. I'm on. Uh, yeah. The radio show. Let, let's talk tomorrow about that. You're still doing that radio show, right? It's it, it yeah he's amazing he just yeah, I, so I'm awe of him yeah I mean he's the greatest he several magazines have called him the greatest American top one hundred of all time and there are some who say the greatest American next to Ben Franklin that if you if you mm. add up all that he has given this country quietly yeah he's up there with ben franklin it, it's has he ever mentioned matt rothschild to you uh matt rothschild was here was here in wisconsin it was editor of the progressive magazine before that i believe he started with nader in what didn't nader launch the um what was the what was the magazine of the project around multinationals would it be i don't know Multinational Watch? Years ago. What? Is it Multinational it Watch? Yeah, something that Monitor? Was his, did he do Multinational Monitor? Was that probably. Was I mean, there is prob probably. I, it was Matt, Matt, who was the editor of The Progressive, which is headquartered, you know, was published out of Madison from it, still is. He's no longer with the magazine, to my knowledge. But he, when he and I would get together, he would talk about Nader. He was because he had worked with him. A Rothschild writes for The Progressive. Yeah, he was the editor for right, a whole right. slew of years. Right, right. Yeah. Right, right. I haven't seen him in a few years, but we would get together when I go down to Madison. And he interviewed me a few times for his podcast. Well, it wasn't a podcast. It was a radio show. What am I talking about? It was a radio show he had. Right, right. So what I want to tell you what you have wrought. And by the way, Liam McEnany is coming up, one of the original gangsters of Office Hours. So I think uh -huh. I think we're coming up on two years. And I want hmm. so some of you have already heard this story, but it bears repeating because no Harvey K. No office hours. You were doing my show. We were doing it on right. Skype. And then one night you said to me, why don't you do it? Why don't we do it on Zoom? Have you tried Zoom? And I go, yeah, yeah. And you showed me how to use Zoom. And then- but No, here's the interesting thing. I convinced you to use Zoom, but I have never, here's the interesting thing. My wife, I have never even sent a Zoom invite to anyone. Ah. I ask others to send the Zoom invites to me. But so at the time when I was encouraging you, I had in mind exactly what ended up transpiring that it would have this, it would take on this whole unique life. Well, let me you tell did. you, I knew it would. Let me tell you what, what's going on. So uh, before we were live streaming this show on YouTube, we would do yes. a live recording of the show on Zoom and people 
showed up. I was shocked. People showed up and there's a, a, a virtual studio audience. And we had office hours on Friday night at 8 p.m. We're coming up on two years. Never met, I've never missed an office hours. Every, a lot of people have never missed an office hours. And I'm going to read you the lineup, but I'm going to tell you where, then I'm going to tell you where we're heading. Uh, because it's a and I do I do want to say one thing just to make it clear, I I I pulled out in good part because it was devastating my weekends. Oh, it, it's I mean, it just literally took so many. I mean, because it was so hard to leave on a Friday night. I, I was up to one in the morning at times. I know, I know, and I just couldn't keep that up. Well, I mean, I could keep it up if 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 it wasn't for the fact that I was sitting in the kitchen by myself. My wife had already gone to bed, right. and it was you, just. You would drink Japanese wine, I remember. I Japanese whiskey. Oh, Japanese whiskey. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So the, we we have Joe in Norway prepares and organizes it. We have I start from eight till nine. You can co-host with me if you want, and then mm-hmm. we have. Uh, I was co-hosting with I you know. at the outset, and then Lane. And, okay reports from CM and talks gives us an update. And I just tell everyone, I don't know if you still, I never forget, Lane was the first one who would, who would sort of conk out for a while. Yeah. And yeah. then wake up. Right. And I kept thinking to myself, I should do that. I should conk out and then uh-huh. wake up. I wouldn't have such a tough weekend. And then, uh, then we have uh, Steve K teaching guitar. Phenomenal. A guided tour of the Twilight. Steve, what's his name? I, I, Koala Ch- I always mispronounce his last name but he's going to teach guitar and music and then we have was he with us at the beginning steve yeah then we have a guy was he short... part of the players no no but, no he wasn't no. okay then professor john has a guided tour of the twilight zone he, he he plays an episode of the twilight zone and explains and then we discuss it which is like you know phenomenal Fantastic. It really is. And then it just because I, I, I don't know if I told you as we were first, you know, going, I there was there was a, an older married couple older than I am who were watching and they reached out to me because they, they wanted to talk. They're from Southern California. And the husband was one of the directors of Second City in uh, Chicago hmm. for some time. And the wife, I forget what she was. She, she was actually had. Yeah, she was teaching at one of the Cal campuses, something sort of theatrical. And I said to them, "It would be great if you have ideas. You know, as this develops, this could become like a 1930s variety show kind of thing." And you know, we talked. Actually, we talked for some weeks. But in the meantime, office hours was developing on its own. It had. It was like it was organic. Really, I really. What happened is I like you. I kind of stepped away and they they took it over and it's kind of like Chautauqua. I think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, that that's a, that's a good example. That's a good you know analogy, yeah. Their lectures, we have Professor Hussein who is I mean this is so generous at 8:30 on Saturday morning, he is doing week 6 of his class that he teaches at Queen's University, Jewish and Muslim parables and philosophical well, you know, fiction. Adnan Hussein, I hope he's listening. He's really a bot, you know. I know. 
I didn't you want just, to say. You just wind him up and he goes. He's amazing. <laughs> so if you if, if I'm you, not you're there, tell me in the in the tell in me the you're chat real. that you're not upset. Uh, we have uh, we also have Falco in Belgium, who is running the, our war room in Ukraine. He's in Belgium, but he's reporting at uh, midnight on uh, Ukraine, and there'll be a group discussion about Ukraine midnight. And then Hart. how about that fellow who is in in Beijing or somewhere in Shanghai or wherever? No, Remember no, the, no, at the no, outset, no. that's somebody different. That's okay, somebody different. Uh, and then we have uh, Harsh at one in the morning is showing two short docs about uh, Indian elections, open dialogue. And then we have a reading. If you go on too long, you're going to make me conk out. Read, then at 10 a.m., there's a reading of the Great Class War from 1914 to 1918. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm utterly inadequate in those. Are you guys, I'm, it's a good thing I dropped out. Seriously. At 11 a.m. on Saturday. Can I say something to Rodrigo yeah. as long as he's commenting in the chat? Yeah. Rodrigo, you may recall some some weeks ago, was hoping we could get uh, Nomiki Konst yeah. to come on the show. And and she's she's definitely willing. She's been away for a while. Um, and she's now back, a bit worn out from a, a big trip. But I, I will try to do my best to, uh, to talk to her and try to figure well, out how to schedule that. So here's yeah. so let me tell you what's happening with office hours. So it's grown into a community and you get to know everybody. We've done many, you know, benefits, mutual aid, things I know nothing about. And we had a meeting yesterday and it, uh, it occurred to me where this is heading. You do huh. know, you know that Facebook is now meta. I think that's the name. Yeah, and then, I think so. I, I was never on Facebook, but sure. And Microsoft bought Activision, which makes computer games. Have you? So you know about the virtual world, right? Mm, not really. Not much. Well, I figured this was about as virtual as it got. I realized that in three years, and this is an insane idea, but no more insane than Mark Zuckerberg changing Facebook to Meta. Aha. Uh -huh. We're only a few clicks away from turning office hours into a small town where you can put on goggles and we can have a mayor and a librarian and a brothel and a massage parlor and a bordello and a fire department and what's uh, the difference between a bordello and a brothel could you help 50 me understand bucks, that 50 bucks <laughs> bordellos uptown <laughs> brothels way uptown uh got it but okay. we, we, we will if you go into these beautiful video games that aren't even games yeah. that my kids have forced me uh -huh. into it's like another world and we're only if you build a community it's only a matter of time before you just put on goggles and and we can have and stay a, there and a preschool you can have a preschool you know we could have a we could have you know whatever but uh it's crazy it sounds absolutely made for the matrix yes it, it it, it's 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 very scary. Does it scare you? Does the what? It, what yes. 
when you look back, I was looking at, you know, I watch YouTube and I like watching videos from like 79 and 80. And oh, the, yeah. the technology that we had in 1980. Yeah. And what we have now. What, what do you think was the scariest, the, the thing that was hardest for you to get used to that you didn't think was going to be a good thing? The hardest to get used to? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, I'm about, what am I, about 10 years older than you are, I think? Maybe, yeah. So I think the hardest thing to get in my head was to come to grips with the fact that for better or worse, I was part of a generation who imagined that things would actually get better, steadily better. Right. In a, in a, both in a prosperity sense and a social democratic sense. And I, when I was in the course of graduate study, when I came out in 76 with a PhD, I, I just, I could not believe that the world had seemed to radically shift that the idea of prosperity and social democracy and the, the advance of labor, all the things that I honestly had come to believe, you know, I, 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 when the war in Vietnam would come to an end, things could be so great is what I figured. And, you know, uh, it was tough at first. I mean, my life got better in certain ways, but the world around me was not the world that I expected to emerge with a PhD and engage. It's interesting um, that you say that because I remember in the late seventies thinking what, you know, Watergate was over. Vietnam was over. Jimmy Carter, uh, a mediocrity, but he was president. Yeah. And the moral arc of the universe was bending towards justice. And I was I figured it was bending towards Ronald Reagan. Well, this is what I thought. This is mm. exactly what this was before Reagan. And I, I remember yeah. thinking, boy, uh, I'm never going to have an opportunity to be courageous. I was reading about all the people in the 50s who stood up to Joe McCarthy and the 60s, all the people who stood up to the war, Daniel Ellsberg, you know, all those people. I said, you know, things are going to get really boring and there's going to be no opportunity for courage. And then Reagan became president. Yeah, I wish the courage had, had occurred to people more aggressively when Carter was president. Yeah. I, I remember, I swear, I remember reading an op-ed piece by a rabbi who, and I thought it was in the New York Times, but it may it Rabbi Baruch Korf. Remember Baruch Korf, Korf, Nixon's rabbi, Baruch Korf? Oh, God. Remember yeah, him? Well, vaguely do. He was such an embarrassment. What I was going to say is this, this argument was that, that he couldn't, that it would never, he couldn't choose between the two the two terrible candidates, Ford and Carter. And, the, and he, this might be the first time he wouldn't vote. Now, I had only gotten to vote one time before in 72, but I was living in Louisiana in 76, and there was no need to vote because they, it, they would all, I mean, it was Carter's election in, right. in Louisiana. It was never, never in doubt. But I had no desire. I was determined not to vote for Carter. And, you know, I, we don't need to go back over all the reasons. But... And, but, you know, and oddly enough, 
you know, I, I wanted Ted Kennedy to beat him in the primaries. But then I just read, you know, I just read something the other day about, you know, that really Chappaquiddick aside, that really quest, really challenged me to rethink my my interest in Ted Kennedy. I got to look into it more. It had something to do with his that he, too, might well have been a neoliberal at that moment. I got to find out more. He was definitely in favor of national health care, but. It was something that I was reading the other day, which led me to wonder if maybe that was just one thing and everything else. I just don't know yet. So I you know what I watched last night on YouTube at four in the morning? Ted Kennedy's interview with Roger Mudd in 1979, the infamous interview with Roger Mudd that I didn't get to see back then. I don't even think we had VHS tapes in 1979. And it was huh. a big thing. The question in 1979 was, was Teddy Kennedy going to challenge Jimmy Carter? Oh, yeah. Challenging an incumbent. And he gave this interview to Roger Mudd that was a car crash, almost as bad as Chappaquiddick. It was, uh, right? Wasn't it? Uh, I, d I actually don't know that interview. On YouTube, look it up. I'll send you the link. I, I, I'm, I, sh I probably should. I, I still have a feeling, and keep in mind, this is too many years later to me, for me to be anything but nostalgic for a moment, perhaps. But I don't think Reagan could have beaten Kennedy, however, however damaged he was. R Reagan did not. R Reagan could only win because Carter was so bad. That was like that's like. Trump could only win because Hillary Clinton was so well, dull. Yeah, I mean, who did more damage to the Carter administration's chances of a a second term? Uh, the hostage situation or Ted Kennedy? Don't you run into trouble? I mean, Reagan ran against Ford. Well, here's, here's the thing. We can, you can look at those things and, and, and make a good sort of cocktail party or dinner party kind of set of arguments. But I, I don't think it takes into account that working men and women were utterly, utterly fed up with Jimmy Carter. He had literally screwed them. I mean, he brought in Volcker. Okay. He, I mean, he brought in Volcker who decided that the only way to tame the, you know, tame the economy was to screw workers. He rose and he raised in, and, interest. And rates. they, and isn't that and a lot of those people didn't vote for Reagan. They just didn't vote, which is what enabled Reagan to, to win. Right. And that's that's significant. So, I, you know, these other things, you know, clearly didn't help his case. And it was, you know, you, ever, you know, that expression is the cherry on top. What happened in the desert when he was trying to, you know, to send the helicopters to uh, to Tehran. That was like the cherry on top to an already ridiculous and absurd presidency. I, I know some people like him and they're going to think I'm unfair, but seriously speaking, it was not a good time at all, at all. I will I will take the Iranian hostage situation over what's going on right now. It's positively quaint compared. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I. And they did come, I think they came home healthy. Hostages? Yeah. Yeah. None, the Canadians worked out the deal, right? Right. Ben Affleck, I thought, yeah. did it. Yeah, that's it. You got it. Yeah. CIA and Canadians. Uh, 
are you writing? What are you what's what are you working on? Well, I, I'm not. I've been reading a lot. So there's a young woman. It'd be nice if we, you know, I, I don't know her that well, but I know her for some time now. Kim Kelly. You know, have you heard that name? She's a labor journalist and she's she's young, very dynamic, very left uh, IWW oh, member. Um, and she's her book is due out in a few weeks. And I was asked to read it for a blurb. I they sent it to me rather late. So I don't know if the blurb won't be on time, but I'm going to be in a conversation with her on a on a podcast out of Wilmington, Delaware. So I've been reading her book in galleys and it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not it, there. Are, I have some criticisms, but those don't matter. It's really quite a good book. So I've been reading that. Also another f- thing I've been reading, I think I mentioned before, um, it was a book, it's a book by Ryan Cooper, who was an editor with weekend, the, not the week magazine. He's now mm-hmm. the managing editor at the American prospect. And I know him well because he and a guy named Alexi have a podcast every week, Left Anchor. Mm. And he just finished his first book, uh, How Are You Going to Pay for That, I think is the title. Right. It's a real takedown of all of basically of the economics profession aside from various. But it's not done that. as an economic theory kind of thing. It's if you, Actually, David, I do recommend you read Ryan L. Cooper's book. OK, it's it's I as I, I wrote him along the way as I was reading it because he, he actually bought me a copy and sent it to me. And I said, cause I thought, where'd this come from? I, I you know, and all, he told me I sent it to you. So he, he really does a kind of commonsensical takedown of neoliberalism. It's just, it's a really and good austerity. Book. Really good. And austerity. Yeah. Austerity. He's not, he, 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 he's not a Marxist. Okay. And he has, he has reservations about statism. I can tell you that. And that, that all is very commonsensically handled as well. But it just is a really good book about about if you if you think about human decency and and values and and smarts, that's a good. In fact, if I were blurbing, I'd say this book is characterized by human decency, smarts, and damn good criticism. It's just that kind of book. Great, great. Yeah. I have an economic. So, and then Alan and I seriously, I mean, we did we you know we did the big thing on 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 you know on this show, but we've been doing a lot of stuff. Tomorrow night we're on the Young Turks. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Today we recorded with Zero Hour. Um, and, and there I'm forgetting the others. It's it's a busy time, a really busy time Good. right now. And I'll also to brag and drop names is um I've been doing this, you know, I've been attending to the Nina Turner campaign a bit. In fact, while we were talking, I got two texts from her about something, wow. which was nice. So wow. I mean it's uh you know, I bet you know, we could raise some money for her. If she wants to do a yeah, fundraiser, I, mean, I think, like, if she wanted to come in on a Friday night for an hour, I think we could raise money for her. <laughs> Seriously. I don't know. About Friday nights, I don't know. I don't know. That's a really good question. She, But she's, you know, I say to people, and I tweeted, in fact, and I sometimes I get nasty responses, but I used to say about Bernie that the reason it was important to vote for Bernie, the way to judge Bernie versus Hillary was, Hillary kept saying she wanted to be our champion. And I thought, don't trust anyone who tells you they want to be a champion because it means they don't want you to do anything. Mm-hmm. And Bernie was the guy who's, who basically, first of all, I mean, he made us angry about billionaires, which we you know, sort of spoke to what we were already angry about. But then he had that catch thing that not me, us, mm-hmm. which really was his point was, I can't do this by myself. You can right. elect me, but it's not going to be because of me that these things are going to change. Right. And I think I came to this conclusion when you hear candidates speak, 
ask yourself, do you really think they want to be your champion? Or should you go look for someone who, who inspires the fight in you? Right. Not to, okay. And I think that's the key. You want somebody who will inspire the fight. In you. And by the way, that's how I judge these speeches. I, you know, that's the, the, the ground zero of how I judge the speeches. So when Biden never tells anybody to do anything, but rather look what I've accomplished or here's what you got to He tells Congress, you got to do this and that, you know, you know, you've got a president who really doesn't want you to do anything. Yeah. Uh, as I just looked it up, Ted Kennedy's the dream shall never die speech at the 1980 Democratic National Convention. Mm. The work goes on, yeah. the cause endures, the hope still lives and the dream shall never die. That's he was that was a great speech that he gave. Yeah. In 1980. Yeah. Right. Senator Ted Kennedy. Better yeah, I heard he gave a great speech. I heard he gave a great speech when he finally spoke to the police about what happened to Chappaquiddick. <laughs> oh, come. We all make. Who hasn't driven off a bridge? Did I take away your joke? I knew you were going to. No, go no. There. I, I, I. Uh, <laughs> we all make mistakes. You know. Yep. We. Uh, yeah. It's it's unfortunate, but watch that speech that he gave in 1980 at the Democratic. My convention. daughter interned. My daughter the one who went to Harvard law, she interned in his Senate office for a while. And, uh, she, she, you know, she who really else did? By you know, who else did? Who else? Cause you mentioned Harvard three times. So I'm going to, I'm going to push back. You ready? Oh. Morton Downey Jr. Also interned for Teddy Kennedy. Morton Downey Sr. Wow. Was a friend of Joseph Kennedy. And Morton oh, Downey Jr. worked in Ted Kennedy's office probably around the same time your daughter was working there. But I don't think Morton Downey hmm. went to Harvard. I don't think uh, Ted Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, was he thrown out of Harvard? From, because of no, the they cheating? Built, they, built, they, they built a library to get him in there. Huh. And then right. didn't what law school built? did he go to? William Mary, I'm maybe I'm just wrong probably Virginia, right? Or William and Mary, one of those. Yeah, maybe Virginia. Does William and Mary even have a law school? I don't know actually. I think William does, but not Mary. Not Mary, that's right. Professor yeah. Harvey J.K. The fight for the four freedoms. Take hold. I of want to our... thank you for just letting me schmooze tonight. It was great. I yeah, didn't I really? I just didn't have the spirit for politics in me. Or tonight. Ukraine. Or Ukraine. Yeah, I uh, I can just tell you that to me, the, the only word when people ask me, what do I think? I just say tragedy. I, I don't even know what to say beyond that. From a from a historian, historian's perspective. If yeah. you were Meekum, McCullough, uh, one of the other. From a historian's ends. perspective, I can only tell you that I'm very glad, glad my great grandparents left in 1905. Yeah. But uh, will we look back? I, I, my audience is going to hate me for asking this question. Mm. The uh, for the genius they of America. Me more for what I said, what, how I answer you. Go ahead. Well, for the genius of America, people. Oh, the soul of America. People. You know, <laughs> like, that everything works out for a reason. Oh, yeah. Is this Biden's moment? 
if you if you're well, going on this is NBC, interesting if you're with Dorn, this is interesting to say that no i mean this is interesting because i know sanctions and all of that but the most the most telling thing about this moment is how little he is capable of doing he, he he's just i'm not judging him as an individual i have no idea of anyone who would have the capacity right at this moment to do other than what's ha- what than what's what they're doing which is sanctions and and probably by way of Poland and uh whatever else borders on it sending in as much aids aid and material as they can but and they may even be probably know they're probably special forces on the ground left over right. from training them to do certain things before but it's you know well i i'm i'm a little confused are you saying he's doing the best he can or he could do more i'm so, i may not have heard. no I, I think it's about the best he can do i i mean that i don't and think le- there's anything leading, i don't know having macron and bennett and israel meeting with putin that this is some kind of macron thought he was gonna he had pulled off peace and he didn't okay he came back and you know after what however long he was there thinking he had set up the peace you said right? peace in our that time, I believe. No, I mean, I, look, I, I'll say this. And I, I don't have time to get into it, and people will hate me for it. But people have a right to choose their own destiny. And the Ukrainians do not wish to be a part of the Russian Empire. And the tragedy is that there's very little, unless we want, we're in, uh, eager to see a, a World War Three, that the West can do other than to... I think uh, Professor Bick was saying it probably most clearly. There's very, very little we can do to assure that self-determination. But the self-determination, again, I'm, I, I, one of the things I've learned in the past month is yeah, don't argue and don't have a... Because this stuff is way beyond what I know. So... Uh, did we do a disservice to Ukraine by uh, up somebody? Hey, did we do a disservice to Ukraine? Was it an act of greed, luring them uh, towards the West? I'm going to say something which is definitely going to piss off people. You know, one could imagine another scenario since it's nuclear weapons that keep smart folks from going to war is maybe they should have admitted Ukraine and said, fuck off Russia. And I'm, I'm just saying that I don't see why the option would be that NATO did not go East. Why wouldn't it have been better to say Ukraine comes in quickly rather than allow the Russians to fantasize an alternative. And I say that I say that just because I'm tired of hearing that somehow the West pushed too far east. That's ridiculous. We're in an age in which it's a it's a global question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not a right. But the other thing to keep in not mind. Not a question of Ukraine, fifty miles or a hundred miles. Ukraine what? when the Soviet Union fell, Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power. And that's right. And guess what? Do you know that one of my very dearest friends is the person who negotiated the denuclearization of the former Soviet republics? And she is and she and she is absolutely convinced that this was always 
Putin's intention, what he's doing now. To do what? To absorb Ukraine? Expand the Russia, to, to recreate a Russian empire. They would have been better off keeping the nuclear weapons. Well, I, I, you know, I said to her husband, ask her how she feels about what, what, what they did. And she's an expert. You know, everybody's yes. an expert and they know what's they don't anticipate. Yeah, I, I you know, I'm listening and I'm trying to do as much reading as I possibly can on this. Well, you know, that, at that point, you know, we, we remember the term proliferation. Yeah. The trick was to try to sustain a global order in which you knew what the nuclear, who the nuclear powers were. It was going to be the United States, Britain, France and the Soviet Union. Am I leaving somebody else out of that? China. I think that was the key. China. Well, China wasn't supposed to, but they right. did. Okay. Um, so, you know, the idea was that if you denuclearize these these republics, and it wasn't just Ukraine, it was the, the, the Soviets had left behind these weapons in these in these republics' hands. So they had to get those out. Right. Let us go to Dave and PA. We've been having uh, system problems, so we didn't get to ask Dave and PA. We've been watching Chad, how Chad and Dave and PA making what I believe to be a lamp. Are you making a lamp? You got to unmute, sir. Sorry, it's a uh, furniture leg. It's uh, a it's leg. A prototype. I got to make a bunch of these. Yeah. For a piece of furniture, a couch, actually. Wow. Uh, I have to make a bunch of them. So this is a prototype. And just, just playing with the shape, getting used to it. Oh, so you, this is a prototype, but and then you're going to throw, not use this. Yeah, because it's it's cracked and, uh, yeah, I, I didn't think it was going to work out well just because of the piece of the wood it was. But And, and what kind of wood is I that? Commit, this is a hard maple. Sugar maple. It's beautiful. Saps running. The wood, the, is the wood is beautiful. Not the, the product needs a little adjustment, but that's beautiful. And, yeah. and is that yeah. sap running down? No, it's just a heartwood in the inner part of the tree towards the center. It just stains differently. Um, but it's most of the wood is this white. So beautiful watching you do that. It really is. It, it, it's, yeah, it really is. David, I got to go. So I'm going to. Okay, wish thank you. Good night. You. Good night. Okay. Thank you. And I'll talk Good to you night, soon. Harvey. Thank you, Good Professor night. Harvey J.K. Pick up his books and follow him on Twitter at Harvey J.K. And thank you, uh, Dave and P.A., along with Harvey J.K. and Chad wearing his helmet. Safety first. Thank you, Chad. There, there's so many opportunities for Chad to be hurt. And yet... Because he wears his helmet, he always comes out unscathed. What when are you doing hammer and sickle? Okay. Well, that is our show. I believe we've been stood up by yep, we've been stood up by Liam McEnany. I hope something happened to him. I would hate to think that he just blew me off. I hope something bad happened. Uh, when are you doing Hammer and Sickle, Dave and PA? Uh, we do it normally on Sunday afternoons at 2.30 Eastern, but every first 
Saturday, which is office hours and hours, we do it noon Saturday Eastern. Fantastic. And we're doing more and more garden talk. More and more uh, what? Spring come. Garden talk. That's the sickle part is garden talk. Ah, and the hammer is? Yeah. Is all kinds of make, fix, hack, design, build, um, mutual aid, work together, fix each other's problems with the physical world, appliances. Now, is this done on Discord or is house? it done, done on Discord or you t uh, on Zoom? We have a Zoom. It's the same Zoom meeting uh, that starts with Hammer for an hour, Sickle for an hour, and then Marks, Weekly Marks for about two hours. It's right. the same Zoom meeting. And you can get there from the Discord. Great. Uh, Can you get link with okay? All right, fantastic. Thank you, Dave and PA. Interesting community. We were having a meeting last night, and I popped in on Sarah Bush's reading group on Discord. There were about ten people reading Capital One, so that was uh, adorable. I don't know why I said adorable. Just uh, it was fun, just to see what everybody's up to in this uh, amazing community very humbling well i want to uh, i'm going to plug office hours i also want to plug the people who help get this show together uh they are obviously dan frankenberger who's next along with andy brown sarah bush the invisible ninja joe in norway Professor John, I don't know why his name isn't up there, and Hannah Fartman and Grace Jackson will be joining our crew. And you'll notice the show is going to be uh, a lot more uh, interesting. Uh, there's a, I need help. I can't do this uh, by myself. I'm getting tired. So we have people here and we're going to pay them. Uh, and the best way to support the crew is by donating money to the show, either in the chat room or go to my website and donate and help keep this show going. We, uh, I can't ask people to work for free. So that's our show. Let's go to Rodrigo and then I'll check to see if there are any super chats and we'll wrap it up rodrigo rodrigo hi, babies. how are you tonight hi can you... uh fine fighting in the chat as always what are you fighting about uh ukraine and other things but i wanted are you, are to you fight there's no i saw this in the chat room somebody pinched Dr. Strangelove, there's no fighting in the chat room. Remember that line? There's no fighting in the war room. I saw that last week. I don't know who said that. So what's the mood in the chat room? Uh, the usual mood in the chat room, but uh, Bill Greenberg came back and he saw that Alan Minsky wasn't here. Oh, he, he's sad because Alan Minsky isn't here. So, yes, it's good to see Bill Greenberg back. 
So I wanted to talk about... I, I mean, it's going to be curious. I want to talk to... If Bill will show up for office hours, He, you should probably take a look, Professor Greenberg, at what we're doing in office hours. I remember you kind of advised us, and I wonder how much of your advice we've applied. So uh, if you want, I would like to talk to you at office hours uh, tomorrow. I, I'm there from 8 till 9. I kind of make myself available. So I'd be curious to see if we applied some of your suggestions. Go ahead, Rodrigo. So in Idaho, the House on Women's Day passed HB 675 by a vote of 55 to 13, and it would make providing gender-affirming care to trans teens a felony. The end of what? Uh, the end of what? In Idaho? Yeah, but you said uh, it would it, provide for the end of what? Affirming, providing gender-affirming care to trans teens, a felony with a life sentence. Worse, it makes living I'm sorry, the so state... a life sentence to anybody who does what with assists a trans... Doctors or parents who assist their trans teens with gender-affirming care what we used to call uh, gender transitioning care. I forget the okay. old name. H hormones and all that, yeah. Yes. Uh, worse, it makes leaving the state with your trans teen to move elsewhere and provide them with care also a felony. And there is an exception carved out for intersex kids. We all get a little queasy thinking about this, but when a baby is born and the doctor decides the baby doesn't look too certain of whether it's a boy or a girl, the parents give permission to do surgery on the baby and sometimes turn an innie into an outie or an outie into an innie, and that apparently is fine. Probably because it's the doctors and parents deciding for the kid. But parents supporting their trans kids, that is a jail sentence. Idaho has a faith healing exemption to protect parents from prosecution if they let their kids die from a lack of medical treatment, which should make it clear that this isn't concerned politicians worried about kids getting hormone blockers so they don't kill themselves. This is much like another Texas bill, a case of cruelty is the point. If you know people in Idaho who can join protests, please let them know. This bill is currently on its way to the Idaho Senate, where there's some hope that it will be stopped in, if enough attention is brought to it. And if you live in, if you live in Missouri, Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman has proposed a measure that would make performing an abortion on a Missouri resident or helping a Missouri resident get one in another state illegal. It's an amendment to an abortion-related House bill that has not yet been debated on the floor. Great. Uh, thank and you. I'm 
So if you know someone in Idaho or if you're in Idaho, uh, it's important to stop this bill before it passes the Idaho Senate. Okay. All right. Our thank you. Thank you. I am not going to say anything about Boise. Uh, that is our show. I want to thank all our guests tonight. They were the great John Ross. Follow him on Twitter at Fun with Friction. And then uh, the Hershenfelds, Ethan Hershenfeld. Go watch him tonight on Special Victims. Law and Order, Special Victims Unit. Download Thug Thug Jew. Watch Bull, Red Notice, the great Ethan Hershenfeld and his equally fantastic father, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. I want to thank Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Dan Frankenberger, the quiz master, the new host of Stump the Humps. I, I won, again, Stump the Humps. Emil Guillermo, and of course, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Follow the Reverend Barry W. Lynn at Barry W. Lynn. Emil Guillermo, Emil Amuck on Twitter. The Professors and Marianne, Professor Marianne Cummings. Razor Girl on Twitter. Professor Annie Lee, read her over at The Daily Co's. Professor Jonathan Bick will be with us tomorrow night at office hours, teaching us about the Twilight Zone. And Professor Adnan Hussein has a, an interview with Dr. Juan Cole on the Mudgeless podcast. So you, you want to download that. And uh, of course, Gorilla History. Thank you, Joe in Norway for cooking tonight and your work on office hours. Thank you, Dave and PA and Chad. Stay healthy, Chad. Thank you, Professor Alan Minsky. Professor Alan Minsky. Uh, yes, I need help. Uh, thank you, Harvey JK, Professor Harvey JK. And uh, I think that covers everything. I'm probably leaving something out. Office hours this Friday night. You know, we talk about it a lot, but uh, you should come. C go to my website and, and sign up. All you need is Zoom and or a phone, and you can listen in. Friday, March 11th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm there from 8 till 9. That's I make myself available if you have any complaints suggestions. I'm there from eight till nine. Just raise your hand. Then from nine to nine thirty, we do community shard outs. That's for a half hour, a quick review of the evening scheduled. And then people are given a chance to brag about something, brag about their kids, their parents, their life. <clears throat> then we go to CM England, the fast lane with Lane. And then a guitar lesson at 10 p.m. with Steve K. Then 11 p.m., a guided tour of the Twilight Zone 
with Professor John. At midnight, it's the War Room, Ukraine, Current Events, a group discussion hosted by Falco, who's coming to us from Belgium. And it's a uh, trigger warning. There's going to be, uh, they're going to be talking about Ukraine. There'll be images and, you know, it's going to be a little uh, difficult to see to watch some stuff. Then Harsh is going to show two films uh, that talk about uh, the Indian Assembly election. They're two films by Satyajit Ray, and I know I mispronounced that. Then 2 a.m., it's The Witching Hour, Open Dialogue, and we resume with our morning session at 8.30 a.m. This is so generous of Professor Adnan Hussein. He's teaching his course, Jewish and Muslim Parables and Philosophical Fictions. It's week six. Join Professor Adnan Hussein from 8.30 till 10, when Falco comes back with a reading from the Great Class War, 1914 to 1918. Then at 11 a.m., Professor Pamela will be reading The Red Deal, Indigenous Action to Save Our Earth by the Red Nation. The afternoon session continues uh, at noon on Saturday, an update on Hungary. Then at 4.30 p.m., there's a screening of Lake of Fire over at the Valley Vox Theater, our friend's at Valley Vox celebrate Women's History Month in their own unique way with an emergency screening of Tony Kaye's 2007 documentary film, Lake of Fire. This is not part of office hours. This is, they've branched out. For more information for this screening, go to valleyvoxtheater at gmail.com and then at 2.30 p.m. on Sunday, it's Hammer and Sickle with Andy, Falco, and Sarah. And then at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, it's Weekly Marks Reading Group. Uh, some of these you have to sign up through on Discord. Uh, the, the stuff that happens on Sunday, I believe you need to uh, join our Discord channel. And in order to do that, you have to attend office hours and Andy Brown and Sarah will uh, get you in touch with our Discord channel, which is incredible. It's just a lot of incredible things happening that I know nothing about. So please sign up for office hours and meet these, I'll call them people. Yes, I will call them people. Uh, go to my website, davidfeldmanshow.com. And while you're over there, sign up for office hours. If you'd like to attend a live taping of this show every Monday night and Thursday night, we start at 5 p.m. and go till whenever. Go to my website for that. While you're over there, sign up for the newsletter. And we're we have a crew of people who get this show going and keep the community healthy and informed and they have to be paid. So while you're over at my website, hit the donate button or Patreon. 
throw some cash so people here can, uh, you know, just because you're on the left doesn't mean you're a Catholic priest who's taken a vow of poverty. Uh, people need money. They do. Well, that's the show. Thank you all. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. The Taylor Dirty Joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.